Okay, all flight controllers, go no go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Dr. Harriet Fraud joins us. She is a feminist activist, psychotherapist, and hypnotherapist in New York City. And she is said to be a founding member of the feminist movement. She took part in the founding of the Women's Liberation Movement back in 1968. She hosts a podcast called Capitalism Hits Home and another podcast Right now, it's called It's Not Just In Your Head, and they're changing the name of it. But I love that title, It's Not Just In Your Head, because Dr. Harriet Fraud teaches her patients that it's not your fault. It could be the system's fault. It may not be your mother's fault. It may be the system under which we're forced to operate. Welcome, Dr. Harriet Fraud. Thank you. And our podcast used to be called It's Not All in Your Head, but we've had to change it to It's Not Just in Your Head. It's Oh, okay. Okay. And okay. I'm glad to be welcomed, and I think your idea was superb of talking about the stages of grief in relationship to the coronavirus. Yeah, because- one of the things I've noticed is you, you are a... a a Marxist, and you filter things through the prism of class struggle. I don't know what I am, although I pay close attention to class struggle. I think that is what history is, people trying to oppress the weaker. And now we're discovering that this system that America operates under cannot fix this problem, and the system has died. The, the whatever system you want to call this, uh, it's not capitalism, but it's definitely dead. And yet the stock market is up and people are reopening their businesses. And I'm thinking, and, and I wrote to you about this, this reminds me of the seven stages of grief that Kubler-Ross talks about. Mm-hmm. Do you see a similarity to this? It seems to me this system, as we know it, is dead, whatever it is. And we're, our politicians, the voters, are pretty much responding the way we respond when we're told we have a terminal illness. Yeah, well, I think that that's right, and I think that... If you different people are of course responding differently, one of the first stages of Kubler Ross's grief is denial, and I think that there's a good, strong number of Trump supporters who are in denial over the fact that he's failed, and that unadulterated capitalism without limit, which is what we have in the United States, has failed since the eighties and Reagan. They've totally counteracted the New Deal, which was big government rescuing us when capitalism failed. And um, 
So they've made the problem, instead of corrupt government and corporate greed, they've made it government. And they've looted and diluted the government, of course, including disbanding the Pandemic Commission, which Trump did and sold the supplies um, from the Pandemic Commission because they were getting expensive, great deal, mm-hmm. since everyone was getting COVID. And withdrew from the World Health Organization because what doesn't make money is not interesting to our president and our leadership. Stockpiling goods that will protect us is not profitable. Stockpiling anything is not profitable. You need turnover. You need to sell to get uh, money. And in the public sector, they weren't going to do that either. And we have a capitalism without limits here, which is which has failed us. We also have a group of people, maybe 40% of our nation at most, in denial about the fact that we weren't informed when Trump knew in um, December of 1999 and that we haven't been protected and that unlike the myriad... 2019. 2019, right. sorry. Unlike the myriad other nations that have already survived the coronavirus, from Germany to Vietnam to South Korea to New Zealand, whatever, China. Denmark, Denmark, Denmark. Most, except for Sweden that didn't believe in isolating all the other Scandinavian countries. But we have to say, Taiwan also, but we have to say, well, we... We don't have a federal response, isolate in place, shelter in place. We don't have what they have, which is 80% of the salary paid to anyone who can't work because of coronavirus. We don't have the protections. We also, 2% of our population has been tested, whereas in South Korea, they went around in vans to every building and tested everyone. Same in Taiwan, New Zealand, all these other people. Germany that have survived, Portugal, we haven't. And so that our unadulterated capitalism, our capitalism without limits, that everything has to be for sale to make money, has failed. That's not much of a shocker. If your object is making money, then that's what you do, rather than care for people. That's the problem with a market-driven healthcare system. It is, it is irrefutable that, that Trump and America before Trump has, has failed its people. Yes. It, 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 you, there are 1.3 million cases of COVID-19 throughout the world, and 33% of those cases are here in the United States. We're just 5% of the world's population. We comprise 33% of the world's sick. That's right, because we don't, you know, we are the worst, according to the UN, we have the worst response. Because if you're just trying to make money, you wait for a vaccine that's American, which is what they did. They wouldn't use the Chinese or the German vaccines because they wouldn't make money off of them. And they wouldn't sit on the big EU teleconference to raise money for a global initiative. Trump refused to cough up any money for a global initiative to come up with a vaccine or a cure because America would be sharing the credit. That's right. In fact, there was a a company which had two vice presidents in Germany and one 
in Boston, and they looked like they might be having a vaccine. And so Trump and Pence personally visited with the three CEOs and said, look, their company was worth about a quarter of um, a billion dollars, about $250 million or so. And he said, we'll give you a billion dollars if you give us an exclusive on that vaccine only for Americans. Right. Right. And they said, no, there's a limit to capitalism and fired the American CEO of that company who brokered this interference and decided, no, you don't do that. Because if you have as an object that everything has to make money, well, then you make money for the people who have money because they have the money to invest. Right. And that has failed. We should notice that in the 13th and 14th century, when the bubonic plague wiped out one out of three Europeans, feudalism was dying. They didn't know how to keep up the land. It was wearing out. The peasants couldn't sustain themselves. They were in bad health. They were leaving the farms and going to these, they were leaving the feudal estates and going to cities. They were being thrown off so that the feudal landlord could have more room to graze his sheep. The whole thing was collapsing and bubonic plague happened and people didn't have the resources internal or health-wise to fight it. And at this point in the United States, 60% of people don't have $1,000 in case of an emergency and 40% don't have 400 in case of a dire emergency. And people are desperate. We have the highest opioid addiction in the world, the highest suicide rate, the highest murder rate and so on and and so the system whatever system you want to call this is dead or or, or if unadulterated capitalism is failing unadulterated capitalism where everything has to make money that is failing and it has failed the health of the american people and it's failed the economy people can't work those are being forced to work like in the iowa plant where 500 meat packers died, but they wanted to keep it open. So Trump decreed that they were essential. And then a thousand, the, within the first week, a thousand people died. They doubled their death rate. So it's sort of capitalism pointing the gun and saying, your money or your life. Right. You have a choice to either starve or die. So you can die of starvation or you can die on the job packed in with other meat packers in an unhealthy environment. And he hasn't mandated that any worker who goes back to work has to go in a disinfected environment. The bosses have not been mandated to clean up the place while the workers work. So it's an out-of-control capitalism. And that's what we're facing. But a portion of the country is in denial They believe it when he said we are the most successful on COVID. We beat the whole thing. We're winning. And we're great because they want to so that they are in denial. And other people are angry. You know, the stages of grief are not exactly the same because some people have stayed in denial. Well, let's go. Let's let's I just want to point out that the abject failure of our system Globally, the average death rate for COVID-19 is 30, 34 people per 1 million. 34 out of a million who 
34 million will die from COVID-19. In the United States, it's 232 per million. That's six times as high as the world uh, number. Now, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote back in 69 on death and dying. She came up with five stages of grief for the terminally ill. I think I said seven because uh, I've added uh, the, the first stage is you call your insurance company. <laughs> yeah, that's number. That's the real number one. And then number two is, oh, boy. Um, but uh, <laughs> she, originally she had five. So it, it, it occurred to me over the weekend that the first stage of grief is denial And she says, I mean, it's really prescient. Avoidance, this is part of the denial. Avoidance, confusion, elation, shock, and fear. I mean, Dr. Freud, you see all of this right now. Avoidance, confusion, elation, the stock market, shock, fear. That's all all the symptoms of being given a, a a, a terminal illness illness diagnosis, isn't it? I mean, it's just incredible. Now, one of the things is, though, that the stock market runs sort of differently. What happens is, since capitalists are not patriotic, they just want to make money. That's what you do as a capitalist. You're good. If you make money, you're winning. Mm -hmm. So they can't win by investing in this country that's failing, so they invest in the stock market. Right. That's the only safe place, and it zooms because they're buying in because they're not buying into the productive apparatus of this country. Right, right. So um, maybe it's elation because they're making money. But I think people are confused because it's hard to come to terms with the fact, just as it's hard to come to terms with the fact that you're dying if you're dying. It's hard to come to terms with the fact that this is a declining empire, that we haven't outright won a war except against Grenada, which is about the size of New Jersey, since World War II. Right. We haven't, we haven't won the war on poverty. We almost won it. Then Reagan we didn't went fight it either. We didn't, and we yeah. haven't won the war on COVID because we're not fighting that one. Right. We're in, you know, we're in, and and our leader is a deluded narcissist who's just interested in making money, and that's what he's doing. So I, he's been making money and telling lies, and people want it. People who want to believe it are those same people who go to evangelical churches. And are told you are safe because you're in God's house, even if they go home and they get COVID, well, you'll be closer to God in any case, right? We're talking with Dr. Harriet Fraud, and we have some attendees who want to ask you a a question or two. I just want to finish up the grief cycle, and then we'll get to to Henry. The, The next step is anger, which I'm beginning to see and experience. More strikes now than for the previous decade. And people, people are angry. And turning on one another. Yes, like beating up on Chinese people because Trump says this is a Chinese virus in Minnesota. There's a video of these kids knocking down a woman in the metro station and kicking her in the head because she's Asian. Right. The third step is depression. And then fourth is bargaining. And the fifth step is acceptance. So uh, let's... Let's go to Henry, but when we wrap up this segment, Dr. Fraud, I'd like you to explore with me what acceptance will look like when we when the American people 
finally wake up and realize whatever system you want to call this is dead, what acceptance will look like. But let's go to Henry. Hello, Henry. Henry. I think you, Henry, you have to, I think you know Henry. Uh, I don't, but I'm happy to hear from him. Oh, I wouldn't know you if it weren't for Henry, but Henry, who's so brilliant, can't seem to unmute himself. (laughs) Henry? Hi, Henry, I see you, but I can't hear you. Okay, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to move on. And we'll get to you in a second. Let's go down to, uh, I think, uh, Tucson, Arizona, where Todd is zooming to us. Hello, Hi, Todd. Hi, David. Good Hi, to Dr. Hear. Fraud. How are you? How are you? Uh, not quite in Tucson. We drove back last weekend. So Where are you now? In Wheaton, Illinois. Wheaton, so. Illinois. Okay. Yeah. What is your um, question I- for Dr. Harriet Fraud? Yeah, I was just curious. What are your thoughts on nationalizing the petroleum industry and the airlines? And if in favor, what 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 do you think that process would look like at all? I mean, that may be a broad question, but. It is. I am in favor of nationalizing the airlines like Air France is nationalized and making them safe. And I'm certainly in favor of nationalizing all the things that people need for survival. And one of them is energy. Oil, gas, wind, solar, all the things that people need to survive to fulfill their basic needs should be nationalized. And if people want to sell luxury goods, they can make a profit on it. But that the basics of food and shelter and comfort and health and child care and adult aged care, they have to be public in order to be safe because you really need to save people from the idea that profit is the most important thing. That's what that's what companies owe their shareholders. Dr. Fred, what is the, the psychological condition of a country that bails out the airlines after the bailout, we continue to see flights on JetBlue, United, no masks. They promised us that uh, they would get rid of the middle seat, that there would be at least be an empty middle seat. There were, there were photographs. A doctor flew into New York to help during the crisis. He's flying back home, and he took pictures. I believe it was United, but I'm not sure. It was a packed plane. The middle seats were filled. They, JetBlue announced last week, weeks after the bailout, last week they announced masks are going to be mandatory. What is this? What, what, what is, is it? The- They're making money. And there's no, look, the monies that were given in the stimulus package of 2008 that bailed them out, had no strings attached. It wasn't like Germany, where if you got money from the German government, you had to have your workers on the board. You have to consider the ecological impact of everything that you do, and you have to be socially responsible. No, they gave it to them. The bankers, they gave huge money to the bankers, whereas in Iceland, a lot of those banksters were put in jail, and they nationalized the banks. Because women ran, women took over in Iceland. 
that's true. Although there are some pretty awful women too, we have to remember that. I, you know, I've been married to a couple of them. Let's go to <laughs> Henry, who figured out how to work yeah. his audio. Can you hear me now? I can yes. hear you now, okay. and thank you, great, Henry. I great did the great uh, tech assistance trick of turning it off and back on. Oh, <laughs> good. Okay. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Doctor Fraud. Yes. Um, you too. So I, I'm going to give you a pretty open-ended question. That way you have the latitude to explore <laughs> the topic in any way you want. Uh, it's actually something that I discussed with you via email before, and that's uh, societal value or lack thereof of work that's done that doesn't get paid. So we, we would usually call this a diverse economy, and it's something that I've advocated for for a long time, but... When people do work around the house, let's say, or take care of elderly relatives, et cetera, et cetera, it, it provides value to the society and value to the family, but it's not paid monetarily. And people within the society look down upon that kind of work because it doesn't bring money in. There was a, a, a report that came out relatively recently that showed that if we just paid women, who, again, disproportionately do this kind of work, the minimum wage for the work that they do that's unpaid in the U.S., that would be $1.5 trillion worth of work and globally $10.9 trillion, which is more than the 50 biggest corporations in the world take in in a year. Well, so, that's important. You were there. You founded what we call Women's Liberation back in 1968. One, one day, I hope you'll come back and we can go through that. Was sure. that considered, that must have been brought into the discussion back in 1968? It wasn't, it wasn't. One of the weaknesses of the 1968, uh, well, there were several weaknesses. One was we thought because we were on the bottom of the economic and social ladder, if we stood up, everyone would come with us. We didn't bargain on Gloria Steinem, CIA agent, coming in with hundreds of thousands behind her to make our movement a gender-only movement, an excise class. That was a, it was called um, Operation Great Wurlitzer, I think it was called. Right, you said there's a book. Changing the tune. There's a book yeah. called there's Operation book. Wurlitzer that you recommended? Well, the Great Wurlitzer. The Great right. Wurlitzer. But that, that our movement was perverted into a gender-only movement, and class was excised, losing a lot of working-class women, a lot of black women, and so on but that we did not emphasize housework except to say it was shit work, which yeah. is not a big inducement to get men involved, by the way. Uh, and part of that was the push of Steinem and Ms. Magazine, which we were so grateful to her. She got us this slick magazine, no ads. We were so naive. We didn't say, no ads. Uh-oh, who's paying? Right. But in any case, so that we didn't emphasize that. We emphasized entree into the world of work, which is just what the government wanted us to do, so that they could have two people working full-time, making less than one, one did. That's a great point, and we're short on time. And this is, this is Henry, we're not going to be able to go, but it's a great question. Mm. I would love to know uh, the effect that uh, women's liberation had on wages if it dr it ended up driving wages down but that's for another conversation okay but well, i have to answer something that henry brought up i have to respond to it yeah. which is look what is essential 
is what keeps people alive. Most of that was women's work, which was unpaid completely. And part of the humiliation of women was to make sure that those tasks that were extensions of women's work, creating order, creating cleanliness, creating prepared food, taking care of children, taking care of the elderly, taking care of the helpless, that those were all devalued, and they have been devalued. Right. As much as women's work in the home has been devalued and unpaid. Right. I, I, let's. We have people all over the world who want to ask you questions. Let's go to Mexico City, where Alicia has a question for Dr. Fraud. And we have people waiting, so if everybody could keep their questions down to maybe 45 minutes each, that would be, that would be helpful. <laughs> I'll try. Hi, Dr. Fraud. I, I just wanted a, a question about the difference of being poor in the United States and in other parts of the world. And look, it's horrible to be poor anywhere, but I've lived in places like Egypt. I'm currently living in, in Mexico City. And the thing that I notice every time I go back to the States is that on top of being poor and facing all the economic issues, you also face this incredible amount of shame and guilt. You know, in other countries, you're not shamed for being poor. And again, I don't want to romanticize about being poor in Egypt. But what I do notice is that poor people are allowed to congregate. So if they want to put up their little plastic chairs and, you know, eat a falafel, they're not rushed off the street. If they want to sell little trinkets, you know, if you go out to a restaurant and you're sitting outdoors in Mexico City, you're going to have to deal with people selling you trinkets. No one's going to chase them off. You know, we in the United States, we have all these loitering laws and it's it's a crime and and you're shamed about it. People in other countries kind of look at it like, you know, the wheel of fortune was spun and you really came up with hard luck. You know what I mean? They don't blame you for being poor. And again, I'm not trying to. Uh, say that it's nice to be poor in other countries. But I just noticed that for people in the United States, the level of mental illness that goes along with being poor. My daughter lives in San Francisco, and you cannot go down the street without seeing so many mental ill people. And, you know, it, it's... I, it's I just, it's, it's you know, what I've learned and realized over the years, and Dr. Harriet Fraud is... As I think has made a good part of her career teaching us that it may not be your mother, it may be the system. What is your question? Because we have people waiting, Alicia. You're making a great point. It's a great point, but we have limited time with her. Right. That's my that's my question. Is that have you noticed this? I mean, this is only I have. Thank you. I certainly have, and I think what happened in the United States is different from what happened in the rest of the world because. For 150 years, between 1820 and the 1970s, if you were in a family that was white and headed by a male, every generation could do better than the last. We were the exception. And so there was this idea. Oop, I screwed up. Damn it. I screwed up and we, I, we disconnected Dr. Fraud. Uh, so what we're going to do is I'm going to say hello to Liz Winstead. Hello, Liz. It was going so well. And- oh, it's great. I just muted myself and um, took myself off because I just came on to listen. And then all of a sudden I was on your cast. I didn't want to interrupt, so I was just listening. Yes. Hi. Did, did Hi. You, it, you're, you're coming up next. And 
I hit the wrong. It was this was going so effing well. Great, and then you just kicked off Dr. Frog. I took, I kicked, and Which I wanted an you to meet her. Name for a genius. I'm sorry. That's an unfortunate name for a genius. I know. I know. Dr. She is, Have you have you met her? No, but I've, I've read her. Yeah. Yeah, I was, and I was looking exactly. forward to bringing you two together near the end, so you would overlap, and maybe I could talk the two of you into. Uh, doing the show together in the future. Yeah, I would totally love to. Yeah. I should introduce... Uh, let me just make a note here. Uh, all right. I screwed up. Am it, I on now? You're on. We're rolling. I was, literally in the, I was like literally just fucking around listening, and I was like, okay, I'll just come on whenever and put my mute on. I, yeah, I was fine. so proud, because we're doing it. Let me, let me introduce you. And, okay. and Dr. Fraud is on a tight schedule, so she has a patient. So we were, I don't know if we're going to get her back. And it was going so well. And it was so interesting. Liz Winstead is a comedian, an author, and you all know her as the creator of The Daily Show. Please welcome Peabody, award-winning actress, author, and writer, Liz Winstead. Hello, Liz. Hi, Dave. Couple of poly- I, like say, I like that you say you all know that you created the Daily Show. That has been systematically not designed for people to actually not know that. <laughs> yeah, but you did, and yes, I did. You did create it, and then the suits and the men and the people who get in the way of the thing and the money got their hands on the the history of the Daily yeah. Show. History yeah. is written. By I think when you look at those people, the losers. <laughs> I mean, you would in, in in the system we operate, one would call them the winners, but I would uh, call them the losers. Uh, but you have, well, go ahead. You you respond to that, please. Oh, I mean, I just think, I just think it's a, uh, I just think it's very interesting that um, that it was the Daily Show was created by two women. I was the head writer there for three years. Um, we created the format. We put it into the world. It, we grew its base. We created an entire structure. Um, and then um, that is just written out of the history of The Daily Show completely and not celebrated by anybody who came in after the beginnings. In fact, the museum, which used to be in D.C., was the, the Museum of News. Just um, went out of business. Just went out of business. Um, the display for The Daily Show starts when Jon Stewart started the show. Doesn't even I take into account the inception of the show itself, which is pretty interesting. Because it was started by a bunch of people who left news and a bunch of people who absorbed the news and were voraciously looking at the news and looking at the media as a co-conspirator to all of the problems that we had had. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was interesting that they just sort of left out that. Well, he who controls, well, yes. In fact, the oral history of the Daily Show that was written, I think, two years ago. Oh yeah. They they contacted me, and I said, "You're not going to print what I have to tell you." And I told them the truth about John and his anti-union behavior, and I said, "But you're not going to print this." You're not going to print this. And that's for another discussion. But very quickly, when I worked on The Daily Show, there was an AP script writing program that was impossible to understand. (laughs) 
And it took me all summer to to figure it out. Yeah, Are, MPD script writing is a whole situation. Is um, that your your is that your one of your many legacies to this? It is one of my many legacies. In fact, it was, and the reason that we did it was because it was a really great way to communicate for writers to communicate with the control room and to not, you know, I always say um, there's people who call way too many meetings when an, when an email could suffice. And this was um, right when email was new and everything was new and it was a way to eliminate a whole bunch of meetings. Right. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was a bear to learn and then to also try to be doing a show that was every day. Um, but conversely, um, Stephen Colbert and his partner, uh, created an easier version that is similar to it for late night. It's called Scripto, and many late night shows use it. And it's the it's the simpler, dumbed down, incredible version of of that AP program. And so, it's being able to write words to picture. Words to picture also a read rates are super important when you're doing live TV, and so it, you were able to get the cadence of the person who was reading it and, and time it out in a pretty accurate way so that you could say, oh, that that monologue is 27 seconds over. We have cut it. And mm-hmm. so it was that was good. But it was super complicated. It was super complicated. <laughs> and I found it it stifled for me. It stifled uh, creativity in that he who controls the keyboard controls what gets submitted. And I found myself powerless until I learned the software program because yeah, I, re- I think that that's very, I mean, that's the, I think it was the nature of technology at the time. Technology itself was not second nature to anybody. And so it was learning a lot of garbage that you, for the first time, you yeah. know, I think you could say that about anything, you know, I mean, everything that's, you know, you're con- everyone's constantly like, I don't know how to do this new thing. It's like, how could I possibly understand this? It's like, yeah. well, get a clue. It was hard to learn how to ride a bike, too. But you, have, you have done many, many things. I want to talk about keeparclinics.org because oh, yeah. mm-hmm. on April 30th, you ran a, a, a big gala online to raise money for keeparclinics.org. It's a really fun setup by the Abortion Care Network. It's the National Association for Independent Abortion Care Providers. And Elizabeth Banks, Kamau Bell, Nikki Glazer, Jenny Slate, Sandra Bernhardt, Margaret Cho, they they took part in this fundraiser on Instagram, April 30th. How hard is it now? I read somewhere that in the past five years, there are like something like 33% fewer abortion clinics. Yeah, I mean, since 2010, when we watched... Uh this erosion of of laws coming in that were just putting up all these barriers to keeping clinics open, to having people access abortion um, that affect, of course, the most marginalized people, poor women, poor people of color. Um, it, it's been harder and harder and harder. And there's it's a two-pronged situation that happens where when we talk about abortion care, and you and I talk about this a lot, um, people default to talking about Planned Parenthood as though there is one 
con- conglomeration that provides all the abortions in the world, and they're called Planned Parenthood, when in fact the independent abortion providers of America in the community clinics are the ones that provide the most care and provide almost all of the care in abortions after 13 weeks. Right. right. And so um, you add COVID on top of it, and then you add the restrictions that governors are trying to pull using COVID literally as a cudgel to pass to halt procedures. And um, the these clinics that had been struggling found themselves in a place where 92% of the independent providers who are open now said that if they didn't get funds urgently, they don't they don't know if they could remain open um, by the end of the year, which is really scary stuff, right? And so it's to me, I run an organization called Abortion Access Front. Um, the callous nature with which as we live in a pandemic where people are housing insecure and job insecure and healthcare insecure and employment insecure, if they find themselves with an unintended pregnancy, that somebody would actually say that's not essential for you to take care of and that we're going to decide that you're fine with being able to parent another child and be able to afford that. I mean, it's, it's unconscionable really. And there has been, Zero stories about it on, on in mainstream news, zero. And so the advocates of abortion have been the ones that have had to actually talk about it. And I, I thank you so much for always having me on to be able to talk about this crisis in care because if, if it's going to be that we view unintended pregnancy and someone who needs an abortion um, as being able to make that decision for them, then we just don't have a just society at all. And... Um, well, let, let, let's talk about Lady Parts Justice League. Did you change the name or is that? We changed the name to Abortion Access Front. Abortion Access Front. For some of my listeners who are unfamiliar with Liz's important work, she travels around America and does shows at uh, abortion clinics. No. We travel around and we do shows at big venues. And then what we do is we have conversations with at the. It's like a multimedia show. It can be comedy, music, and conversation. And then we, and what we do is during our show we have a conversation with the local providers and the local activists in that community. And then our audience hears the state of access to abortion in their um, city and state. And then they find out right in the room how they can sign up to volunteer um, to make political change and then also to be sort of a support network for the clinics themselves. Because one of the things that we found in our work and in our research and in our traveling is that if you provide abortion in a place that is hostile to abortion, you can't, it's hard for you to get just regular old help from like a local plumber or, or, or somebody to do landscaping or somebody to paint your clinic because either that establishment will be targeted by picketers or they themselves are anti-abortion and don't want to help the clinic. And so we go in and do those things at the clinic. Right. We'll go paint the clinic. We'll go do the lawn work. But also we will present that they can't find A, B, and C in their community. And then we hook up our audience members who do those things with them. And then we help create um, those relationships so they can actually operate like a regular small business. Yes. You, so sorry. You, 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 <laughs> you, you go and you you garden and you paint and you walk the young girls through the yeah, phalanx of crazy christians holding up fetuses and screaming at them yeah those are the, by the way the same people who are screaming 
um, about their freedoms um, at the state capitals, too. It's the exact same people. They are leading the rallies, the same people who are telling people that they don't have a choice with what to do with their bodies are the ones screaming that they're being oppressed in their homes. <laughs> it must be with Yeah, this. yeah. Let's dig into the reality on the ground, because abortion providers, they especially in red states, are uh, under siege and live in physical danger. Let's talk about their financial precariousness right now. What is it like to be working in a women's clinic in the South? How are your finances during COVID-19? Well, let's take the South out of it and talk about abortion provision um, in America, because that's what we're talking about. And and the reason I say that is because um, safe havens that you think about, like New York, like, you know, Illinois, um, the Washington State, which was hit you know, was the first ground zero, Washington State, right? Um, a state where a lot of people go to from Texas and other places because they don't have the waiting period and it's easier, um, you know, when they have to. So what's happening for them is they are doing what every other doctor's office is doing, which is taking less patients, staying open longer, um, and social distancing, um, a couple of things that have come up is if you've been following how all of these horrible laws have affected abortion provision, you know that in many states, doctors have to fly into a state to provide. Um, with doctors, a lot of uh, doctors who provide abortion, the average age of a, an abortion doctor is 68. Um, and Why so, is that? Why is that? Um, it's because a lot of medical schools aren't teaching it. Uh, it is because it is uh, it, mostly because of access to getting the schooling on it. And so that is another problem is that when when colleges des- decide that they don't want to uh, teach abortion or don't offer it, um, you know, 70 percent of OBGYN say that they they haven't gotten the proper um, training. Ninety percent of family practice practitioners say that they haven't gotten the proper training, which also is miscarriage training as well, right? So you think about that stuff, and it's like, oh my god! But anyway, well, so, that's really important. Now that really wasn't important. that wasn't always the case. I would assume. I would assume. Um, no, you used to just abortion provision was just part of med school training because it's also the same as miscarriage care, and so you don't have that. You know what are you doing? And also, it's such a safe procedure in early abortion that. You know, LPNs, um, MAs, PAs, they should all be doing early abortion care. In some states, they're allowed, but it should just be allowed all the time. And what's, an LP, what's an LPN? A licensed nurse practitioner. They should be allowed to do abortion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in some states, they do. But so anyway, what's happening with abortion provision is there's social distancing. And then um, if you don't have folks trained and your doctor, um, let's say, gets exposed and has to quarantine, you don't have a doctor, right? So then patients are suffering. Or if somebody in your clinic needs to um, quarantine, um, does a clinic have money to – the clinics are paying hazard pay because they're frontline workers. They want to be able to pay people to um, stay off of work. And they also are desperately trying to hire nurses and replacements for the folks who come in and who are sick. But on the abusive, horrible, ugly scale – um, a lot of stuff that's happening. So one of the things we're raising money to help folks do is, you know, a lot of folks who are going in for procedures are poor. And, you know, you're like, and don't have cell phones. Like, that's a real thing. You know, how we define what poverty looks like in our country is very interesting. So we've, we've raised money to send clinics um, 
those things that you get at restaurants that buzz when your table's ready, and people wait in their cars in the parking lot, and then they get buzzed to come in so that they can keep the social distancing happening. But what that has done is the protesters have not stopped from going to the clinics. And protesters are out there in droves, not social distancing, not wearing masks, and they're up in the faces of the cars screaming at the patients and the patients are afraid to get out of the cars because there's somebody unmasked in their face protesting. And the churches who are in the states where churches have deemed essential, um, they're encouraging this behavior, looking at it as an opportunity for prayer. Um, and so that has been uh, incredibly hard on on um, on patients everywhere. And, and, and I was talking to, as we did the telethon that you were talking about, the fundraiser, I talked to several providers from around the country and um, the provider I talked to who was in Seattle said that they've never been busier. And during the, when COVID was at the height in Seattle, that their patient load was really profoundly huge. And um, they were talking amongst themselves and just, she said, you know, it's just a reminder that people will travel to the center of a pandemic to access abortion here because people will. Oh, that I didn't realize that. So it wasn't yeah. Seattle. It was people coming Coming to, to Seattle, Seattle from all I see. Because, and they, because of the pauses in care in Texas and, and the 12 other states that said we're going to put a halt. And while there has been um, legal challenges um, and to those states, again, and they're paying legal challenges to remain open, saying that abortion isn't essential, saying that clinics should be giving their PPE to um, actual health care providers. And it's like you talk to anybody who's had an abortion, they'll tell you it's essential. You know, right. it's an elective procedure. Every medical procedure is elected. Nobody has an involuntary heart transplant. You sign a waiver, you give your permission. Unless you're wheeled in from an accident and somebody has to go in, like every piece of surgery is elective. So, you know, it's hot button and it's terrible and they're creating a health crisis on top of a health crisis by not allowing access to abortion and by not allowing people to have telemedicine. For God's sakes, you can easily have an early abortion, have telemedicine, get a, get an exam. Have a, well, have why, a, why, have why can't you have telemedicine? For abortion? Because the um, psychos that run our um, FDA for years have put abortion medication into a classification called REMS, um, I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but um, there's very few drugs in this classification. But it, they have said that it, abortion medication is a drug that can only be dispensed in the presence of a physician. Amazing. So it's absurd. Amazing. Yeah. Only a like, only country that has that of, of, of like where abortion is legal, you can go get abortion pills at, at the pharmacy in France and um, England. Yeah. So 92% of clinic members, people who work inside these clinics, 92% of them say they are, they need financial support. Yeah, they need financial support. I would assume the Paycheck Protection Act cares. There's no money coming from the city. Um, Every single clinic that I've talked to that has applied um, has heard nothing. Um, But thank God the Catholic Church is being wildly funded. I think we all feel really positive about that. I didn't know that. 9,000 churches were granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you should fucking have to pay taxes, at least. Be a business. Or maybe just don't have child rape settlements within your establishment in order to get, yeah, 
I think there was 14,000 churches and 9,000 of them have received assistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So where is it good? It's b- bad in Mississippi. How many where? abortion clinics are left in Mississippi? How many are left in Alabama? At one, I'm sorry, give me the numbers. One in Mississippi, three in Alabama, one in Arkansas. Um, and there's six, six or seven states that have one. West Virginia, um, Utah, North South Dakota, um, Mississippi, Kentucky, um, Missouri. Uh, I think I hit them all. But, um, and so it's really good in Oregon. And it's good in New York. But, I mean, good means good, that's pre-pandemic. Right. So in the states where it's good, uh, what they're, what, what's happening is now if people are forced to travel, like that, nobody wants that because it's there's a lot of hotels that aren't open. And a lot of times there's organizations and funds that help provide practical support for people traveling, helping them find hotels, helping them get transportation. Um, the hotels that would maybe be affordable, that were near the clinics that people would use, um, or the Airbnbs that people had set up, um, those are a lot of times no longer available and not open now. Um, and also people shouldn't be traveling during a pandemic. You shouldn't have to. Like right. There should be no reason that you should have to. And also uh, in, in states where uh, abortion is more accessible, there still is social distancing. There still is less appointments. You know, they're not able to take as many people because of keeping people safe and keeping people healthy. Explain and, why abortion is essential, because a lot of people have said, you know, the right wing will say this is not life-saving, this is not life-threatening. You can... <laughs> you can they- I would say that anything that would change and alter the life of you is... Um, is and, and that can happen for you is essential. Having an unintended pregnancy where you know that you can't um, possibly um, care and nurture that pregnancy um, when it is actually a child in your life, uh, it, being able to have the option to not uh, have to do that is essential. We, we uh, had Dr. Harriet Fraud on, and I screwed up, and I accidentally disconnected her. She is one of the founding mothers of, of women's liberation back in 1968. Things are better for women uh, when you compare uh, the conditions in 1968. But for abortion... I, would you say that in the past 10 years, it's much harder now? Yeah, yeah. The past 10 years have been as bad as it's been. Um, the conversation around abortion has been, for a lot of years, the conversation, the dialogue, the language we use, um, the, the social, the social um, ways we talk about it have been completely defined by the right. And it also hasn't been advocated for by supposed um, allies, human rights activists, people have lumped it as a wedge issue as, and not lumped it as when people are like, can't we compromise on abortion? I, 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 I'm, I'm literally saying, but what, what part would you like to compromise on? At what point do we say up until a point you have control of your body and then the government does? At what point? Who, who decides that? Right. Like, I feel like if you're going to put people's bodies into the hands of someone other than those people, 
then I really don't want to hear about your progressive values or your radical values or your values at all because right. you have decided that someone has even this much less value than someone else. And I'm, I'm not here for it. We're talking with Liz Winstead and thanks to Zoom and telephones and invitations, we have some people sitting in. Listeners to the show have, uh, RSVP'd, and, and they're actually watching us as we record this segment for my show. If you have a question for Liz Winstead, raise your hand, uh, and uh, we will get to you. I wanted to ask you about Air America and the current state of radio, because I, besides creating The Daily Show, you created Air America, which may, have, <laughs> which may have had a bigger impact on the conversation, or as big, as the Daily Show. We'll get to that in a second. Very quickly, March 4th, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on, I believe it's called June Medical v. Russo. Yes, and we can talk about that. We can also talk about the case that they heard um, Monday. The okay. Case. Do me a favor, because mm -hmm. some people don't follow this story as closely as others. This case, June Medical v. Russo, deals with admitting privileges yes so explain what admitting privileges is and how it's a, a way in through the back door to get rid yes. of abortion well there's yeah i will explain two things because the case has two things i will first explain the admitting privileges piece and then i'm going to explain to you the um the standing piece which is uh, a secondary piece that doesn't get talked about enough in this case that's super important so admitting privileges is one of these um, fake ass laws that they've created, like, you know, your clinic has to have hallways this wide for a gurney so that a, for, so that an ambulance can come in, but there's no ambulances that come. So the admitting privileges is one of these cases, is one of these uh, laws. And basically what they say is, if you are a doctor that provides abortion, you need to have admitting privileges to a hospital within 30 miles if something goes wrong with the abortion. Now, a couple things about that. One, if something goes wrong with an abortion, a hospital has to admit you. It doesn't matter whether or not the doctor is providing it. But the bigger part is the way, and then people always go, oh, and if it's a Catholic hospital, which, yeah, you know, religious hospitals aren't going to give you admitting privileges if they don't believe in abortion. But the bigger thing is the way that you get admitting privileges is that you have to show the hospital that you will provide a caseload of patients and that you need it. So because you, to get admitting privileges, it means the hospital is taking you on partially with their insurance. Abortion is so safe that there hasn't been a doctor that provides abortions that can show they need the admitting privileges uh, because they don't, there's no cases or very few cases where people are admitted. So then they're denied the admitting privileges to the hospital, and therefore the clinic can't provide abortion because the doctor was denied the admitting privileges because he can't get them because abortion's so safe. Right. So it's it's a trap. And the thing about this that feels so crazy and disingenuous, three years ago the Supreme Court ruled that admitting this very case – this exact same case, different name, not a word has changed, that these came out of Texas instead of Louisiana, that these 
that admitting privileges was unconstitutional. And it was simply a barrier um, set up by the government. And so to have it happen three years later that the circuit courts of appeals just said, we don't give a shit that the Supreme Court struck this down. When it comes through us, we're going to just say it's fine mm-hmm. and let it go through um, so that the Supreme Court has to decide it's terrible. Now, the second part of the case is a case on standing. And the second part of the case that the Supreme Court also heard was whether or not a clinic has the standing to sue on behalf of patients. Because these laws come through um, and the clinics are suing on behalf of patients because a person seeking an abortion doesn't have the wherewithal to sue on behalf of these crazy laws. And um, in order to sue, if a law is affecting you in some way, um, you know, it takes a process to get it through the court system. And if you're pregnant and need an abortion and you bring a lawsuit, guess what? Uh, it takes about three years to get to the Supreme Court, and pregnancy takes nine months. So um, how they'll rule on that, um, the people who are smarter than I have said that they don't think that they are going to uphold standing because it just seems so ludicrous to think that, um, you know, how could they how could they say that a clinic can't sue on behalf of a patient? The clinic has a vested interest as in their patients getting care and in themselves being able to provide that care. So it's pretty ludicrous, but they tacked that on and threw it in. Let's go to Jody in Great Britain. Hello, Jody. What is oh, your question hi. for Liz Winstead, creator of The Daily Show and Air America? <laughs> Jeez. Uh, okay, I, I just uh, I just lost my bottle. Sorry. You lost your what? I, I just lost it. I lost my bottle. That's what they say here in in England. Oh, oh no. you lost your train of thought. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally but, lost it. Sorry. That's okay. Oh, bummer. Sorry, I know it's a big bummer. I think I, I I I was too uh, bombastic in my introduction of Liz, and I think I lost my bottle. That's a good term. I like it. I lost my bottle. Yeah, I'll have to use yeah. it. Yeah. I'm going to start saying that, too. If, if, it, if it comes back to you, Jody, uh, let me know. Air America and the plight of free speech here in the United oh. States. Air America. That was, um, that was the saddest, exciting, most exciting time of my life. I you, mean, you gave us Al Franken. You gave us Mark Marin, Sam Cedar, Janine Garofalo, A. Whitney Brown, Jim Earl. Who am I leaving out? You. Rachel Maddow. Who? Rachel Maddow. What happened to Rachel? I don't know. It's sad. I mean, what happened to her ideologically? Because I loved her on Air America. And I do. And I, you know, don't call me. You know, now, MSNBC, up until recently, it was don't. Don't call me at nine. Rachel's on. Rachel's on. Rachel's on. But something's happened along the way over at MSNBC. I don't want to put you in an awkward position. Have we reached a point where you cannot have the conversation that needs to be had anymore? In other words, MSNBC at best will tell us what the problem is. But once we have to discuss the solution. They freak out. I think, yeah, I don't know that that's a, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to take Rachel out of the equation completely because I, um, I, I just, I'm feeling very frustrated. How did you find Rachel, by the way? 
I found Rachel because Rachel was really good friends with a friend of mine who moved to Western Massachusetts. And when I was, I was the program director. And when we were looking for a host, um, I had a thousand people send me tapes of people and they were like, I have a friend who's really talented. And I was like, everyone has a friend who's really talented, whatever. And I, and I said, but you can send me your tape. And so he sent me your tape and I didn't listen to it for a long time. And then we were whittling it down and there was like some bad slim pickings and I opened it up and I listened to it and I was like, Oh my God, this person's incredible. And then I called her and I said, do you want to come down and talk to me? And she hopped on the Peter Pan bus within an hour of our phone conversation and came down and we talked and we hit it off and um, talked about dogs and politics and a lot of stuff. And she ended up hosting the mid morning show. It was uh, Rachel and, Chuck D and I mm-hmm. had a show. Um, so now, was she a PhD student at the time? She has some no. back. She has a background in academic, an academic yeah, background. Yeah, she was. Um, she had done prison reform and AIDS work, um, but she's a Rhodes Scholar. She had been a Rhodes Scholar, done all that. She had come back from her education and was trying to figure out what she wanted to do, and um, and got won a radio contest to be a DJ at the local station in Western Mass called The Hump. And um, and that was, uh, she was great, and people loved her. And then Paul was, like, living up there and just knew her. And um, she's a Jill of all trades, and he was, you know, the, and so was Paul. So they were, like, doing lawn work and all this stuff together. And um, and then he said, you know, bring her down, try her out. And I did. And the rest is history. But what I would say is... Um, I, I'm frustrated with cable news as a whole. Uh, MSNBC, CNN, all of it. CNN's got its otherism problems, and MSNBC. Um, it's it's this repetitive nature of the same story over and over again, and I learn nothing. And um, when you look at what is happening in our world, and what is what's you know with, between Betsy DeVos getting Title IX and all this other stuff, between Scalia in labor. Um, giving away the farm and not helping small businesses and workers. That's and the son of Scalia. The son of Antonin Scalia is our labor secretary. That's the horror know. film, son of Scalia. Yes, yeah, son of Scalia. Um, you know, so all of the effects of what's happening to our environment, to all of our regulations, to everything else, um, to have a 24-hour news channel that is not devoted to solutions and, and asking asking something of its of its um viewers to be part of the solution. And I think that's the product of MSNBC being um, part of the system, a response to Fox rather than um, a progressive juggernaut that decided to put itself out there, you know, because what would it look like if it was that, if Mm -hmm. it was, if it was ideologically like amazing, um, Chris Matthews, wouldn't have lasted, you know, like who's on that network, it would look very different. Yeah. It would be a very different network. And so how does it work? The the other night uh, I was putting the show, I was putting Friday's show together. I had a little computer glitch and it took time to compress the audio. So I turned on MSNBC because you got to I want to see what they're up to. And it was 20 minutes about Trump's valet testing positive. That was it. That was it. Yeah. And I, 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 I got so angry. Yeah. I mean, it's very infuriating because it's like it, it's 
when you know information, it's kind of like we're back in the 90s again, right? Where it was like just, you know, one a story would break and then and then there was no more information about it, but you just kept telling us you were going to give us updates and then there was no updates. And it's also very triggering. You know, I watch in New York, we have New York One. Which is which great, is, by the way. I, and it's the local, and I watch it all day now. Yeah. And I watch it, I keep it on because... They do beautiful stories about community activists, you know, doing their part and helping out the neighborhoods. And the anchors are are just very pure of thought. And, um, you know, I read my news if I want in-depth news on things or listen to David Feldman's podcast. But, you know, it's like, but it's really, it gives me, it feels hopeful. And it's really dark right now. You know, yeah. things are really dark, and we're all dealing with a lot of really dark shit. Um, you know, we, we have a question. We, we have oh. to wrap it up, but we have a question. I should point out that Liz Winsett has an impeccable eye for talent, except except when The Daily Show was first starting out, she made two calls uh, to me and Louis Black. And... Uh, I was working at the time, and I was about to go on vacation to Lake Arrowhead, and I didn't follow up on your call. I know. That, uh, But that proves that Liz Wynn said, I mean, you don't always pick the right, but you. I remember you, you were one of the first, uh, I remember you calling me, and... Uh, I know we needed an Andy Rooney, and I was like, "Dude, what are you doing?" And you're like, uh, and you never called me back, and I was like, "I gotta go." You gotta I know. I, I was. Like, I can't you, wait for you. Here, here's it's, enough time has passed. Enough time. <laughs> I was fat and lazy. I was working on a show for HBO, and I was about to go on vacation to Lake Arrowhead with my family, and God punished me for being a. Uh, 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 a succubus to uh, the... Uh, you know, the, it was hard. I, I convinced people to leave the news business to come to a show that was making fun of it and they would never be able to go back. And they right. did. So yeah. yeah. That and Howie Klein once offered me AOC. This was two years ago. He says, she's not going to win, but do you want to interview her? I said, I don't have time. I, I have to have serious people on this show, Howie. And I, I screwed up, and I didn't have a one of the many regrets in my life. Let us now go to Invisible. Where are you, Invisible? I am in the 36th chamber of the Shaolin Temple. Right. Okay. And you're a cartoonist? Yeah, I actually am. To be discussed later. What is your question you, for Elizabeth? Liz Winston, <laughs> Liz, author of Liz Free or Die. Huge fan. Thank you for everything that you've done. Oh, you're welcome. And what do you have to say to Liz Winston? <laughs> <laughs> you too. I don't um, think I'm doing this right, Liz, am I? <laughs> this is not how you host a show. I feel like you're doing great. You know, I can't punch just, you, so you're uh, just awesome. just grab the guest's praises and take them for yourself. Right? <laughs> That's how it works. What is your What is your question uh, for Liz? Well, real quick, just just going back on to the abortion issue. Um, the point that you made about the, who has control over your body, either the government or you, I think is a point that we need to focus on a lot more, um, especially with the right, because, I mean, they only really do respond by fear. So if the fact is that the government can tell you that you can't have an abortion, that means that the government can actually force you to have abortions too, like kind of like how China was. Um, so I think, I think driving that in a lot more for their side, I mean, it's, it, 
it applies to both of us, and I think it'll open up their eyes. And like I said, they respond to fear. So, you know, I think that that's right. And, and um, just real quick, I know we have to go, but just talking about the birth control cases that have come. There was the Hobby Lobby case, and then there was a case expanding the Hobby Lobby case that the Supreme Court heard on Monday um, about whether or not uh, they can expand from the religious exemption that Hobby Lobby and religious organizations were given, where if you wanted birth control in your healthcare plan. Um, you could, you didn't have to pay for it or provide, you didn't have to pay for it, but you had to recommend where somebody could get it. And, um, and the little sisters of the poor and the Trump administration said that's even violating their religious clause by even having to recommend it, right? And so here we sit in a position where your boss, for any moral reason, um, the administration and the little sisters of the poor think they should be able to say, oh, um, Without any documentation or anything, I'm morally opposed to birth control, so I don't want to cover it in your healthcare plan. And it's like the same thing, where it's like, could they just say, "I think that you'd be a terrible parent, so I'm going to force you to go on birth control." Wow. <laughs> you know, so it's a lot. It's a lot, David. It is. Well, I hope you come back. And I have to say, you have you're a pioneer in radio and television. Do you feel this is different having these Zoom attendees? these people attending via Zoom and via phone, don't you find it energizes you? I love it so much. I love, um, you know, uh, radio is, of all of the things that I've done, you know, radio has been my favorite. It's so intimate and I and podcasting and, and this is a, you know, kind of like a radio show where, but you get to see folks now, right? And so to be able to have people pop on and ask a question and, uh, just re- to have conversations that are important. I think it's really humanizing, and I feel I feel really glad about it. So, um, yeah, anytime you want me to come on, I'm happy I, to come. I, I love this. By the way, the, the, the only way to see this, we're not streaming this on Facebook or YouTube. The only way to see us putting this show together is to go to davidfeldmanshow.com and get an invite to attend this via Zoom or by phone. We're not putting this up on YouTube or anything like that. Uh, so I should I should mention that. This is still audio, which is the most powerful medium there is. It's pre-literate. Uh, yes. Kind of like our White House, pre-literate. I mean, Liz Winstead. I know, so much. I wish it wasn't going because there's so much to talk about. I know. know. Well, to be, let's do it next week. Liz let's Winstead is week. the... Let, let's do it next week. Liz Winstead... I'm here. I'm around is the creator of The Daily Show and Air America. And how do you follow Liz Winstead on Twitter? So you can follow me at Liz Winstead. Um, and I spell my name with two Zs, David. I, um, I fixed and, it. Um, and then also, if you want to follow my organization, um, we are breaking news on all things that have to do with reproductive access rights and justice and we're super funny and we call out assholes um and that's at abortion i'm sorry at uh, yeah at abortion front on all social media tiktok everything liz Wynn said thank you so much can you stay on the line please thank you you're listening to the david feldman show you happy self-actualized hump
All right. I have invited listeners to attend the taping of this show via Zoom or by phone. And throughout the recording session, we've had people coming and going. And if you'd like to attend a taping of this show via Zoom or phone, go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Go to Office Hours and sign up and you'll get an invitation. All you have to do is RSVP and you'll get a link. No password required. We tape on Tuesdays and Thursdays. You can meet our guests, ask questions, and it's just a welcome addition to the show. It's it's kind of changed the way we do the show here. It's exciting. It's animating to look down and see people attending this via Zoom or phone. Let us take some questions from those of you in attendance. Nicholas. Hello, Nicholas. How are you doing, David? Good to hear your voice. Where are you talking to us from? Los Angeles. Okay. What's on your mind? What's on my mind is um, uh, a report that The Intercept wrote on May 5th and then The American Prospect wrote on May 7th about how Nancy Pelosi is trying to get into the next bailout bill business loans to private C6 equity nonprofit yeah C6 nonprofit organizations i.e. lobbyists and this is like from uh, the pharmaceutical what? industry yeah are you effing what yeah Lee Fang reported on it um, on May 5th and David Dan on uh, Prospect has also reported on it I thought it was and the private equity firms that were going to get bailed out. They're including um, they're including uh, lobbyist groups like the National Restaurant Association, pharmaceutical industry, as well as like the you know financial industry, because apparently they they need to you know they they need to be able the oil oil lobby because apparently they need to be paid as well. And it's not a small business being a lobbyist. That's incredible. All right, I will look into that. We should probably get a. Uh, you know, I had Lee Fang on years ago. He is one of the best out there. But yeah, I wanted to bring that to your attention because yeah. it's uh, beyond disgusting, and it seems like um, there's not a lot of organization around really protesting Pelosi. As she's been able to pretty much just do whatever she's wanted uh, over the last two months in the House, and there seems to be real no like actual agenda for people that really need support right now in this time. Unbelievable! Unbelievable! Thank you. Thank you. Let us now go to Richard. Hello, Richard. Hello, how are you doing? Good. Where are you calling from? I'm coming calling from East Brunswick, New Jersey. East Brunswick, New Jersey. I'm a New Jersey fella. And David Wilde, who was on the show earlier, who writes for Rolling Stone, he's from Tenafly, New Jersey. I think you guys are north of me. I'm more central, more near where Rutgers is. Yeah, yeah, near the Stress Factory, the comedy club. Yep. One question uh, we haven't heard from him in a while. How's Dr. Jay Sute doing? Yeah, I have to, uh, we'll put a call into him. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, that, was my, that was my question. I know he actually, I read last, not this past Sunday, it was about the, day, the week before they did a bit of a parade in the town by him. I read about that online, but uh, I hadn't heard, so I was just curious. Yeah, what a great man, Dr. Jay Sute. I, uh, yeah, okay, thank you for for that. Let us go to John Hayes, I believe, in Los Angeles, correct? Uh, yes. Uh, well, West Hollywood, technically. Um, okay. It is actually a separate city, but yes. it is within. 
Yeah. Anyway, um, I was gonna. I actually wrote this. I couldn't make a Q and A comment, but when you've talked about uh, the John Stewart program a few times, and I'm wondering, were you in the DGA? I mean, sorry, the WGA at that time? Yeah, I came in after they unionized, and it was ugly. It was an. It was a very ugly, ugly, ugly fight to get health care for the writers at the Daily Show. I was working someplace else. I came in once it was union. There was bad blood that stayed that way until he left. Just nobody was willing to come forward and talk about it. I did. I talked so, about it. The reason I asked is I was kind of confused as if it was a non-guild show that you would try to organize, but if you were already in the guild, could you... Could you could you be on a show like that without having repercussions or? Well, no, I, I that's why I didn't go on the show until it went guild. Until it was organized. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and and okay. so they tried to unionize, and John did the typical neoliberal horse crap. You know, I like the idea of unions in theory, but mm-hmm. I'm not so sure you need a union. Like yeah. you know, when Joe Biden's campaign wanted to unionize, you know, Bernie was the first campaign to unionize the campaign workers and then they got around to joe biden and he said well i'm all for campaign workers unionizing in theory but i like to think we treat our employees well enough that they don't need a union that's the argument they always give against paying a union wage and that's what john did and all i can tell you is you don't know the level of cowardice in hollywood until you deal with writers and Union officials, when it comes to taking on a plutocrat like John, and you know, I, the, the head of the Writers Guild told me he had never been spoken to the way John talked to him, and yet they keep their mouths shut. I, when I, I was interviewed for the oral history of the Daily Show, and uh, and I said, "You're not going to tell my story. John's writing the forward to this book. You're not going to tell the true story." He's controlling the narrative. And you heard Liz Winstead earlier. She created The Daily Show. And the museum, that that news museum that just went out of business, they refused to tell the real. As far as they're concerned, The Daily Show started when John took over. And they've completely neglected to tell the real story that Liz created The Daily Show. It's the bullies who write history. Yeah. I am in the, I am in IOTC, the crew union for Hollywood. So I do work in the industry myself and my own union has its issues. That's for sure. But I'd much rather be in a union than not overall. IOTC is pretty powerful and California is a pretty strong union state, which is why so many movies and television shows are filmed on location, right? Oh, I know my ex-wife's in the, in the, um, Costume Designers Guild, which is part of IATSE as well, and most of her jobs, she does big movies, and they shoot almost all of them out of state, but the only stuff we can get here in L.A. anymore for quite a while now is, you know, like a television series, and I think that's because actors don't want to be away from home for like nine months of the year, whereas in a movie, maybe a few months, and it's not such a big commitment. And then if a show goes on for years, they're stuck out of their actual home. doesn't really seem to exist anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's home. the question that you have to ask the liberals of Hollywood. You have to ask the the Rob Reiners, even the Sean Penns, why are you filming in Louisiana and not California? What's going on? 
Why are you making these movies on location to to capture the authenticity of the story? Or is it because you're working in a right to work state where you don't have to pay union wages or you're getting tax breaks? I know this quite well. The Canadians started it in the 90s. Um, they, they were the ones initiated on a big scale. And then the states started doing it amongst each other. So they're competing for the who can give out the biggest kickbacks. And it's a downward spiral of corporate wealth fair, W-E-A-L-T-H-F-A-R-E. That's what I call it. I've worked on a couple of location shoots, not many, but we shot in Louisiana a few times. And one movie I worked on there, which was a big production, um, they had to rewrite the script because it was part of it was uh, involving France, but they had to rewrite it for China because they got money from China, which is right. a separate issue from the tax breaks and the subsidies. But yeah, I, I, I get to see that aspect of it, too. Yeah. How are you holding up with the, the city, the town, the industry shut down? Um, well, thankfully, I um, the unemployment thing, the bonus they gave us is helping a lot. And um, I took early retirement. Uh, so I still can work, but luckily enough, I can also get a reduced pension. So between those things, you know, I'm getting by. How do they make movies? How do they bring back television? You know, you work so intimately on top of one another. How can you make a, a television show or a movie with this virus? There's um, there's a lot of discussion about that, and there. Somebody in in my union wrote a post about Tyler Perry, like keeping his crew in Atlanta in kind of a confined situation where they're kind of on lockdown on the stage or around the area or something. I don't oh, know. That doesn't true. surprise me. I, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised <laughs> if he didn't set up detention centers for his workers. I mean, Tyler Perry is anti-union. Tyler yeah. Perry set up those studios in Atlanta because Georgia is a right-to-work state. Look up Tyler Perry and what he owes his workers and 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 uh, wage theft. Tyler Perry and the Democratic Party held its MSNBC debate in Georgia at the Tyler Perry Studios. This was, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, right. Yeah, you couple, mentioned that. Yeah, a couple of months ago, no one had the courage to say, you know, we're in a... We're in a right-to-work state. Not only that, but the Tyler Perry studios are anti-union. They will sit, you know, Joe Biden and all those candidates, including Bernie. Bernie didn't even bring it up. They all talk about how we need unions. We need unions. And yet, there they are, agreeing to debate at the Tyler Perry studios. And he, Tyler Perry is a notorious union buster. That's why he set up shop in Georgia. And yet he's in the Screen Actors Guild, and I assume Directors and Writers Guild as well. I don't know. But oh, and he'll collect all, yes, he'll collect all those benefits, and he'll have a, a nice pension. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, for what it's worth, the IATSE also does, the shoots I worked on in Louisiana, and most of the shoots in Atlanta are also IATSE and WGA, SAG, blah, blah, blah. But there's definitely, the there's still a, a non-union contingent in California as well, so yeah, explain to, be, to our listeners what IATSE is. It's one of the IATSE older unions, right? It's the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stage Employees. It was started, I believe, in the late 1800s. It covered live venues because it was before movies and television. So, Are the Simpson still, writers members of IATSE? Uh, it's animators, the yeah. animators. I don't know about the writers. I think, I think they I do think. have a some kind of a – they're not – 
technically W. I don't know. I don't I'm not think sure the Simpsons. I don't think the Simpsons. I, I, or maybe they just joined the Writers Guild. I think for the, they were non-union for for decades, or yeah, not, at least I, not, not Writers Guild. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It was something else, but I don't remember what it was. There's some kind of animation guild, and I don't know if that covers just technicians and writers. I have no idea for sure. Yeah. But. Well, we should learn more about unions, and I'm trying to do that on this show. Have you heard from Liam Mack? Weren't you the one who went to Liam's yes. show? Yes, that was me. The last stand-up comedy show I've been to. <laughs> I haven't heard anything from him. I called Liam. I called <laughs> Liam, and uh, he won't... He, he won't return my calls, and I blame, I blame this guy, Jesse. I don't know why. Hey, Jesse, you got. I, I blame you for Liam leaving the show, Jesse. <laughs> where you Where you calling from? Uh, Richmond, Virginia. Richmond, I blame you. I, I suspect yeah. you're a Bernie bro, and <laughs> Liam came on this show and mocked Medicare for all, and you and your ultra lefty minions. Just attacked him personally, and he could no longer take it. That's what happened. I'll accept the blame. All right. What's on your mind, Jesse? (laughs) I can't get my head around it, but I can't understand why uh, Trump and and his party aren't cashing in on bring uh, the Defense Act and bringing jobs back to America because everybody sent their jobs overseas. You're talking about the Defense Production Act. Right, right. Right, See, yeah, so he, where he would order companies, all right, you're making ventilators, and you're going to make right. Lysol. So, uh, I can't get Lysol, by the way. I can't either. <laughs> but I just, why aren't they doubling down on the fact that the Obama administration or whoever sent all these jobs to China, so we need to buy back masks from China, and we should be making these masks here. Uh, or is it just going down the rat hole of, oh, well, he owes money to China, and so he's just kind of walking this razor wire? I, I, I can't get my head around how to phrase the question. So you're wondering why Donald Trump doesn't use the Defense Production Act to order a, a company to bring manufacturing jobs back to the United States right. and make the masks, the PPEs. And I think the answer is, ideologically, they would be opposed to the federal government ordering a corporation to do anything. It's the other way right. around with the Republicans. The corporations order the, the government to do things. They just don't want to be in the business of being in business. That's the Republicans, right. and to some degree, the Democrats. They think it sets a bad precedent where the government starts seizing industry and and telling the, the captains of industry what to do. I, I guess that happened under Truman during the Korean War, uh, the Youngstown ruling, the Supreme Court ruled on that, and they said that Truman couldn't seize certain companies and... I guess it's yeah. not so it's not so simple to just order a corporation to do their patriotic duty but yeah it's all profits. Right. I mean when you hear Andrew Cuomo talking about ventilators people are dying and he's saying I can't get my hands on ventilators because we're competing with other states. So the ventilator people they're not in the business of making you breathe they're 
in the business of filling their money sacks, not your lung sacks. <laughs> and so it's there was a great story in the New York Times about this, that under the Obama administration, they knew that a SARS-like virus was coming our way. And they put up money, the Obama administration, I think the CDC put out contracts for ventilators. This was like seven years ago. And they found a small firm in Southern California, I think it was Torrance, that made a cheap ventilator, an inexpensive ventilator for about $5,000, I think even less. And they got a big government contract to start mass producing low-cost ventilators in anticipation of what we're going through right now. That's good governing. That's what the Democrats bring to Washington. That's one of the only good things they bring to Washington. And so this company had the contract to manufacture cheap ventilators that came in under $5,000. Well, eventually they got bought out by a bigger medical supply company that manufactured ventilators that cost $20,000. And that company didn't want cheap ventilators. We're in the business of selling expensive ventilators, not cheap ventilators. And they returned the government's money. They said, no, we're not. We're canceling this contract. We're not going to make these cheap ventilators. So when the profit motive is at play when it comes to our health, we're screwed. We're, we're screwed. I mean, there's certain industries that just have to be nationalized. Certain industries should not be for profit. The profit motive doesn't fix things. It just makes people rich in certain instances. I mean, you know, I think the profit motive works in industries where it's all about making a profit, but it should not be taking place inside hospitals. I mean, that's just, it doesn't work. And, and the numbers bear out. I mean, we talked about this with Harriet Fraud. Globally, the average death rate for COVID-19 is 34 people per million residents. And in the United States, six times higher, 232 people per million die from COVID-19. The for-profit health care system kills. We pay more than anybody else for our health care, and we get the worst returns. It's a disaster. It's an absolute disaster. All right, Jesse, I'm going to say goodbye to you and let us say hello to David. Hello, David. Where are you calling from? I'm fr I'm in Bath, England. Bath, England. Bath, England. Yes. Wow. Yeah, I was wondering if you had uh, the statistics for the UK there on that list. The list. I think we're pretty bad as well per million. I, I don't have it. Yeah, I mean, that's oh, okay. the, the Boris Johnson. Yeah, I think, obviously, we don't have as many deaths as you, but per million, I think it's pretty damn bad. I know it's you have a shortage of ventilators. I know you have a shortage of PPEs. I know you are, you, have enough, you have enough beds. You're not testing because you're being run by uh, <laughs> the, the Brexit people. It's the same problem. It's ideological. I was trying to explain this to my dad. Boris Johnson's cabinet is made up of Ayn Rand, devotees, and lunatics, much like the Trump admin. So eugenicists. We uh, one of 
our callers is from Seaham Lane, and he was talking about the eugenicists who Boris mm-hmm. Johnson surrounds himself with, and yeah, and and the thing that I find terrifying when we read that <laughs> Boris Johnson contracts the virus. <laughs> the immediate thing is, ah, that'll show him. And now you read that Mike Pence's press secretary, who's married to Stephen Miller, she's got the virus. And now you read that, that Trump's valet has the virus and that Ivanka's personal assistant has the virus. And I hear my friends saying, ah, now they're going to wake up. Now they're going to wake up. No, what happens is they get the virus and these people believe in survival of the species, the survival of the get, fittest. The best treatment. I'm sorry? You get the best treatment, which they mistake for, you know, well, I'm obviously fit, so that's why I made it. You know, it's not that you just had the best treatment available and everything like that. Yeah. Boris, Boris they get the best waiting. treatment. They get tested. The White House, Donald Trump is getting tested every day. So is Mike Pence. Boris Johnson is getting tested. They get the best treatment when they get sick. They come out of it and they think because they're eugenicists, because they believe in survival of the fittest. I survived COVID-19. It's not that bad. Why can't you survive it? Mm. That's what that's what they believe. Don't you think? Did you? There was this great thing. You know, people have been posting like um, photos of their bookshelves and things like that. Well, Michael Gove's wife posted a picture of their bookshelf at home, and uh, people just sort of combed through it all, and they found there were books from, like, David Irving, Holocaust Denier. and David um, Irving. Whose bookshelf was David Irving on? Uh, Michael Gove. Who was he? He used to be our education secretary. He's in Johnson's cabinet. Is he the eugenicist who who had to leave? I don't know if he's, it's not explicitly a eugenicist, but it's bookshelf. It could have belonged to Steve Bannon. I mean, it, right. was, it was just full of stuff, you know, from Ayn Rand to Holocaust deniers to, and it had the bell curve on. Right. You know, which is that Douglas Murray book, which makes the case for, you know, what, what they now call race realism. Right. You know, the, the, the idea that black people have lower IQs because of, genetic inferiority. So, yeah, it's basically eugenicist. You know, an argument could be made. David Irving is a world-class Holocaust yeah. denier. He and, he and you know what's amazing, right? After two years of the whole Corbyn anti-Semitism thing, the same journalists that have been hounding the Labour Party for years have now turned around and said, oh, stop going after Go because of what's on his bookshelf. We live in a free society and all this stuff. And it's like... Hang on, this is like really bad stuff. And no one's saying, you know, we should ban him from owning the book. But what they are saying is, hey, look, we've got some eugenicists in the government. <laughs> right, right. Um, uh, thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for that's That's really interesting. I should yeah. get uh, Corey Brettschneider. He said he would come on the show. Corey is a constitutional law professor, and he says the solution to bad speech is more speech and when you think of the 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 laws in Europe regarding Holocaust denial, you know you can be arrested. David Irving uh, went on trial for denying the Holocaust. It kind of speaks to Corey's argument that the solution, the remedy to bad speech, is more speech because 
you know, you can ban speech, but it doesn't go away. There's look, look at Boris Johnson becoming prime minister. Look at the rise of these eugenicists, these Brexiteers. So I have no quarrel with banning. Well, I don't want to ban speech, but I've always said that the Europeans were more civilized when it comes to speech. But when you look at what's happening in Europe, banning speech doesn't seem to protect people from that speech. Let us go to Faud. Did I pronounce it properly? It's Faud, actually. Faud. Yep. Were you? I'm in Seattle. I, and uh, I hear crickets. Uh, Are those crickets? Yes, I'm on my deck right now. So. <laughs> oh, I thought I told a joke. Usually I hear crickets when I tell a joke. <laughs> so I have a, a correction for you. It's actually U.S. is seven times higher than the average 34. Because that's I said six times seven higher. Years. Yeah, it's over seven times higher than the world. And yeah, in terms of the number of yep. people who have died from the coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. And then I have a comment about your floral chair. Okay. People have been chatting but, but, about. Yeah, hang on. In but the chat. Hang, hang on before you get to my floral chair. The listeners can't see the floral chair. I I know, but. All the people that are listening right now can see it. Yeah, but we're doing this show for my podcast listeners. This is your. I just have a question: Is that the only thing left from your divorce settlement? <laughs> there used to be. <laughs> there used to be more. Purpose to you. There used to be more flowers on that floral <laughs> print, and yeah. Uh, are you going through a divorce? No, I'm not, but I'm uh, getting close. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> two months with your wife? Uh, not easy. Two months with my wife? No, my wife. Oh, okay. Yeah. My question is... Uh, well, hang on. Before you get to your question. Okay. You live in Seattle. That was the yes. that was ground zero for COVID-19 at one time. Yes. Has it reopened? Is Seattle... Mm, so, uh, Jay Inslee has a phased reopening plan, and we are doing phase one right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm uh, I I work in pre-construction and uh, most of our sites were closed and now all of them are back open with the whole social distancing and uh, uh, getting everybody's temperature before they walk into the site and providing sanitizer and all the, all that good stuff. We don't know when phase two is going to be, which is mostly recreational uh, activities are going to be allowed for people less than five, I believe. So, okay. uh, yeah, we are going. Uh, and can you get tested? Because right now. now in New York, I'm being told that they've opened up about 12 testing centers. I'm thinking of going in and getting tested. I have no idea. I've been in my house since March 10th. Uh-huh. So I just go to the grocery store and come back. That's it. Do you exercise? I go outside. I see young people without masks. Yeah, my wife and I, we go on walks around the house. And, uh, yeah, you can totally see Fox News people. Uh, just by the way they act, they come close, they don't, uh, they're running and they don't have anything on their face and they're just spewing all the stuff in the air. So you, yeah, you can definitely see people that are not, the, even in grocery stores, you see mostly young people, but I've seen some old folks too that are just like, I don't know, they don't give a shit, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Or they're listening to Fox News. Yeah. And we are. What is your, so what is your uh, other question or statement? 
Okay, my question is, since Henry introduced you to Dr. Harriet Fraud, I was wondering if you've ever reached out to her husband, uh, Richard Wolf. He's a Marxist economist, and I would love to have him, you talking to him and interviewing him. Yeah, I don't think so. Just because we have Dr. Fraud on, and I think she's, uh, you know, eventually I would want to have her husband on, but uh, I don't bring up the fact that she's married to Richard Wolf. I don't think she likes to trade on that. She's no. You can go through Michael Brooks and try to have him on, not through Dr. Harry. I, I would like to have them both on, but for some reason, I I feel if I'm having her on, uh, and he, uh, her, the husband, gets plenty of attention. But yeah, I, I, I eventually I will probably get. I think she's she's amazing. I don't know if she's going to come back after today's show because I disconnected <laughs> Probably her. Not. Were you there when I disconnected her? Yes, I was, and I was listening so uh, – I had I stopped working, and I started listening to her, and then, bam, you hung up. And I was like, what the hell? I know, I know. It was one of those moments where it was really going well, and I thought, this is how I want to do the show. I want to do a block of time, have the guests. Hang up on people? Well, no, no, no. I was. I thought this is working. Start the show, start taping, have a block of time, you know, a four-hour window where the guests come and go, and we can have an audience. I mean, we have an audience right now. And I yeah, thought this, this is awesome. Yeah, and it's, and it's exciting because it energizes the guests. And I got so excited, and I went to mute a speaker, but not a guest. And then I disconnected Dr. Harriet Fraud. So I have to write her a note. But I love having people sitting in and attending the taping of the show. It's a small group, and we're not going to put this on YouTube. We're not going to put it on. It, it's just for Zoom so people can sit in on the taping and participate. And it, it's it's pretty amazing. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, David. Let's go to Rich. Rich Brown. Is this the Rich Brown? Rich Brown? There's a Rich Brown that I know from comedy who was in the Farrelly Brothers movie. Unmute now. Yeah, are you the Rich Brown who the Farrelly Brothers... Yeah, hey, David. Is this the hey, Rich Brown? Doing, yeah. How you doing, man? Hey, it's good to hear your voice. You, uh, you, you are, uh, you were in a Farrelly Brothers movie where you played a man with the world's smallest penis, I believe, right? Yeah, I got that, uh, not through any writing or anything like that. They just, uh, they, they, uh, you know, I'm not packing much. <laughs> <laughs> what was the movie you were in? Hall Pass. Hall Pass. I, I played the guy with the smallest, uh, smallest penis in the world. <laughs> And it was just that was just movie magic, Dave. Yeah. Um, that wasn't me. It was there was a prosthetic penis about a half inch long, mm -hmm. and it was hollow on the inside. And I just put that over my erection. I thought you were going to say, and it felt great. I've I never felt bigger. <laughs> it was nice. It was nice. It was a nice prosthetic. We were friends. Now, weren't you once attacked by a walrus in Santa Monica? Weren't you walking? Seal. Well, I'm sorry. We got a lot of walruses in Los Angeles. But yeah, I was uh, I was walking home from Barney's Beanery, 
and uh, along the water, and uh, I had the headphones on, and I, I swear, I know this. You, we talked about this on your podcast mm-hmm. once, and uh, it sounds crazy to have a walrus on the beach, but it had a mustache. <laughs> Which I think constitutes a walrus. I almost got into. I almost got killed. I almost walked got into a fight with this thing. I'm just walking along, take the headphones off. All of a sudden, there's this walrus barking at me, and it's pissed. I got out of there. <laughs> it was pretty. Yeah, by by. It was two. In, it was two in the morning. You know what I mean? Yeah, my children and I have borrowed one of your bits. Do you know what That's it is? Fine with me. Which one? Well, Rich is a great stand-up, and they used to come and watch you perform. The bit about telling your father that you loved him. Do you remember that? <laughs> no. R- no. Rich said, <laughs> this is, I, I haven't seen this bit in 10 years, but my father was emotionally distant. I remember I said, Dad, I love you. And he said, no problem. <laughs> No problem. So whenever I say to my kids, I love you, they go, no problem. I hate that no problem. Uh, I'm glad to be at the Feldman table there. That's cool. Yeah, you were there. Love your uh, your kids. Love your kids. you got beautiful kids. They, you know, take after their mom. I'll say that. (laughs) All right, Rich, it's good to hear your voice. It's good to hear you. Hear you, Dave. Yeah, I'll talk to you uh, when we're done. We'll we'll catch up. Thank you, Rich. Rich is a very funny comedian and comedy writer. One of the more quotable comics. We're going to take a, a quick break. When we come back, we are joined by Professor Harvey J. K. Let us now go to Green Bay, Wisconsin, where Professor Harvey J.K. is standing by. He is the Ben and Joyce Rosenberg Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. And he is the author of some amazing books that I've read, some I haven't gotten to yet. The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great. If you want to learn about Franklin Delano Roosevelt. This is and the greatest generation and the great your grandparents pick up this book. Take hold of our history. Make America radical again. Published by Zero Books and this book, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, which we're going to get to next week. Professor K's latest book. You are prolific. FDR on democracy. The greatest speeches and writings of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Welcome back, Professor Harvey J.K. Thank you, David. It's been a long time. What is it, like uh, three evenings, two evenings since we last communicated? Yes, yes. And for all of you who are listening, i got to tell you, I, it was, we started at 9 o'clock New York time, and at midnight, having done three hours, David said to everyone, and by that time, I think we had gone from like 100 to 130, then we came down a bit, but it was a lot of people. David said, you know, we're entering the third hour. <laughs> he so enjoys it, and he can't even, he, it didn't even occur to him, he was entering the fourth hour. 
Yes. And I, I stayed on for the fourth hour thinking, okay, how much longer, you know. And I understand it went a good two hours beyond the fourth hour. We're, he's, the professor's talking about office hours, Friday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern, where the guests of the David Feldman Show get to mingle with the listeners without getting uncomfortably close or awkward. It's just a lot of fun. And, and yeah, if any of you have yet to do that, although I have a feeling I'm seeing a lot of names of people I know, um, you should definitely join us Friday night. We are doing it again Friday evening. Right? I, yes. And good, I, good, I, good, I thought... Here, but we we, I don't want to waste your time, but uh, you did. I, I'm being with you is a pleasure, as all these people can tell. Yes, and and we have some of our listeners in attendance today, and they're going to ask Professor Harvey J.K. questions about anything: Thomas Paine, Franklin Roosevelt, David Brooks, Thomas Friedman, Joe. Yeah, Bun- let, let's not do Thomas Paine tonight. All right, we'll wait for yes, because I, that's that's something where you get me going. And, it's like we'll be here till Friday night. So, so wait till next. Let me talk about office hours because I, I, yeah, let's. I was watching you, watching and participating. I think that was our fourth one, maybe our fifth. Fourth. It was our fifth. fourth. Maybe fifth. It was fourth or fifth. I lost track. It did feel because of the nature of the COVID nineteen epidemic and the economy. This. This last one felt like something you would see at the height of the Great Depression, didn't it? It, it felt. It, it, yeah, I have to. I will tell you. I feel like each week gets better and better. And Friday, and one of the things I don't know if you notice that I'm I'm very I'm I'm very keen on it because I learn a lot. Mm-hmm. In spite of the relaxed atmosphere, I learn a lot. And it, it it has a ring. It has a kind of, and it's very, doing pretty much the kind of stuff I called for several, several weeks ago on various shows. It really did provide, this is a strange word to you. Remember the word variety? Yes. Yes. Not diversity, variety. Right. Okay. Variety, well, that's that magazine newspaper, right, of right. entertainment and all that. And it really, I mean, we started off with, uh, with Reverend Barry Lynn's, Invocation, is that what they call it? Invocation. Yeah, I call it a convocation. Just I think that's a good word, in fact. Yeah. The whole event is a convocation. Yes. Um, and then we had, we, had a, we had the trumpeter. Yeah. The retired music professor from North Texas State University. A bro- he teaches. Well, let me just interrupt you for one second. This is what yeah. is so amazing about the office hours. You meet the listeners and you discover that they are anything but sad, pathetic humps, as I like to. So yeah. one of the, uh, Professor Steinel is a jazz historian. Yeah. He teaches the history of jazz in yeah. Texas. He just retired. So he played some Charlie Parker and talked about it. And then you, you discover that there, there, there's a philosophy professor there who doesn't say a word. There are all these teachers. And as the evening goes on, you discover that everybody there... It is everybody there as a story as a story yes like for example Ronan who's from who's who spends the entire all-nighter with us yeah right is a courier right and he delivers for the foreign office passports to people yes okay. and then is it Lane who's the fellow who's uh, is it Lane Lane, Lane? Yeah, Lane, yeah, Lane. Lane Lane who who obviously sort of revealed he had some health problems I guess in recent years 
But well, everybody, everybody who listens to the show has mental health problems. Yeah. Right? Goes and then there was the guy who fell asleep yes. on his own on his bed. Yes. And we could, and it was like a sidebar of tossing and turning occasionally. I, I, and then the, and then what's it, Professor Vertolin? Is that how Jennifer Vertolin? Jennifer Vertolin and, and Mark, the animal Mark, psychologist. Yeah, and it's what's interesting about it is the first. I, I like the idea, and then we'll move on. I like yeah. the idea of a, a rigid 30 to 45 minutes up front where we prepare something and we get a conversation going. Yeah. But then what's interesting is you, you take a look at everybody in attendance and they throw in and you can also see where they are. So we've had. We see newborn goats. Yeah. Newborn chicks. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I say that without any sexist reference. Right. Okay. And newborn and then cocks. A, and Emilio, Emilio's minutes. Okay, He's uh-huh. a, he may be a CPA, but the CPA <laughs> has a comic streak. I think. Right, right. It's a. It is an interesting pivot. Yeah. And an opportunity to uh, meet the listeners, and they're interesting, or at least the ones who show up for office hours and our tapings. If you would like to attend. Mm-hmm. A taping with Professor Harvey J.K. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the office hours button, sign up. You'll get a link sent to you, and you can attend via Zoom or by phone, and you can lurk perchance to dream. What, what, what did we come up with last week? Something like that. Something like that. All and, right. then, and, that and then there was one other thing. Hold on. Wait. Something, something else about Friday night. Damn. Well, they get oh. progressively drunker and stoned. I like to watch the young <laughs> attendees. Oh, then oh, Connor and his yeah, master Connor <laughs> from Maryland. Yeah. That's right. He has a, and his brother who who sweeps the floors for the CIA or yeah, something. like that. I don't that, think right? he's allowed to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just I like to watch the young kids. It's Friday night, and they drink. Oh, he was breaking boards on his head. Yeah. He's, a, he, yeah. he's a Taekwondo guy. Yeah, he teaches. He te- they, yeah. Drinking with and smoking with reckless abandon, to be that young in the middle of a financial collapse and a pandemic, the only solution, if you're not an alcoholic, is to drink a little, drink a little more. Well, Professor K, if anybody has a question for the great professor, raise your hand. We'll get to all your questions, and I will not hog the professor. But what is your feeling about this pandemic? A week has passed since we last talked. On this show. Yeah. yeah. What, what do you think is... Well, I can tell you that today I had the educational pleasure and personal displeasure of listening to the majority report. And um, Mark Blythe, is that how they pronounce his name? An economist from... Is it Mark Blythe? I, I don't know. Thing, Mark? Um, from Brown University, who's a Scotsman, I believe, okay. originally in, in this country. And he's, 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 a, he's actually a brilliant economist in the sense that he can talk to people about economics without putting them to sleep. And uh, it was a very depressing set of conversations. I mean, really, and there's not no immediate hope. Um, people are, are fooling themselves. But the worst thing about this is the fact that we have a moron in the White House who is bolstered by a crew of truly, truly reactionary idiots in, in, the, in the Senate. Um, 
And then, and those are the Democrats, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on for one second. Hang on. Uh, I... <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, the Democrats are an utter failure. I mean, they truly are. The Republicans are the, are the ones I was referring to, but yeah. the, the Democrats are an utter failure. When you think about what they've allowed Trump to put into law, what they've allowed the Republicans to put into law, they, you know, we used to talk about Obama didn't know how to negotiate. He gave away everything before he even began to negotiate. So I think that's now the Democratic disease, basically. Okay. Do we have any leadership in the Democratic Party? Because the thing the, only, that, the best leadership in the Democratic Party are the ones that most of the other Democrats are afraid of. Uh, Bernie Sanders, who's unfortunately withdrawn, the squad, who they'd be more than they'd be more than happy to see lose their seats in Congress this time in 2020. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's some there. There were good people. I don't, but I think. I think Pelosi has just shut down a lot of people. For and for what I don't know, I mean, maybe her ice cream's running out. I just don't know. The economy. We're looking at an adult population where fifty-one point three percent of adults are out of work. That's the lowest on record. I mean, the hot. The hot wait, what? Fifty-one percent of, of adults in America are are without work right now. With, are out of work. Yeah, which also means a, 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 a plurality, you know, a goodly number of those people have also lost their health insurance. Right. Okay. And nobody, and, uh, and, and the Democratic Party, Joe Biden, where are they on this? Where are they? Well, you know, it's funny, just for anyone who's interested, there was an article I read today in New York Magazine, which was very favorably disposed to Joe Biden, saying that we're missing out on the degree to which He's moving left. And then I watched a segment or two of Hill TV Live with uh, Crystal Ball, and you can tell tell what they've got to say when they basically tell you that he's he's reaching out to to conservatives as ever and probably kicking the left in the teeth by way of the folks he's calling into his campaign. So I don't know. I mean, they just are – the Democrats are just so utterly, utterly dismal. And um, we can only hope that that Trump could it, it's painful for everyone else. But the more Trump self, I just hope the self-destruction takes place. Look, I mean, <sighs> self-destruction. So, you know, Ben Burgess talks about accelerationism, this yeah. idea that things are going to get so bad with the, the Trump administration that we're going to come to our senses and vote in a Democrat. But, Which will come first, the accelerationism or Trump and Pence coming down with the virus? Because it's in the White House now. Yeah. Okay, so if Katie Miller has it, and she was with Pence's team, right? And she's married to mean, Stephen Miller, which means you can it get means, it from a lizard. Unless they don't sleep together or something. Right. It means otherwise that Stephen Miller must be having it. And Stephen Miller probably regularly is kissing Donald Trump's ass. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So there you go. Right. 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 So, well, here's the problem with that. We keep thinking since day one, since Trump came down the escalator and we discovered that 90 percent of the people who were in Trump Tower cheering him on when he declared his candidacy were actors. They were paid 50 dollars each when he called John McCain 
a guy who got caught and not a war hero. I mean, from since the beginning, this guy has been out. Yeah. And he doesn't disappear. And the the smartest people I know keep thinking, ah, this is it. This yeah. time, this is it. It's never it. Why is it never it? Why? Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good question, and I'm gonna, well, I'm going to stay away from the sort of psychological explanation, and because I, I want to deal with this in, in a kind of historical fashion, given what my field is, and I think we have to understand var- various things about these fa- past four decades. A lot of people that are probably on with us right now. Were, weren't even born when all of this began in the 1970s. When the show began today. <laughs> the last... <laughs> these are part of, these are the new young chicks and, yeah. uh, and, and, the and Chucks. And the chicks and Chucks is what they are. So, but here's, so the thing is that 45 years, the, 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 the notion of truth has been under siege, or at least the notion of, of civic and I'm going to use the word decency, and I don't mean civility in itself. I mean the fact that the struggles that culminated in the 60s for Medicare and Medicaid, for environmental protections and consumer protections and workplace protections, and most especially the struggle for civil rights and voting rights that culminated in the 60s. And what we thought in many ways, it's, people called it a second, re, a, a, a second civil war or a second reconstruction. It was like a second American revolution almost. That little did we realize the degree to which that the forces on the right, the forces of reaction, even though they were defeated, they, they, there were still those embers there. And they came back almost immediately in courtroom proce- proceedings, in moving from the Democrat into the Republican Party, in taking... Um, school kids out of public schools to avoid desegregation and placing them in not simply white academies, but Christian academies. In other words, so from the late 60s all the way through the 70s, there began this war, whether we call it a class war or a culture war, and what they did is they targeted just about every institution that represented what we would think of as modern liberalism, modern progressivism, modern social democracy. And even as they did that, they also aligned themselves with very wealthy forces of capitalism. I remember back in, in the 70s and into the 80s, there was talk of there were the, the cowboys and the, it was like there were two kinds of capitalists, sort of the old money and then there were the Western cowboy types. Right, symbolized right. By the Yankees, the Yankees and the cowboys. The Yankees and the cowboys. There was a great was book it. about that. Uh, yes, that thank they, you. Yeah, the, the, claiming that... John F. Kennedy was a Yankee who was killed by the Cowboys. That conspiracy. Go oh, ahead. I, that, that's why I didn't. I didn't go. But but it is the case that if you think about the, the nature of capitalism, maybe as the old money versus these Western sort of you know, uh, California, Arizona, that whole crew of capitalists. That somehow you know it was a different ethos, and that and that maybe the Southerners were able to align themselves more closely with these, these Western cowboy capitalists. By the way, there's a new book out by a really fine, fine uh, political historian, Heather Richardson, I believe is her name, up in, up, in, uh, up in New England, How the South Won the Civil War. And she doesn't mean in terms of 1865. She's talking about in decades following in which Southern reactionaries really did somehow end up ultimately merging with this sort of Western capitalist ethos. Hmm. And as a consequence, 
instead of having the South defeated, you get this resurrection. I mean, I'm, I haven't read the book yet, but this resurrection of all the most reactionary elements in, in American life, whether it has is, to do with if you look at if you look at America and compare it to the EU, yeah, it's about the same population. Uh, the EU, I think, is still smaller than the American economy. I think. Yeah, it's it's yes, but I believe so. yeah, but uh, I would think that America covers about the same amount of square miles yeah. as Europe. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I mean, it's interesting for people to realize how small Europe really is. And yet you can travel and there's a different way of thinking, a different way of governance in France than, say, Portugal or Spain. Is America yeah. unwieldy? Is it wieldy? Is it too big? Is that's, it, that's, an old, that is a, that's an interesting argument, which comes up every so often, especially when things are so regionally tense and vulgar as they are now. Um you know, as you say that, in the other direction, uh, Jefferson and others worried about that that fact, which is why federalism was was at the heart of the American uh, nation state. But but even then, for all of his you know sort of you know slaveholding, Jefferson really did have this concern about the possibilities of democracy, and he really wanted so he wanted localized democracies to be as important and as forceful as any other level of democracy. So are, is it? But it, but let's not also let's also not forget that we're living in an age in which in which time and space become more compressed, perhaps. So that, look, I don't know where everyone is from, but we do know that a lot of people who are who are tuning in here are in very diverse locales, and yet here we are as if we're in the same living room talking. So, but is it unwieldy as a governing uh, entity, as to be, you know, an entity to be governed? I I, don't, I personally don't think so. I don't think so. It's just this this kind of crisis we're in that is a tragic one in the obvious ways, but also because in the two years leading up to this year, I really did believe we had the possibility of carrying out, for lack of a better way of putting it, I'll use Bernie's own term, political revolution. I, I honestly believed it, and and I really and I didn't see it as a fantasy. I actually. I, all the work I've been doing this past two years was was the idea of trying to cultivate in Americans, alongside of Bernie's you know efforts and everybody else's efforts of, of us on the left, to cultivate in Americans a sense of what it, what was essential in order to get out of the long-standing forty-five-year class war from above and the crisis of in, the grossest inequalities that it generated. I mean, seriously speaking, I I, I see American history in many ways, but one way I see it is that there have been three great sort of tragic and yet also revolutionary moments and, you know, the 1770s and the revolution, the 1860s where we, where we, and I do use the word we, brought an end to slavery, the scourge of slavery. And then, of course, the 1930s with the Great Depression and the New Deal in itself often underestimated but the very entire process of the New Deal was a revolutionary experience in many ways, and then culminating in the defeat of fascism in the 40s. And the 60s may not have been on the same par as those three, but if we think about it, we carried out significant transformations in the 60s in the midst of a Cold War, and in many ways because of the Cold War, in order to make sure that we represented better represented the ideals we were proclaiming about freedom. So I thought we had come to the point 
in these 50 years since the 60s where we had started to realize, given all the talk of inequality, the movements of Black Lives Matter, the movement, the Moral Monday movement, the Fight for 15, which, by the way, keep an eye out for the call for Fight for 25. Okay, that. Okay, keep an eye out for that. A number of people I know, especially this very young, well, not young, he's 40-year-old uh, young Democrat out in California, Joe Sandberg, he's going to raise the banner of the fight for 25. Nicholas Kristof has a great piece in the New York Times about Denmark and how McDonald's workers get uh, yes. $25 an hour and the Big Mac isn't really that much more expensive. Yeah, the Big Mac is not $500 a, a Big Mac. Yeah, that Denmark works. Hell, it, it wouldn't be worth it at 50 cents, but that's no. beside the point. Yeah, and that people who work at McDonald's are buying homes in, in Denmark. Yeah. What? So, so all I'm getting at is that, that this question you pose, are we unwieldy? In, it seems that way now, undeniably. But that may be as much a consequence of this class war of the past 45 years as it is of geography. I mean, I don't think, you know, it's hard for people to grasp that when I say 45 years of class war from above. All of the solidarities that we were developing in the 60s into the 70s, solidarities that in many ways were rooted in the 1930s themselves, those solidarities have been literally devastated by this class war, whether we're talking about the, the generic term community, we're going to talk, we could talk about labor union solidarities among workers, public employees against private employees and private sector employees, you know, willing to, to strip public employees of their rights. I mean, and all of that is driven not by some natural sort of, I wish I, you know, it not, you know, it's not driven by, by difference. It's driven by cultivated difference of very powerful, very wealthy folks who have literally driven wedges between us. And, you like know, the people not wearing masks. That's astroturf, yes, right? Exactly. And, of course, at that point, we can see the degree to which the Republican Party has become a death cult. Yeah. A death cult. Yeah, yeah. Let's go to Henry, the brilliant Henry. Hey, Henry. Oh. Hey, Hello. David. Hey, Professor. Hey, Henry. So um, I was going to ask one question, and I'm still going to ask it, but I'm also going to add a second one in because it relates to something that you brought up. When you said that some people are theorizing that perhaps there's too many people in too wide of a geographic area in the U.S. to effectively govern, do you think that perhaps people are thinking that because of the way that politics has already been run and has been run for generations in the U.S. where instead of uh, uniting people based on class where the vast majority of people are in the working class, they the powers that be intentionally try to split people up and pit them against each other on the basis of race or religion or ethnicity. And these artificial dividing lines between people make it harder for people to pull together on something more meaningful like class. Well, okay, let's first understand that the very things you referred to have been far worse as divisions in the past. Um, religion, a religion until really the 60s and beyond, was a real dividing line. I mean, I, I bet David remembers, we both grew up in North Jersey. Um, the, I mean, it, at one point, in fact, for an Italian Catholic to marry an Irish Catholic, stay inside the same faith was probably considered to be 
a taboo thing, Dave. I don't know about you, Dave, but I, I can tell you that I, I witnessed that where I was growing up in Paramus, New Jersey, the, the division between Italian and Irish, and they were both Catholic. And then you can imagine the antagonisms between Christians and Jews that go back back again. Um, when when John Kennedy ran for president um, in 1960, and we see the I remember I was sitting we were sitting in our backyard on the little patio behind our house. My parents had plugged in a black and white television because they wanted to watch the convention. And a neighbor came over, and she, Mrs. D'Angelo was her name, but she was Irish, and her husband was Italian, both Catholic. They had broken the, the color line, you might say. And she came over to ask my parents, would they be willing to vote for John Kennedy? And I'm, I, can, I can see now my father saying to her, I don't understand. I would. I don't vote Republican. I vote for. I vote Democratic. And she said, "Well, you know, you're, you're Jewish. Could you vote for a Catholic?" And my father said, "I." He said, "I could vote for a Catholic as long as he's not a Republican, <laughs> right?" Right. So, but there were those kinds of questions that were seriously on the table as as part of people's everyday experience. They were called Papists, right? The Catholics. Well, yeah, Catholics were called Papists, absolutely. And um, taking their orders from the Pope. From the Pope, John Kennedy literally had to give a speech on religion, in which he basically said, "I don't take my orders from the Vatican," um, which was funny because remember when Romney tried to explain that he, you know, he spake, gave a, a talk on religion, which didn't compare to the Kennedy one for sure. But do you remember that when he had to explain because he was a Mormon that he? Uh, Not he really, take... but no. Okay, well, it it must have been. I don't think it was when he got the nomination. I think it was the time before when he was seeking the nomination. Okay. Okay. So, anyhow, so your question about these divisions, I, I don't doubt for a moment that your question needs a better answer than I'm giving you, but let me put it this way. Once upon a time, things were far worse on all of these different grounds of race and ethnicity and religion, okay? But one of the things that happened during the 1930s, as much as, as, much as race and religion remained a significant divide. Anti-Semitism was fierce in the 1930s, and so and so was racism itself. Period. Okay, and there was a great deal, a great strain of anti-Catholicism. But I'll never forget that we had a leader in the 30s. Okay, and this leader responded as an American to a very interesting question. And I don't know if it was the journalist was an American or a Canadian, but he was asked. He asked Roosevelt. If the rumors were true that Roosevelt's family back in Holland, Roosevelt is a, is a Dutch family, if Roosevelt's family back in Holland were actually Jewish, and that when they came over here, that had been sort of suppressed as part of the family story. And Roosevelt, to his credit, instead of even dancing around the subject, said, I don't care if they were Catholic or Protestant or Jewish, as long as they, you know, he says it like as long as they were f people of faith and good citizens. That was how he re he just did it, okay? And he put a stop to that kind of bullshit. I don't, you know. So if you ask, imagine if somebody said, "Hey Donald, there, there's a story that, that you might actually have Jewish family heritage." Well, you know what he'd say? <laughs> God, you know what he'd say? <laughs> yeah. But no, no, that's my daughter. Your uh, children, you're talking about. You know, he's such a jerk. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. He's, Okay, so, anyhow, but indeed, there has been this push. Now, to divide people by race and ethnicity and all these things requires a great deal of talent on the part of these reactionaries. But they can only do it effectively when there's serious competition, 
serious competition. And what I mean by that, if unemployment goes up, right, if resources go down or, or the distribution of the resources becomes so skewed that the people on top are so wealthy that everyone else is relatively poor, which is where we are. And, and let's, let's just let's not forget that this was once upon a time called a middle class society. And even though that was an ideological construct, because actually most working people still thought of themselves as working class and it tended to be a rather upper middle, upper middle class concept, it was closer to the truth than too many social scientists would give it credit. Because indeed, from 1937 or 38, 38 actually, all the way through the 40s and the 50s and 60s, either by way of government initiative or the programs that had begun during the New Deal, inequality in the United States actually did decrease. And I, they can see me, right, as yes. I'm doing this? Okay. Here's what happened. So there was still I mean, it was incredible growth in American wealth, national wealth, all the way through, the, so, through those decades. And the rich definitely got richer. But what happened was working people and even the poor were getting bet, becoming better off. So that though the wealth increased, it did not increase this way in terms of monopolization and concentration of wealth. It actually increased this way until around 1973 or 74, and this is what happened. Okay? Then we get this truly this but massive. But our listeners wealth. at home don't see your hands. Oh, I'm sorry. You mean the radio listeners or yeah, podcasts? Yeah. yeah, sorry. You have to imagine my hands were getting closer together from 38 to 74, and then all of a sudden growing wider and wider apart. And just, just like I should week, point out that Professor Harvey J.K. talks with his hands, and by that I mean you don't want to get him angry. <laughs> he, will, he will use those hands. As it, you know, think about it this way. This is the final proof. And, Harry, I, I may be, I'm not avoiding your question. I think of all these as interconnected because we're talking about distribution of resources and the capacity to drive people against one another because of their competition for, for limited resources. Mm -hmm. Think about this. So here we are in the middle of what has to be characterized by standard uh, measurements as the beginnings of a Great Depression. Has to be. And yet... What breaks the rules of anything called the Great Depression is the stock market is not is not collapsing, which we should, we, which we should expect, and the richest people in America their wealth increased by ten percent. When over these last several weeks? Oh, because the market's back up. The, mar the market's back up, and they all got a big gift by you know by way of the corporate bailouts. Right, right. So. The argument would be that this is different from the Great Depression because we decided to create a depression. We decided to place this economy in a state of suspended animation. And when we feel it's safe to turn on the engines of industry, we will do that. So is there any validity except, to that? Said, except, for example, in, in Europe, a number of the countries, Denmark being one of them, they decided rather than hand out unemployment and, and, and bailouts of corporations, but they were going to make sure that companies kept people on the payroll. So, right. and, and by the way, in Europe, they have national health care. So it's, keeping people on the payroll wasn't even crucial for the health care. We let people fall into to unemployment, but by doing so, we're also, we, I don't know why I say we, okay, the, you know, the, the, the efforts, you know, in D.C. And, the, and their capitalist cronies, basically, they do it, and so, you know, 
basically fall off their fall out of their jobs. They fall off of their health care. Families are going to. By the way, think about this. In any of these kinds of circumstances, family tensions dramatically they intensify, and if everybody's at home, shoo. Yeah, I mean it's a scary thought. Alcohol consumption is at record levels. We have domestic right. abuse. It's not even being reported. There is a specter haunting America. And Karl Marx wrote there was a specter haunting Europe before, I think it was the 1848. 1848. Right. The, the revolutions that took place. Yeah. But the the specter and the uh, haunting Europe that Marx talked about was not resolved in the troubles, the the revolutions yeah. of 1848. There is a. It helped the United States, by the way. Eighteen forty-eight. Because first of all, the state of Wisconsin was founded in eighteen forty-eight, just for the record. But the other thing is, eighteen forty-eight uh, also saw the Seneca Falls gathering in this country for you know women's rights, right? Eighteen forty-eight. I'm sure that's the, I'm maybe wrong, but that's that's the year that pops into my head. And but even more important to go back to the European scene is that. In the wake of 1848, vast numbers of Germans emigrated to the United States, many of whom were the most liberal among those Germans, the ones who felt that they had been defeated. So you get the growth of the state of Wisconsin, you get the growth of, of the hill con- population in the hill country of Texas. Um, I mean, it really was the case, and we can talk about this with Thomas yeah. Paine. These people imagined if the revolution has failed, the thing we must do is go to America, because right. that was where Thomas Paine had literally created a democratic revolution. The 1848 revolutions uh, resulted in constitutional governments and nationalism, but it didn't ease the immiseration of the lower classes. And something is haunting America right now, and we're recognizing that this system isn't working, It's become accepted that the system doesn't work. We all know that it's not working. You cannot argue that it's it's a failure. What you what what is subject to debate is the alternative to this. Right. So when people say, ah, now we got him. Now we got Trump. We got what is the alternative to this? Reasonably speaking, now that Bernie's Bernie isn't coming back. So what are we looking at? What is the alternative? I I think those people who feel like this is the moment, you know, I I, I don't know if it's the moment. I I don't think it's the moment. It's not the moment. No, I have this trepidation, actually, because and and by the way, this is not the, the way it had to be. It's not the way it had to be. Okay, I mean, nothing is predetermined. The point is that where it becomes overly determined and and 45 years of class war led leads us to this moment. But I but it's shocking, truly shocking. How many times on Monday nights over these past few months have I said to you the Democratic candidates and the Democratic leadership should be are they're shameless. They're. Feckless, feckless. Obama is feckless. He was feckless in 2009, and he's got no feck left to be feckless. No feck left. No feck left. Right. He he, he fecked us enough. Right. I mean, history has repeated itself, but far worse this time than 2008. 
Yeah. And it's Obama's fault. And it's Obama's fault. I love him. And our fault, because we look, look, I, I think that if Obama had been white, we would have been more aggressive, possibly. We ever, I, possibly. And I I, but I'm not, all I'm telling you is, I mean, this was that, look, everybody was telling me, we, 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 I don't care. I don't care if Obama's a centrist or whatever else. We need an African American president. Well, I don't believe in essentialism. What I is don't it? buy it. What is okay? essentialism? I don't, I don't buy the fact that we need any particular kind of person. I want a, I want a person of a certain kind of political stance and a political perspective. Okay? Because I, I always think to myself, okay, we have to have a woman president? Sure. How about Nikki Haley? Right. You get, right? You see where I'm going. Or somebody Jewish will say, oh, we should have a Jewish president someday. Yeah. Would you Lieberman. Like Lieberman as your president? Okay. Or maybe we could have said maybe Barry Goldwater, who had Jewish heritage. Right. Could, I mean, no. The fact is we needed, we needed someone who was going to be decidedly ill-disposed towards inequality and capital. That's what we needed. And, we needed and, and Obama wasn't that guy. Obama was window dressing, and he made things in terms of income inequality worse after eight yeah, years. As a, as a, yeah, right. I mean, undeniably, he had accomplishments, but at the very same time he had those accomplishments, inequality in this country continued to grow. And just think, when he was prepared in 2011 to put everything on the table regarding budget questions and and programs, fortunately, the Republicans so hated him that they didn't even want to give him the compromise victory on that. Because imagine if all of a sudden they had begun to privatize or give, you know, Social Security took cuts and Medicare took cuts. I mean, who the hell knows where it would have stopped? Even this week, there's been proposals floated out of the right as to taking some of the monies from Social Security and making them available for investments which was the Bush plan of 2004, 5, 6, if I'm not right. mistaken. Right. They, they want to give the, the Republican plan that was being floated was to give every American $10,000 and then cut Social Security. You're on your right. own. Yeah. So where where are we heading? Because I don't think it's going to be good. I, I think if history has taught me anything in, in my lifetime, yeah. that the worse things get, the worse they get. <laughs> That, yeah. that, that things that the powers accrued by the executive branch during emergencies are never returned to the people. And the, the, the consolidation of wealth to get us through a crisis is never weakened. It just gets. Yeah, you know, I'm going to confess. I'll confess right now. OK, you're my you're my priest. I'm going to confess. All right, my son. When I, as I think about what you're saying, which sit I on my lap, been, son. Sit on, I'm your priest. Sit <laughs> on my lap. Very good. <laughs> I mean, I confess that what crosses my mind is how much I resent Bernie right now. He's yeah, tired. I resent him. He's tired. Yeah, how dare he pull out without some kind of major deal? Major deal. I mean. There is no excuse for not having absolutely demanded from Obama and Biden, because, look, it's Obama who's the, the man pulling the strings in all of this, that basically speaking, why not Medicare for all? Just put it out there. 
I mean, that's the thing that I just, I, I resent him for having pulled out when he did, even if the handwriting was on the wall about he couldn't win. I don't care. Make a deal. Because if he had, if he had stayed in, they would have been really afraid that, that Biden would melt down in the next debate. They would have been really afraid that Bernie, look, right now, young people are just turned off. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're not they're not yearning for Bernie to come back. Okay, I am perhaps, but that's, but that's a different story. It's the fact that that Bernie just didn't demand and make them make the deal. Was the political will there? Did he wake up one day, even before Obama decided Biden should get it? Did Bernie look at the internals of his polling and say, you know what, it's not there. Yeah, no, he, he, I don't know if he was, I don't know if he did that, but it is true. He did, he could not have, he probably could not have won. But that doesn't, but the point is, even if you can't win, it doesn't mean you have any, that you're without power. And that's the thing people have to realize. I think he got spooked. I, I, I agree with everything yeah, you're saying. I, I think he got spooked. Too. I th- I by think the way, got, Trump, can, Trump can spook people. Right. He, I think and, Bernie and I think, didn't want to be called the guy who gave. Yes. Trump I, I a second that. term. But what they what they should have had is some kind of they should have had a quick Zoom meeting. Obama, Biden, um, Warren, Bernie, and they should have said, "Look, let's create. Well, I will join in a united front. But here's the deal: you got to support Medicare for all." Okay, I don't even. I mean, he could have even said, "Maybe you want to change the name, call it Obamacare for all." I don't know who gives a shit. It's the point is he, that's why at this point he's saying, "Is he kidding? What what is what has come of his campaign? It's like it's it's gone. It's fizzled. What's what remains? Yeah, so people at Jacobin are already planning the next revolution. Perhaps uh, my friends who have podcasts are all trying to figure this out, and all of that is natural response. Okay, and you know, pe- people, I, I don't for a moment think. That that history is over, but surely, as much as you people might like to imagine, we have the people. I've also learned in the course of forty-five years, not of class war, but of my studies, that you need a leader and you need the people. You can have the people, but if you don't have a leader, you don't have someone who's going to articulate the aspirations. If you have a leader without a people, then they end up becoming just a talking head on MSNBC. Medicare for all, you would think it would be a no-brainer. And a no-brainer, yet, exactly, exactly. And, and, and I'm just—I I try to get inside their heads, and and so I don't. I mean, is it like Tibet and the the Uyghurs and China, where you go? You know what? We have to take on China. They're 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 taking our jobs. They're uh, destroying Buddhism in Tibet. And they've got concentration camps in with the uh, the Uyghur community, a million people living in concentration camps. We have to do something about this, and that's the equivalent of say United Healthcare, the health insurance companies. <laughs> I'm being serious. Yeah, so I know you, you are, but it's kind of a hard thing to. Well, I'm just saying that that you're that it seems. I mean, we've had guests on the show who say I'm wrong about China. That's neither here nor there, but. United yeah, Health, yeah. United Healthcare is evil. There's no, it's indefensible. 
as is not, not United Healthcare. You mean Universal Healthcare? No, I'm talking about the health insurance company. Oh, the health insurance company, like yeah. Aetna, Blue Shield, Blue Cross, right. all these right. people who are profiteering off our sickness. Yeah, I mean, evil. The same yeah. way China's right. treatment of Tibet is evil, and the, their treatment of the Uyghurs are evil. But you sit down, if you're Joe Biden or Barack Obama or Nancy Pelosi, and they'll say, yeah, it's evil, but we can't win this. We, we, can't, we can't save Tibet or the Uyghurs, Uyghurs, and we can't save the American. We're just going to lose. We're powerless against the, the health insurance lobbyists. Is that what if you had a couple of drinks inside of Obama, wouldn't he say that? Wouldn't he say, yeah, I, I agree with you. They're evil. You just can't, you you have to, it's detente. You cannot take them on. You will well, lose. Yeah. And, you know. You have to live yes. with them. But we have examples in history, which, you know, may well have involved a certain a certain tragic side of, of any of the things I would refer to. But there were folks who were willing to step forth. And die. And die, and people were willing to step forth and lead. People died. You talked about this on the show. People died for the weekend. People, people now. People die for the weekend or from the weekend. From the weekend. From the weekend. But we, you know, people died for the eight-hour workday. Died. Right. 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 In fact, we we just we just had a commemoration in a virtual commemoration surrounding what was called the Bayview Massacre in Milwaukee, where workers in 1886 were out on strike, general strike essentially in Milwaukee, for the eight-hour day, around the same time as the Haymarket uh, martyrs were, 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 uh, were up, you know, not the Haymarket affair occurred in Chicago and Milwaukee. Several people died in pursuit of an eight-hour day, eight hours of sleep, eight hours of rest, you know, sorry, eight hours, listen to me, I'm sleep, rest, I'm putting it all together, eight hours of work, eight hours of rest, eight hours for what we will, meaning whatever we wish to do. So, Marx, you you are a, a student of the British Marxist historians. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've read Marx and all the Marxists, all of them. Okay. He didn't think that the plutocrats, the oligarchs, we're going to negotiate with the proletariat, right? He didn't think, okay, we'll sit down, we'll discuss, what do you no, want? No, right, he didn't. But I will say, um, there's some evidence that he was very impressed by the, by the struggle for Marx began as a struggle for democratic rights. And arguably, the struggle for Marx was about democracy, but he never expected those with power and wealth, what they called at that time the bourgeoisie, to surrender its power and wealth without putting up a, a, a bloody fight. So, so if, if we have as a core tenant of class struggle that the, the wealthy will not give to us what we need, if we accept that, I mean, I, there's stories, there's some no, stories. But, but it's not an either or, it's not an all or nothing kind of question because we've had the, I just explained, for example, the 1930s, Roosevelt had mobilized enough Americans behind him, and they and those Americans themselves were, were pushing at him to do something, not only about the Depression, but about the circumstances in which they lived. But, but, the, but the, the, and, and, he and he succeeded. But didn't it, wasn't it also because the Bush family and the Harriman family 
kind of feared that their heads were going to end up on sticks? Well, uh, undeniably. I mean, undeniably, they were, they were, they, well, first of all, they were just afraid they would lose their power and wealth and be, and fear of power and wealth is like, you know, if you've got a lot of it and it's going to be taken away, it means your identity is going to be taken away. So the problem I is. Like, but wait, but this is important. It, it, when industrial workers have been shut out of their jobs when when global corporations transfer these these factories similar or, or or calling centers to China and to India, people lose their jobs. It's like you're ripping their identity away from them. So sim- whether it go at the highest level, the rich if they lose their wealth, you're ripping their identity away from them. Right. But what they don't understand is the degree to which what they do is ripping the identity away from working people when they support the pursuit of cheap labor in other parts of the world and deny those cheap laborers a chance of organizing unions, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, yeah, so anyway, I cut you off. No, no, uh-huh. I, I, the, I, the, the, you know, the solution to me is – a, a labor movement that is menacing, that is threatening, that's, that that's says right. to the ruling class, look, we're not, it's, it's, you're not going to end up like the Romanovs. We're not going to take out of the woods and shoot you. We're not saying that. But we're coming for your stuff politically through the tax code, through laws and regulations. We're coming for your your stuff. And while we're doing, while we're coming for your stuff, we're going to shame your kids. We're going to change the culture to, to look down upon inherited wealth yep. and an aristocracy. We're coming for your stuff. We're taking your money from you legally. We lack that in America. We lack a labor movement that doesn't see things in black and white. I think we see it. I think we still see it in Great Britain. We don't. We, we're too no, they, understanding. They, they've, had the, they've, had, they've had it beaten out of them, too. And the minor strike uh, that Thatcher just crushed, ultimately. Right. Um, the, the military, All I want the is a fair system. fight. I, I want a fair fight. And by a fair fight, I mean, let you know, the hedge fund managers, they want to keep their money. And they put their cards on the table and say, we believe there are two types of people. And but at but least let's it's have some representation. But, isn't it interesting? Who, who look these last few years offers it's just so much energy out there. Those but there's no leadership. There's nobody except right. for Bernie. I, nobody right. is speaking right. and, and for labor. You're absolutely right. Including labor. Labor isn't speaking for labor. Right. I agree. So we're lost. It's 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 this at some point, you know, as you get older, I've I finally realized that I'm not going to be a professional basketball player. You accept your body. And at some point you have to accept your country and who we are as a people. And my problem is that history, the history that I know, the history that I profess tells me the way things are is not the way they have to be. And the proof of that is not simply logic. I'll leave the logic to Ben Burgess. The proof of the matter. No, I, mean, I, I know. I, I, yeah. Okay. The proof of the matter to me is what I know about American history. And the degree, look, I mean, I, I do this game sometimes with students, and I lay out a whole series of dates. And I ask them to tell me what, what do these dates represent? Now, some of them are obvious to them, so they can identify, you know, 1776. But I ask them about some other dates, like, 
nobody's going to know this one, for example. You know, like 1831, 1832. What happened in 1830s? Well, the fact is the last of the New England states finally ended what remained of of a, a religious establishment of the old Puritan or Congregational establishment in New England. Finally, that freedom of, you know, that First Amendment, uh, religious freedom, separation of church and state prevailed, at least in in the most formal terms. I mean, over and over again, you can see in American history, the things that seem so impossible at one time are not so impossible. And, you know, sometimes it's taken brutal, brutal civil war to make it happen. But, you know, I'm not optimistic. I don't think the American, I think the American people have had their sense of decency knocked out of them. After 45 years of this class warfare from the top down, I'm very pessimistic about our ability, especially with no leadership Zero you know, this, leadership. This, way, yeah, yeah. I just want to say that as I'm, we're talking, this would be kind of a fun topic for Friday night with with the Reverend Barry Lynn. Yeah, and also the Reverend Conrad. Is that his last name? Well, he, the, right? the, the bit is that he gets bumped every week. Yeah, I know. But let, let's. <laughs> the indecency is that he gets bumped. We have no. I mean, this is something we can open up to the to, right. to everybody at that time. Have we lost our sense? Have we no decency? At long last. At long last, right? And even That's that was indecent. And even that was indecent. That he has that plant. We have one final question here. Yeah, we've, we haven't taken questions. I know. Well, in, in, in defense, Professor, people yeah. in attendance have been listening, but not, uh, not asking questions. I've just wowed them, I guess. Yes. Nicholas. Nicholas, hang on, unmute. Karakashian, is that a yes. good Armenian name? Yes. Have I already asked you that? Yes. I'm sorry. No, no apologies but at all. This is America. We've got Hakameki. Which is not, people would think that's a Japanese name, but it's not. Yes. When I first moved to the Upper Midwest, Nicholas, I won't forget you. When I first moved to the Upper Midwest, my first doctor had a name not unlike Henry's. And I, th- I didn't know him before I went into the office, and I was expecting an East Asian doctor. And it wasn't. He was this tall, sort of fair-haired guy. And I said to him, I'm fascinated. You, what, what's your name from? And he said, I'm, my family's from the Upper Peninsula. It's Finnish. It's Finnish. So I'm a Finnish-American. And I, wow, it's well, I'm great. finished with America, so I should change my name. Go <laughs> ahead. Ask me your question. So I had asked you a question last week um, about uh, the the right wing trope that Roosevelt, did, the New Deal didn't didn't end the Great oh, Depression. Yeah. World War right. II did, and comparing and contrasting. Oh, the cliffhanger! Yeah, that was the cliffhanger from yeah, last right. week. Right. Thank I, you I mean, for. Some people listen to orders. <laughs> you said, don't forget that question. Yes, thank you. Repeat the question, Nicholas. So, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, like I said, a, a commenter had said uh, two weeks ago about, um, you know, the, like the right-wing trope that, that uh, you know, World War II ended the Great Depression, not Roosevelt. 
And then I was curious as to, uh, to ask, um, how Roosevelt's domestic policies, how, A, that wasn't the case and how Roosevelt's, uh, domestic policies, um, would differ from his, his contemporaries, not just the Republicans, but, um, Democrats within the party and how, um, the New Deal and what he did had a major role in, um, helping the country out of out of the depression. Yeah. Now, in pure economic terms, which, by the way, is almost, I mean, it's, it's not without meaning, but in pure economic terms, which will carry little weight with me, frankly, it's true that the Great Depression thought of in terms of high unemployment and, and well, that's the key people use as the, the, as the benchmark in many ways. It's finally brought to an end, not by the war, but by our buildup to the war. Okay, our the the defense industries, as they grew, really absorbed all of that labor and eventually didn't even have enough labor. And thus women were recruited all the more into into what later becomes the war industries. But here's the thing. And this is what the right wing does not want us to remember. So they they harp on this idea that the depression, you know, persisted. And Roosevelt himself had unfortunately still bought into the idea of a sort of balanced budget, which really hung him up because in 37 um he they tightened the belt even as social security was starting to take monies out of out of um paychecks and what ends up happening is called the roosevelt recession but that's not the point okay that's not the point the really important point is this from the very start roosevelt and the new dealers mobilized american energies not only in terms of the new deal Labors, the agencies like the the, um, the CCC and the and the um, emergency relief uh, uh, it was called the FERA. I'm forgetting what it was exactly, but oh, the CWA, the Civilian Works Administration. Over and over again, they they literally recruited American workers, white and black, okay, so that they would have an income and they would be productively employed. And then later you get the WPA, which is an ever more massive kind of thing, and the PWA, which offered major contracts to build, you know, dams and bridges and things like that. So from the beginning, people were brought into the work, into work. And I don't know to what extent the unemployment figures accounted for all those folks who were involved in those government agencies. Because the key thing is this then. Also from the very, from the very beginning, there was an effort to empower labor. People have heard me say this a lot. Labor unions grew massively during the 1930s compared to what they had been. Labor was tiny at the outset of the Roosevelt years, and it grew by the millions, both the traditional AFL and the new CIO unions. So what you find is, and by the way, the national landscape in America was vastly improved. I mean, the, the Civilian Conservation Corps, amongst everything else, planted, you know, cut a few billion trees and, in essence, fought soil erosion. Um, people went out and built bridges. They built parks. They built schools. They built libraries. They built post offices. So when those those effing right-wingers talk about the Depression that comes to an end, I almost don't care. I know it sounds bizarre, but what I can tell you is that in the 1930s, we showed, we showed what Obama failed to show, and that was, yes, we can. Right. Okay? And we are still nourished by those kinds of labors. And so the right just doesn't, they don't want us to remember that. 
They will do everything. And by the way, liberals don't even want us to remember that because they're an embarrassment today for what they have failed to do and how they've allowed American energies, both working energies and political energies, to go to waste, okay, because they have failed to, to, if you like, encourage a leadership that would enable Americans to, to feel that kind of radical impulse that's rooted deeply in the American experience. Amen. I love you. I love you. You know what? I've been feeling so dispirited, and I still do, but now I know why. (laughs) That's the help that you've given me, Professor. I I just, it's this perfect confluence of a pandemic and an economic collapse and some realizations about not just who we are as a people, but who who I am and my own cowardice and what I'm willing to sacrifice and will I step up? You know, I don't yeah. know. I don't know what we're capable of as individuals you know, and as I, a people. I don't know what we're capable of either. But actually, I'll tell you a little story. This is I always fall back on this experience that I had as proof that I'm not as much of a coward as I thought. Okay. This is, this is not a political ex- moment. This is a, just a basic late teenage moment. So I was 18 years old. Yeah, 18 years old. I was at Rutgers University, Rutgers College, which was that time was all male as a, as a freshman. And on weekends at Rutgers, it was like one giant party because, um, it, because it was all male, the, there were, innumerable women and girls who would flock onto our campus for the fraternity and dorm parties. I mean, it was just amazing to be 19, 18, 19, 20, 21. And though New Jersey's drinking age was 21, at Rutgers on campus, I don't know how the law allowed for this, you could drink beer, likely wine, let's say beer, which was what most people could afford and wanted, but you couldn't buy it. So the dorms and the fraternities bought kegs, and then you could just drink. You couldn't pay for it. You had to drink it free, okay? But you had already paid for it by student fees, you might say, okay? And so I'll never forget. So there was a, I had a girlfriend, and after the fraternity party, I was, a, I was a pledge at the time. I had walked her across campus to a parking lot and, you know, to her car where she was meeting her girlfriends. And I was walking back across campus. I was living in, in a dorm at the time, but I was walking back towards the fraternity house, and I heard from back between two dorms a girl screaming. And I I thought, wow, what the hell's going on? So I went back into this darkish area. There was some light, and there were these three guys, and I, I don't know what the I don't know what their project was, but this girl was deathly afraid, and they were physically abusing her. And I stepped in, and <laughs> my mother said, boy, are you an idiot in, in, for the way you handle it. And I pulled out, I pulled out my wallet because, and I pulled out my ID and I said, I'm a, there was a term preceptor, which meant that I was like a, an, an official of the dean's office of a, but housed in a dormitory. I said, I'm a preceptor. Get out of here. You know, leave her alone. And this guy, the biggest of the group, hauls off and says, on the way, as his punch is arriving, says, I don't go to school here. And it lands on me, and I was standing in front of one of those sort of chains that keeps people from going on the grass, and I fell back. I mean, my eye just took a beating. 
and I fell back and and I thought and everyone scattered and the girl just disappeared basically. Right. But and I got up and I you know I had a you know bloody eye and all that. I got to my fraternity house. They wrote, they took me over to the you know the health center and and I just and I had to wear a patch for a while because it looked so awful. But I thought to myself instinctively I thought I did you know I knew I I knew what I had to do. I didn't know right. it. I just did it. I like you know why I like that. I love that story. You know why? Because you'll know I'm an idiot now, right? No. Yeah. What's great about it is you never hear that version of that story. You're the only person who's told. I mean, in other words, you got punched. You got a black eye. Yeah. You didn't fight back. You took the hit, but she yeah. got. You know, liberated, liberated. I've never, you know, that is a primal. I didn't even get a thank you or a kiss on the cheek. Yeah. (laughs) But that is uh, that is a primal story told throughout the ages, but never that way. And that may be that may be the best. I'm being serious. The best version of that story, because because I've always told my kids to walk away from fights. I always said, don't. Yeah, you know. but you know, and and when my mother said well, you had to get in, you had to th- put yourself into you throw yourself into it, I said, and I have a little sister, and I said, well, what if it was Phyllis? Right. You know, I mean, it, it didn't occur to me at that moment. My sister, this could be my sister. Just I just did it, but that was my answer. But I don't even know if I needed a sister to do it. It just there was so, I clearly any I would just say, well, anybody would have done it. I don't know if they would have, but I did it. And um, I don't know. I'm I'm hearkening back to Mario Cuomo. Waxing about the uh, sacrifice bunt in Ken Burns's baseball oh. documentary, Mario okay. Cuomo talks about the elegance and virtue of the sacrifice bunt oh. and how spiritual it is. And <laughs> your story is reminiscent of Mario Cuomo talking about the sacrifice bunt in Ken Burns's. <laughs> Epic series. I, 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 one of the reasons I really, one of the reasons I really enjoy these kinds of moments is, as much as we might have been thinking we talk about FDR or New Deal or whatever else is, because you and I have these conversations. It's actually like you and I have a conversation, and we've got an audience, right? Well, it's and great, can, yeah. And and people can intervene, and it allows me to remember these things that, that, you know, I don't know if I sit down and ever write it out, but it allows me to talk about it. Yeah, I appreciate well, it. What, what's what? Well, thank you and. Uh, I was in a foul mood about this country, and like I just said, I still am, but I kind of know hey, why. David, now. let me. I haven't told you the dark side of, t- of this last week. The dark side of this last week, besides everything else that we're all going through. Oh, there again, people at home wouldn't have seen my physical, you know, actions at that point. Is they've just announced ma- that they're projecting massive cuts in the University of Wisconsin system which does not augur well at all for my younger colleagues or for that matter for me. And it's, you know, it's, it's like immediately when we have a crisis, instead of imagining a grander vision as the FDR and the new deal Democrats would have in the thirties, even people who should know better fall back on neoliberalism. Just, you know, Uh, austerity, austerity. During austere times, yeah, I mean, the 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 evilness of austerity to say times are tough, let's get even tougher. 
as though that's right. somehow the solution. I Especially don't... when last week we discovered that the rich got a good 10% rich. By the way, 10% may not sound like a lot, but if you've got a billion dollars, 10% is a hell of a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. They just don't care. And then then you look at like the Mercer family and the DeVos family, and they do care. They're just sadists. Yeah, that, that's, that that's there, right. There is an element of sadism, and... Uh, it's like, I've got all this money. I'm still miserable. She doesn't love me. So I got to take it out on somebody. This young colleague of mine, oh, you know, I'm pretty sure it was John Shelton, you know, the fellow who, my labor history colleague, said to me yesterday or earlier today, we were on, I guess it was yesterday, we were, we were FaceTiming and conversing about the politics of Wisconsin. He's a very, he's very active in these kinds of things. I used to be, but I, I'm not as much. And, and he said to me, you know, it's sometimes I get the feeling that they just really want to enslave all of us. Yeah, it's almost as though it's in our nation's DNA. Yeah. It's almost as though we were founded as slaveholders. But well, we were also founded as revolutionaries. Yes, Professor. Yes. Professor Harvey J.K. is the author of many great books. His most recent, FDR and Democracy, The Greatest Speeches and Writings of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Go buy that book. If you would like the greatest speeches or some of the greatest speeches and writings of Professor Harvey J.K., I recommend Take Hold of Our History, which he wrote last year. It's published by Zero Books. It's a great collection of essays and speeches and lectures given by Professor Harvey J.K., and you you hear him on the page. It's a great book. You Thank can you. actually hear him on the page. My next book is going to be I Took the Punch, Can You? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> the Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great, and we're going to start in on Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. Professor Harvey J.K.'s hero. Give us a little little appetizer. Why should we love Thomas Paine? And why should okay, we? Gonna, the punchline and all, this was, it's in the opening of the book, in the first few paragraphs. I won't give the full story, but I'll put it this way. When Thomas Paine wrote Common Sense, that was published in January of 1776, he not only turned the American rebellion into a revolution for independence or a war for independence. He also turned it into a struggle to create a democratic republic. But even more significantly, in the course of doing that, I still say it, it we just have to, to remember who we are and rediscover who we are. He turned Americans into radicals in 1776, and he implanted or embedded or inscribed in American experience a radical impulse. And I know we all feel it. The question is, what the hell are we going to do about it? Yeah. To be continued. Thank you so much. Follow Professor Harvey J.K. on Twitter. He's got a great feed at Professor, no, at Harvey J.K. Harvey Should I J. stay K. on after we hang up? Stay on the line. And we'll, yeah. talk, we'll talk to the people in attendance. If you would like to attend a taping of the David Feldman Show via Zoom or phone, go to davidfeldmanshow.com and Go to office hours and we'll send you a link and you can listen, you can watch, you can learn, you can lurk, you can ask a question or two. And 
this Friday night at 9 p.m., Professor Harvey J.K. will be there. Office hours. I think we should call it after hours or the after party, but Friday yeah. nights at 9 p.m. Eastern. Yeah, just don't call it the afterbirth. <laughs> that sounds delicious. <laughs> oh, jeez. Hey, by the way, one last thing. Can I tell everyone who's listening yeah. tomorrow when this posts that I think you really do want to join us. You really do, because this is the start. We're only in the early days of what may turn out to be the most important cultural development of the 21st century. Is uh, that putting pressure on you, David? <laughs> uh, well, it, it's a different, it, it's a context. It's a framework. Yeah. My daughter said it's synch- synch- synchronous as opposed to asynchronous, which we'll discuss next week. Everybody yeah, say I mean, I'm Seriously speaking, it is... I have to tell people, some people won't like it, but the majority of people will. It's 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 one of the high. It is maybe in some ways other than the Monday our Monday night Tuesday experience. It's really I, I just think it's great. I, I I just think it's great. I do too, and I, it's an opportunity to you know you can come and go. It's an open room. Yeah. Once you get the all, you, all I ask is you just give me your name and you got to give me your email. Because I can't, and, and your bank account and password, and, and that oh, stuff that, that I can get yeah. once I get that. Once I get some login, you know, you got just so I know you're not like your mother, like your mother's maiden name. That's it. Yeah, no, I mean some some people get in and they do. There was some guy doing pornography. I had to throw him out. Oh, there but, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. I missed that. I mean, I guess I missed that part. Yeah, it was, was me. Saying, hey. But uh, but uh, it's it's just interesting to find out who's out there, what they're going through. We have people from Canada, Great Britain, Mexico, China. It's just China, fascinating, yeah. and it's visual as opposed to this show, which is strictly audio. Let us go. Let me let these yeah. people go. Stay on the line, everybody. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. I don't want some quick little interview. No, you got it. Pal. Long time. Judah Friedlander joins us. You know him from 30 Rock and his comedy specials. He's a world champion. And today he unveils his solution to the pandemic. Welcome, Judah Friedlander. Thank you, David Feldman. Thank you. Thanks for the diversity on the show today. Thank you. The diversity. Yeah. Well, we have comedians and we have yeah, psychologists and authors and journalists. We have a funny comedian, Judah Friedlander, and then we have oh. me, a failed you're comedian. Just, you're doing just fine, David. Thank you're doing you. just fine. Well, are you at liberty to tell us where you're isolating? Yeah, wherever, whatever you want. Yeah, I'm in Maryland right now. And, uh, yeah, I'm at my parents in Maryland. I'll be here for a bit. So uh, try the yeah. veal. How's the veal? I, I haven't had the veal here. How does it feel not to be on the road? I mean, it's got to be. You are a 
you work the road. You're a working comedian. You live and breathe stand-up comedy. How does it feel to... Well, you know, I usually do two to four sets a night. And we're talking huge venues, David. You know, I mean, we're talking, you know, Madison Square Garden at 8 (laughs) o'clock. And then at 10 o'clock, I'll have a show at Yankee Stadium. (laughs) And... Then I uh, get on the PATH train to New Jersey and and then get on the bus and do a midnight show at Giant Stadium. Uh-huh. Um, so it's good to just kick back, relax a little bit, not overdo things. <laughs> when I took my first job as a writer, I would find my body racing at around 7.30, and I didn't understand it. And they go, oh, my God, that's... The, the adrenaline, my body was just got accustomed to producing adrenaline for the show. Do you no, no. find? No, David, that's because that was at 7.30 a.m. when you had to wake up <laughs> oh, to oh. go to your writing job at the office. Oh. anxiety that you actually have to be somewhere and have authority figures telling you what to do all day. Yeah. Boy, you nailed Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I thought we were keeping it light. Or do you find that you're getting that rush, that, that rush at around 7 o'clock that you need to be out performing? Not really. Um, well, you know, I mean, the first, I mean, if you just want to talk real, I mean, the first, uh, you know, the first months, you know, well, I was sick for a little bit, so I was just trying to get better. And then... Um, you know, and I'm also trying, in case I had it, not trying to disease anybody. So, so I self quarantined for about five weeks, and then, um, and I'm a generally paranoid person, anyways. So it's, uh, so it's just the past week or so I've been, you know, probably about the past two weeks I've been just getting back into things. So, um, and you're you're quarantining yeah. with your parents. Are you doing stand up around them? Do you are you funny around them? You know, they're listening right now, David. Um, so I, I'm not sure how I should answer this question. Um, but, uh, no, it's, it's, it's a mix. It's life. You know, it's a mix of, of, of every aspect of uh, the emotions of life, you know. So, um, but, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I've just been getting back into things. I'm actually going to be doing my first stand-up show tonight on Zoom. And, uh, and then I'll be doing a few more this week also. So I'll see how that works. It yeah. might it might work. Uh, I'll it, make it work. You'll make yeah. you're brilliant. So more importantly, how do we yeah. solve this pandemic? That's that's the question. What do you what well, are you? Gonna I do? think got to look at the root cause of how it became a pandemic, David. Okay. You know, and there's all kinds of uh, theories out there, and um, I think we have to blame Hollywood, and we have to blame specifically Tom Hanks. Uh, <laughs> Tom Hanks was the first celebrity to announce that he had it. And you know Americans, they love celebrities, Mm -hmm. worship celebrities. Tom Hanks, nice guy. I'm sure he meant well. (laughs) People just want to be like Tom Hanks. I get it. He was the first celebrity to have coronavirus. He's cool. Uh Everybody else wants to be cool and get coronavirus. And if you think about it, Tom Hanks has had a history of this for quite a long time. Um, look at the movie Bachelor Party from 1983. 
Before that, <laughs> men were never getting married, never having bachelor parties. Uh-huh. And then they just kept getting married so they can have those bachelor parties. Uh, I remember back in the 80s, I never got married, but I was having bachelor parties <laughs> times a week. Um, it was very influential. And then look at the movie Punchline. The movie Punchline, yes. 1989. Yes. That starring Tom Hanks playing a stand-up comedian. Yes. That's when the stand-up comedy boom happened. Mm-hmm. You see, everyone wanted to be a comedian after that. That's yes. Tom Hanks calling right now. <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to let it go. No, answer it. I don't answer Tom Hanks' calls. Okay? <laughs> um, I don't want to spread things. And look at the movie Big. Okay. The movie Big, right? That's right. about a little kid who got big. Ever since then, I've seen these little kids get bigger and bigger. Tom Hanks has been so influential on American culture for so long, and he usually, he always means well, but this time, people didn't realize the negative aspects of it. So, right. So, right. you know, forget about, you know, trying to do what countries like Taiwan and South Korea have done where they actually had testing from the beginning and contact tracing from the beginning and and have and have only around 300 deaths so far um, but if you think about it they're way behind look at South Korea look at the United States had the same case on the same day their first case both countries on the same day yeah South Korea is at about 250 deaths. The U.S. at this today, over 81,000. South Korea, way behind the United States. Just like not even close to the numbers that we're doing. Yeah. So we're a leader in this, David. <laughs> you know, and I think we're opening back up too late. We've waited too long. To back up. People are so used to staying home now. Nobody wants to work. Uh, we had our chance, you know, mid-March, we should have just gone back to work and um, and fought the virus. Mano a mano. Yeah. I mean, this country used to fight. We had a revolutionary war. Hello. You know, yeah. uh, it's not like Canada where we sign a contract with our oppressors. We fight. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, we're cowering how, in the corner. And how are we going to win? We're relying on scientists to fight. I mean, come on. Let's face it. <laughs> what are scientists? Nerds. They don't know how to fight. They're nerds. Uh-huh. We need yeah. football players out there fighting the virus. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it, it's the only way, David. It makes sense to me. This makes yeah. perfect sense that we open up the country and just get into the game. Just fight it. Yeah. Well said. Start the game. Well game. Staying at home, that's for halftime. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's go out there and fight, and then in a couple months we'll, we'll take a break for a, for a week. That'll be our halftime, and then we go out again. Right, right. So you were running for office back in 2019. Are, are you still Not running? running. Hmm? Standing. I was never running for president. I was standing for president. Ah, you were standing. Running is for people who are scared, David, okay? Mm-hmm. Heroes stand up and get things done. <laughs> How is the campaign going? Are you still running? It's going solid. I think I have a really good chance. Uh, as you can tell, I've gotten a lot of great mainstream media exposure. They're, uh, <laughs> they're very excited about my campaign. Um, this is going better than Biden's virtual rallies. Yeah, those are... Oh, are you worried, though, because you... you 
Are you worried that you might? This is what I think the Democrats, if the Democrats want to win, they should just tell Biden that he won. <laughs> like tomorrow, just say, Joe, they moved the election up. You won. You did it. <laughs> and then and then they just run somebody else who the general public thinks will probably win. Uh-huh. And then they just go with that person. And then they just tell Joe that, that that's like some little thing going on. Right. You know. It's it's they brought back the West Wing. What you're watching is just an Aaron Sorkin series, but you're still you're the president. Yeah. That's a good that and and who would you replace Joe Biden with? I I would assume I don't know if you're a Democrat or a Republican. It, it, I'm not in either party. Right. I'm not in either party. I'm starting a new party. It's the USA America party. Mm. So, I like if that. you don't vote for me, you're against the USA and America, and that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah, that's that is a problem. The thir- you're going to do a third party run. Who are you more of a threat to? No, a fifth party run. A oh, fifth I'm party run. I don't want to offend the Green or the Libertarian parties, so it's a fifth party run. You're a fifth party, and who are you going to peel votes away from? Who 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 is going to blame you for their loss? Trump, Biden, Jill Stein. Everyone will blame me for who? their loss. Everyone will blame me for their loss. Yeah. So do you think maybe you should drop out and, and endorse somebody? No, I just picked up some solid endorsements. The uh, the uh, vice president of South America just endorsed me today. <laughs> the vice president of South America. Just endorsed me. You got the. In, that's a that's a big yeah. endorsement. Wow. Yeah, it Vice is. President and of South the, America, the Duke of Japan, um, just sent me a letter saying wow. he's going to endorse me tomorrow. Well, the so, Duke of Japan. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, and people listen to the Duke of Japan and the Vice President of South America mm-hmm. before they cast mm-hmm. a ballot. Yes, they do. Yeah. Well, how would you solve this economic crisis that they say we're having? They say 24 million people are now out of work since the pandemic. Well, I think it's good they're giving out, if you can get through on the website, if you can get through on the phone, a one-time only $1,200 check because you don't want to spoil Americans. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, you want to make them earn it. And, uh, so was that too much? Was twelve hundred too much? Was it too much? Um, I don't think it was too much. I think they should have given it out less than once. <laughs> I mean, the perfect amount. They just didn't calibrate the amount of times they should give it out. I see. Once is too many. Once. Just- so you're, you're so you're saying you're for giving every American at least twelve hundred dollars, but yes. not once. Less than once. I see. Yeah. Yeah. What is the relationship? I mean, David, think about it. If you give it out for free once, they're just going to want it again. Mm -hmm. And that makes people lazy. Do you think that the reason so many people are not working right now is because of the $1,200? They don't need to work? Let me tell you something, David. Anyone who wants to get COVID-19 can get (laughs) COVID-19. Okay. <laughs> We're doing more COVID-19 infections than any other country. Anyone who gets it can get it. That's what America is about, David. Yeah. Anybody okay. who wants it can get it. Yeah, that's the American dream. Yeah. It's yeah. the American dream. 
Okay. And, and we shouldn't believe we're the We're going back to work. We're going back to work. That's what this country's about. You got to die to live. And we're all going to eventually, right? Yeah, but if you want to live, you got to die first. For, for your country. It's the American way. Yeah. I mean, what do you hate America? Do you not want to go back to work? Do you hate America? I regret that I only have one life to give for our economy. I, now, that's a statement from a great American. Yes. Yes. Well done. Thank well you. Well done. I'm ready to go back. In, uh, and I, you don't, uh, You're not wearing a mask? I don't wear a mask. I am wearing a mask. That's a mask? It's a very high-tech mask. <laughs> it looks exactly like my face. <laughs> and it's got a tight seal. It moves every way my face moves. But you're... So it what is an N2000, okay? The N2000. Yeah. It, this, this blocks out more than 100% of particles in the air. More than 100%. Yeah. Now, David, let's talk about the mask issue, okay? Because, you know, they say that um, there's not enough face masks in this country. I disagree. I think there's too many faces. <laughs> um, we need some people to get facial elimination surgery. Um, I think we need... I notice a lot of the people that are angry that they're told to wear a face mask are people whose faces you probably don't want to look at. <laughs> Something I've noticed. That might be too much like a Carlin bit. I got to check that. Oh, that's his, uh, uh, it's, like it's a bit like the, no, it, it's not. It's an abortion bit. It was an abortion bit? All right, that might be too close. No, it is. It actually isn't. Okay. Right. Yeah. The people, you yeah, know, it's, it's different. It's, uh, but no, you're right. We'll work I, I, off. We'll we work we off. should re- but You know what, David? We don't have enough face masks, but you know what we do have enough of in this country? And the federal government has, and the current administration has, has, has admitted this. We don't have enough face masks, but thank God we do have enough body bags. <laughs> We're prepared for that, you know, and that's why we're a great country. We're a great you know? country. Yeah. Body bags. That's. We, yeah. we, you, you can never have enough. That's what my mother used to tell me. You can never have enough body bags. I remember. Yeah, I and was, think about it. When when you're in a body bag, you're not getting coronavirus. Your <laughs> bag steals the whole body. It's not just okay. And we need to start covering every hole. Okay, uh-huh. we're talking about the the two holes in the nose. Uh, the one in the mouth. There, we have several other holes on our bodies that that we should be protecting also. From the virus. Yeah, it can go into any hole, theoretically. Right. And and so there how many holes? You, you know more about science. Not to insult you, I'm not saying you're weak, but you do have a background in science. You're a world champion scientist. You don't brag about that but how many holes are there in the human body that we have to worry about well counting the hole in many people's souls <laughs> um, the number does skyrocket a lot uh-huh. i'm not going to get into that david what um, what hole but what do you think is the most important hole that we have to protect okay i have to really think about this <laughs> if i don't discriminate against holes i view all holes equally <laughs> You know, some people say, oh, 
um, you know, the head, uh, the, you know, the, on the sides of your head, there's two holes. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe they're not, or the nose has two holes. Maybe they're not really that important if mm-hmm. you feel them. Maybe it's more important. Maybe one is there for backup. You know, and what about a gets clogged? Yeah, and what about a mask for the the bottom hole? Not to prevent. Good point. It's a good point. But then, if you put a mask on the bottom hole, how's it going to breathe? Well, that's the whole point. That the world would be a much more enjoyable place. Maybe we need two buttholes, David. I think that's what you're saying. I think we are. We there aren't two. Well, David, I. Maybe you have two buttholes. I don't know. I, I, I was I making a joke. I, I was making a joke. I, how many okay. are you supposed to have? I, I believe it's one. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Then in that case, I have one. I'm not a freak. Okay. Nothing. I don't want to discriminate against anybody, David. You what? I don't want to. I don't want to discriminate against anybody. I'm not. I don't have a secret shame. Okay. Now, where are you hoarding? What's that? What do you hoard? What 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 was the first thing that you feared wasn't going to be available to you? Well, in early March, I was at the grocery store and the cashier accused me of hoardings. And I said, excuse me. I am planning to eat for dinner tonight. Sixty five cans of Chef Boyardee. <laughs> That's what I have every Thursday night. That's my night to just go Italian. Uh-huh. You know? Uh huh. So I don't think people should discriminate against that. But I'll be honest with you, I don't, I'm not surprised that people hoard because, well, one, a lot of people are selfish, and two, so many people know that the government is not going to be there to protect you, so it's like every person for themselves. Well, you know. yeah. I, I, I didn't hoard. Uh, I, I, I'm trying to think what I was afraid of going what would what would I be afraid of not having? What would what would you be afraid of not having? In all uh, seriousness, what would you if water? Water, yeah. Uh, food, food, and a roof. How about the rest of the house? Just the roof and the floor. <laughs> you gotta have a floor, dude. But no walls. You don't need walls. Look, we, we've already decided as a nation that walls are, are bad. Okay? Right, right. Well, and now the immigration, as, pre, as our next president, is mm. there an immigration problem? Is there a problem with people sneaking into the country? Does this need to be stopped, especially now? We need no walls because we need to get the fuck out of here. Okay? <laughs> These walls are very dangerous. So as a comedian and somebody uh, who, who... Yes, sir. You're always moving. And so you're you're running, you know, and so you don't like this. You don't like this scene. You move on to the next. You move on to the next. But now comedians are forced to sit still and they're not built to sit still. How has your worldview changed not seeing the world? Um, Well, that's Yeah. Well, very good question. And, you know, I do like to perform a lot internationally. And one of the main reasons I like it is because I, I learn a lot when mm-hmm. I travel. Uh, you know, I don't like to do the touristy things. I like to 
take the subway, go to the grocery store, take the bus, walk around, meet people, talk to them, talk about their governments, talk about the issues, you know, and just see all the, you know, the differences in, in places, how they're done. I remember when I was in uh, Sweden, and I believe Norway and Denmark, too, when you're at the grocery store um, and your items are getting scanned, and you know how it's on that conveyor belt, and then it goes to the end of the conveyor belt, and then when you're done paying, there's sort of that mad rush to try to get all your bags and your food in your bags so that the other person's food coming down the conveyor belt doesn't get in with your food. Mm-hmm. Well, they have this, um, you know, mechanical contraption set up there so that your food never gets with the other person's food. And somehow we haven't been able to figure that one out yet. <laughs> and then I remember another time I was in Sweden and I'm outside and there's some steps, you know, some cement steps, they look just like American cement steps, except on part of the steps, for about maybe four or six inches, it was just smooth. You know, it wasn't the steps. It was just a smooth incline, but only like four or maybe six inches wide. And mm-hmm. I'm like, why do all your steps have this, you know, smooth incline? Yeah, I, I think the that comic I, I was talking to was like, oh, that's so you don't have to carry your bike up the steps. You can just roll it. I'm like, oh. We have not discovered that yet. So, um, so it's just interesting to see how some little, even just simple things like that are done differently and better. And then, um, sometimes the big issues are like, why, see, we don't need to take care of bicyclists. We, we make better products than a sob, right? So our cars work. So we don't rely on bicycles Mm -hmm. to get someplace. I see what you're saying. Yeah. It's a good point. Yeah, I was uh talking to a comic friend from uh who's in Czech Republic and uh I had mentioned that uh gun stores in the US are labeled as essential business and they were just stunned to hear that. I'm like, Yeah, no, that's essential. Of course. I mean what you don't think guns how many guns do you have? I don't have any guns, damn it. No guns. Honestly, but between you and David, me. no guns. That's an insult to my martial arts skills. <laughs> <laughs> you are a world. And look cha- at the nurses, and look at the nurses at our hospitals. Some of them have to wear. Some of them are wearing garbage bags, and you know why? Why? Because they're not conceited like those European and, and Asian nurses in the <laughs> Asian countries. Our American uh, nurses, uh, you know, they they have some modesty. You know, they don't have to be walking around with this fancy stuff. <laughs> Just slap some garbage bags on it and save some lives. What do they, What do they want? These nurses. Yeah. What do they want? They're ungrateful. It's not a fashion show. Get in there and, and save some lives and put on that garbage. Are they really wearing garbage bags? Some have had to wear it's it's an absolute tragedy. Yes, some have had to wear garbage bags because they didn't have, and some died. For the, I think because they didn't, they were wearing garbage bags. It's it's awful. I, well, I think they yeah, died. I, I think yeah. they, I think they died because they got mixed in with the recycling afterwards. This is. <laughs> 
<laughs> we're gonna. I'm did, gonna. Uh, yeah. Pray for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Pray for me. Are you optimistic about the future? What do you? How do you see this, David? I was extremely pessimistic before the pandemic. <laughs> I I think when I was I think when I was eight, I was an optimist. Mm-hmm. I think from like zero to eight, I was pretty optimistic. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I think I had huge bouts of pessimism back then too. Um, but um, see, I'm yeah. an optimist. I no, that's great. That's great. I, 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 I mean, I guess I go both ways with that. I, um, I'm pessimistic fluid, I guess. Because, um, <laughs> you know, sometimes I, think, sometimes I think being pessimistic is important because if you're, if, you're optim, if you're an optimist, that can be good. But if you're too optimistic, then you can teeter into cockiness and arrogance, and that's not good. Mm-hmm. Um. So, and then just being a pessimist all the time, depending on how much of a pessimist you are, that can be bad too. Because then right. everything's bad. But but sometimes you know I think it, you know pessimism can be powerful. And I mean, it, go, it, go ahead, I interrupt you. I can think about it. Pessimism is uh, it can be very powerful. And then sometimes people will yell at me. And try to shame me for being a pessimist and that it does no good and it's going to be bad for things. And then I say to them, I thought you were an optimist. (laughs) You're being pessimistic. I'm optimistic about my pessimism is what I'm trying to say. As a great comedian, and you are, you have to start as a pessimist. You can't go in thinking you're going to kill. Right, you have to expect the worst. Well, unless you want to make a lot of money and sell out arenas, then then you might want to do that. <laughs> okay, but then you're an optimist, then, because you 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 couldn't go on stage and occasionally, even Judah Friedlander, a world champion comedian, occasionally, I would assume, a joke doesn't work. Does that ever happen? Um, I, I couldn't even tell you the last time that happened. <laughs> Okay, but <laughs> have you ever had a, a bad set? Have you ever had an audience? They, they rarely happen. Uh, I mean, of course I have, yeah. But you know, I've usually- seen, this is a true story. <clears throat> I've seen Judah perform, and the MC will say, please tip your wait staff. And the audience screams back, what about Judah? How can we tip Judah instead? It's a great point. It's a great point. Did, and then you, what do you do? So they, the audience decides to tip you instead of the wait staff. Do you, that must be awkward. You know, I think comedians probably should get tipped. Um, you know, so much, so many of the shows that comedians do, and I include myself in this, you know, are for no money, you know, so comedians probably should get tipped. Um, well, remember, you know, you, you say we would do it for free and they heard us. Where was it? Also, we have to wrap it up. This, by the way, David, I have a question. Yes. What's the first thing you're going to do when the lockdown ends? Uh, what I'm doing now, which is not go outside. I don't know. I don't. That's what I'll do. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna stay in. It's just something I've always wanted to do, and I haven't had the time for. So, uh, see. 
what, what, what's not, we have to wrap this up. By the way, oh, I'll oh, compliment oh. you in a second because this okay. was phenomenal. Uh, it really was. The, the, o- the only good thing about the pandemic is I'm home, not working, but I'm, I don't have a fear of missing out. I don't feel like, mm. like, I don't feel it's, I'm not taking it personally. Interesting. Like we're, yeah. we're all going as comedians and, and David, writers. David, I, I didn't want to tell you this. <laughs> yeah. Like I should now, but. What? This pandemic, yeah, you should take it personally. <laughs> what? Why? Why me? It's we're all David, in. No, it's your fault, David. It's your fault. I thought it was Tom Hanks's fault. I changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Judah Friedlander is a brilliant comedian. How do people follow you on Twitter, sir? Um, I think you have to go on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, how do you get on Twitter? Yeah, Can anybody yeah. go on Twitter? I I I I I don't know, David. Do you um, need like a license? I'll just tell you the Twitter address. It's uh, so you know I hardly I don't do much stuff online. You know I'm a, I'm a live performer. I don't do much stuff online. But now I'm going to start doing a lot of stuff online. So I um, uh, Judah World Champ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And on YouTube, it's Judah Champ, and that's J U D A H. And uh, so I'm going to be. I have a lot of new material that I filmed uh, in the past few years since my last stand-up movie came out, and uh, so I'm going to be editing together a new one, an album. I'll put out an album and stand-up film. I'll put out later this year, and I'm also just going to be start releasing lots of stand-up footage, and I'm going to start doing a lot of. Uh, a lot more podcasts and Zoom shows and stuff like that too. And uh, and I have a question for my brother. My brother is a big fan of yours, and he wants to get a DVD of your stand-up special that I think was on Comedy Central. I will autograph it for him. Well, I don't know. I don't think they sell them anywhere. So how can he? How how are you going to autograph? What he doesn't have. I will. Um, I I will send him a copy of Left Without Paying, the, my CD, okay. my comedy CD. Okay, great. What about your DVD? How how can people watch that? Uh, I could uh, send him my DVD, my VD, my. That's I, enough. That's I, enough. I know. I was. I, I had nothing. I had David, nothing. David, never apologize. You're an American. <laughs> Thank you, Judah. Uh, America's Thank- never wrong. I'm sorry? I said America's never wrong. God bless. God bless America. And as you say, and the USA. God bless America and the USA. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're, you're fantastic. Can you stay on the line, Judah Friedlander? Yes, sir. Thank you. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Little Richard, the rock and roll pioneer, died at the age of 87 last week. Joining us is David Wilde, longtime contributor to Rolling Stone. He's a great writer, author, reporter, as well as a 
TV producer who met Little Richard, I guess, at the Grammys. David, thank you for joining us. Where, where, where did you meet Little Richard? The, the first time, uh, uh, good to be here, David. The first time was I was actually uh, writing a, a feature for Rolling Stone on a different David, David Bowie, and he invited me to this sort of event for his then-band Tin Machine uh, at the Santa Monica Airport, and we were hanging out backstage, and he I'll never forget it because uh, he turned to me and goes, would you like to meet the greatest of all time? And I went, you know, because I kind of thought Bowie was one of those, and he said, uh, I said, yeah, sure, and then he turned around and goes, David, meet Little Richard, and that was when the first time I ever met Little Richard, and it was unbelievable because to me, at least generationally, Bowie was the coolest of the cool, and he literally looked at Little Richard. He was so excited to be in his presence. He was even more excited than I was, was to be in David Bowie's presence. And it was, like, so clear, and if you can read chapter and verse on how Bowie always viewed Little Richard as the, you know, that was his king of rock and roll. Uh, and, it, yeah, and that was the first time I got to work with him a number of other times, but that was the first and so, in the development of rock and roll, where does he where does he find himself? He does I mean, he is he does he predate Elvis? Was Elvis borrowing from him? Was, you know, he, 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 he this the debate is crazy, and I I, I don't even like the debate because some people always will try to get it back to Ike Turner, and I don't like any debate that starts with uh, Ike Turner. Yeah. So you don't want to debate will, you don't want to debate Ike Turner, no. Yeah, exactly. Who was first? Uh, but I do think, you know, one of the great things about Little Richard, and there were so many beyond the music, was the persona, the personality, the wit. Uh, and when he would go on TV and, you know, demand to be respected, uh, he was right. I mean, the originator, the architect, the innovator, you know, it's the thing is, it's, it's a shared title with a few others. And I remember years, uh, years ago, uh, we were doing, uh, Lisa Marie Presley was coming on the Grammys to promote, um, and it was an Elvis special that was coming up. And so I had to write an intro for her to present an award for the best rock album. And I had to basically lay out in a few sentences, you know, who really invented rock and roll, who brought us rock and roll. And I made a list, and it was the usual suspects. It was Chuck Berry. It was, for me, Everly Brothers, another favorite, Elvis. And she crossed out Elvis, and I said, you can't cross out, even if you're the daughter, you can't cross out any of these guys. It's all essential. But in terms of the pure spirit of it, Little Richard is central, like the sexuality, the, the, the nerviness, the, uh, the, the explosion of, of sensuality. And uh, I think he's, he's as, there's no one who deserves to be mentioned ahead of him. So Bob Dylan reportedly wrote in his yearbook that he wanted to be Little Richard. You're friendly with Bob Dylan. And friendly and friendly would be an overstatement. I've had the pleasure of doing a few things with him and talking to him. And uh, he, I think, yeah, you saw, like, I have to say, during this uh, pandemic, which uh, uh, I hope I'm not, there's no spoiler alert, I haven't shocked anyone, but during this period, Bob Dylan has come out of his shell and is sort of online sharing these great new songs, and he, his, his sort of run of tweets about Little Richard yesterday were just the most, as moving as anything in his book. It was, 
It was like Chronicles 2. And yes, Bob Dylan... But I, I can't think, think of two performers who are more antithetical. There's no sexuality in Bob Dylan. In, in I mean, me he's or sexy. Bob Dylan? I'm sorry? In me or Bob Dylan? Well, you and me both. But I'm saying that Bob <laughs> Dylan is about the lyrics you can't hear and the music that's interesting and the sound. But he's not... He's, he's not... Did he take anything in terms of performance from Little Richard? I, I can't think well, of I, I, what I influence did he have you're, on you're, 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 you have to take into account is whether it's David Bowie or whether it's Little Richard. They are the right age to have been at a young, young impressionable age when the rock revolution hit. And so they know who did it. So, you know, Bob Dylan did like started out being like, you know, trying to play piano. I guess it was with Bobby V. You know, it's like. You know, he was a, a he he, so he was it, it fired up his belief in rock and roll, which then you know felt then he got I think it's he's like the child of Little Richard and Woody Guthrie, because uh, so he he first pursued the folk thing, but yeah, the part of him that went electric, I think uh, no one was more electrifying than Little Richard musically with Little Richard, was 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 he a showman? Was he a musician? What was his absolute strength what 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 would do you think he led with i think his vision i think it's like the his his surge of energy and he did you know he you know there's people like you know chuck berry needed johnny johnson to do that keyboard thing i think to do it uh little richard uh you know it was just uh, an energy that he brought to rock and roll and like uh, the even sexual like, energy when he sang Tutti Fruity, I thought Pat Boone did a much better version. But when he, when he sang Tutti Fruity, did, did Bob Dylan know that Tutti Fruity was about sex? Did Bob Dylan know that it may not have been heterosexual sex? To, to quote Bob, to paraphrase Bob Dylan, he knew something was happening here when he heard that stuff. I think all those guys got that this was something new and forbidden in a way that was being touched on and like uh we just did uh i just was a writer producer on this uh prince tribute and since little richard went i'm just thinking like you know how much you can't even like imagine a world in which prince was prince without little richard you know like right. the, the racial element the daring element and it's funny you mentioned pat boone i had a uh a few years ago maybe like five ten years ago i had I was asked to write some sort of holiday show for L.A., and they said, your host is Pat Boone. And I was like, oh, boy, I don't know about this. Because, again, you, you can go like, was this the villain in this, you know, the, this rock and roll Star Wars where he just covered and didn't, you know, neutered uh, Little Richard's genius? And the thing is, it's like Pat Boone was perfectly a uh, nice guy, but you realize that's sort of like that moment where White America thought it could suppress this black art form, and turned out it, it couldn't ultimately. Right, right. The sexuality, uh, did Little Richard ever tell us about his sexuality? Did I David, Bowie, us, did David yes. Bowie ever tell us about his sexuality? Yes, they just told us different things at different times. Uh, right. And, uh, you know, something he had something that would piss off everybody in what he said over the years. Uh but I, you know, I just found him. 
fascinating from that first moment. Uh, he was he was unknowable, uh, at least to me. Like we did the opening of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, in Cleveland. Uh, it was when they opened the, the hall. He was the first one in, right? Well, he was in the first class, and also we did a concert on HBO to um, kick it all off. And there was a show with Bob Dylan, with Bruce Springsteen, with just like the Titans, Chuck Berry. And I'll never forget being backstage, and, uh, you know, Little Richard was supposed to go on, and it was like 7.30, and it was all, it had all been arranged. And then we got a call going, Richard ain't coming uh, until 9. And it was like, why? He goes, he said, it's the Sabbath. And the thing is, you could never quite figure out, and maybe this is another thing with Bob Dylan, you know, which Sabbath <laughs> of right. major religion is he refusing to get right. out of his hotel room? Right. Uh, he was... He was a mystery and a, a beautiful mystery. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. David Wilde is a longtime Rolling Stone reporter and television producer. Read all his books. They're, just go to Amazon and pick them up. And uh, thank you. This was last minute. I really appreciate it, David. How do people follow you on Twitter? Uh, just at Wild About Music. Uh, uh, just, uh, any, or uh, they could just stalk me in, in person. Okay. In Hollywood Hills. The okay, well, it's great to talk to you, David. Yeah, thank you for doing this. Can you stand alive for one quick second? One second. Sure. Thank you. We believe in democracy, not oligarchy. <laughs> Today, we say to the private health insurance companies, whether you like it or not, the United States will join every other major country on earth and guarantee health care to all people as a right. is a human right, not a privilege. And together, we will pass a Medicare for all single-payer program. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Let's go to Toronto, where Mark Breslin is standing by. He is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks. It's the largest comedy chain in North America, perhaps the world. And he has an odor of Canada. Only, I think only 500 people in the world have the odor of, of Canada. I believe so. I think it's 600 or something, but you're close enough. And, and that is a major accomplishment. That it is a, ma- it is a major accomplishment, yes. And and you are a rock tour and a a great great intellect. And I was proud oh. to have you at the our, our office hours Friday night. This is relevant to the show, given what's going on. 
you you hung in there, I think, for the first 14 hours. Yeah, I have to say, David, that you must understand there's a difference between a performance and a filibuster. <laughs> and um, although I was ready at that point in hour three to recognize a small African nation's right for a nuclear armament, um, I still thought that maybe you were going on a bit too long, and yeah. I had to bail out. I had yeah. to bail out. Yeah, the, the, uh, my and my son was furious with me because I didn't tuck him in that night, and he lives for that. He, that's the thing he loves. You, you tuck your kids in? You, you tuck your son in? Of course. Wow. Virtually every night. And, and do you read to him? Yes. And I, I mean, I don't want to violate like, your. No, 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 no. Ask me the question. You're going to ask me what do I read to him? Yes. Henry Miller, uh, <laughs> better than Nexus, I think. Um, because I think I, I just heard, too young. Uh, hang on, hang on, I'm, hang on. I just heard Henry Miller and K Tropic of Capricorn. Or K um, what do you? So he's too young to read Henry Miller. I think he's too young for Henry Miller. But so what he loves is he loves all these dragon books. These, you know, How to Train Your Dragon. There's a Disney series. Well, it's based on like 16 books. Um, and we've gone through the whole series of those. And now we're on uh, Cressida Crowell's new, uh, she's got a new series out. He likes anything to do with that kind of fantasy, dragon, medieval thing. Of course, he likes Harry Potter. Um, so, yeah, I, I, yeah, I read to him every night. Oh, that's sweet. Sometimes my wife, Sometimes my wife reads to him. Sometimes I read to him. But we always read to him before he goes to bed. And how, how young can a child be before he or she reads Henry Miller? I read Henry Miller when I was about 19. Right. Um, and I could have read him before. I just didn't know about him. Right. But um, I'm a big Henry Miller fan. I went to the, uh, the house, his house in Big Sur, is a bit of a museum now. I don't know if you've ever been there, but, um, you know, it's a bit of a shack. Um, it's exactly the kind of place you'd think Henry Miller would live. And um, it's got all his, like, writing implements and his desk, and it's been restored to, I guess, what it was like when he lived there in the 40s or 50s. Uh, but I'm a, a huge Henry Miller fan, as I'm sure you are. I, You know, I have uh, pretended to finish his books, and it's the kind of thing where I say, you know, if I... This is stuff I should be reading and enjoying, but I have, you know, I'm a nonfiction. What is the virtue of fiction and novels? My father used to say, when he, my father used to read to me before I went to bed, uh, my Miranda writes, and uh, I, don't know, I don't even know what that means. Is that a molestation? I don't even think that's a molestation joke. No, just, Miranda writes is what they, that's what they read you when they, when yeah. they arrest you. So, yeah, uh, I yeah. don't know why that. Yeah, the right to remain silent. Yeah. Yeah, they never say that. They never say that to a Jew because they know it's not going to happen. <laughs> you have the right to tone it down a little and not so loud. You have, a, you have the right to be not so loud. You have a right to not shout at me. Yeah, my father insisted that I read novels. He said these. Are, you know, this is where the real truth comes from, and I I get that. But I have that fear of missing out. If I'm not reading nonfiction, I'm not learning. And I know that's not true. What is the virtue to reading? I have a, well, I have a degree. My degree is in English literature. Right. And I would read a novel almost every day for the four years I was in university. Maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration. Let's say I read three a week. Right. Um, and so I have a background in 
you know, all of modern, what I think of as modern literature. It's, um, it's a person's take, a distillation on, on the world. And, um, I don't read a lot of non, I don't read a lot of fiction now. Now I read way more nonfiction. In fact, I find fiction kind of hard to get through. But a lot of that's because the people who were writing um, in their heyday spoke spoke to me. Uh, Philip Roth is the most obvious example, um, but also uh, Henry Miller. Uh, uh, I love Norman Naylor, who wrote both fiction and nonfiction. His nonfiction was probably more brilliant than his fiction. Okay. All right. Um, but I don't read a lot of it now, and I notice that it's a, it's a gender thing. You go into the bookstores, take a look at all everything that's advertised under fiction, and it's women writing for women, novels. Mm-hmm. Men, there's almost nothing. And you see this also if you go on a plane and you watch what people are reading. Women are actually reading books that are novels, and men are reading nonfiction. I... It's broken down now. Can that be backed up statistically? Because I have observed that. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not quoting any statistics here. This is strictly, you know, what I've what I've looked at and what I've noticed, um, and how hard it is for male novelists to get published now because there isn't a built-in audience. Right. I mean, how many can you even think of? There's Jonathan Lethem uh, and uh, Franzen. There? Yeah, and Franzen, and that's about it in terms of people right but remember when it was like Bella Broth and Mordecai Richler and um, John Updike and uh it was just uh, uh, one Updike, name after Updike another. is a female writer he writes he writes stories that women like Up, no no Updike, how could you have the name Updike and be a man that's not allowed sorry oh yeah 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 that's true i'm trying to keep it smart and literary, and I'm an idiot. It's very smart. It's very, no, it's very smart, especially where that you avoided the joke that his wife used to put the finger in his finger, her finger <laughs> on the upside. Um, but um, that's okay. That's okay. So um, wh- when yeah. you were, I was looking at you during our Zoom meeting. And, and I look forward. Yes, I know. Yeah, I mean, it's not, I mean, you're used I to. I always look forward. <laughs> you were observing it, and I was curious. My, my, yeah. That, you were curious as what uh, what I thought. Well, what not necessarily, you know. If I'm I'm not asking for a critique of the party because I would re- I would yes. <laughs> uh, but in terms of a context, the, a Zoom party that people can join via phone or watch in the context of a Zoom meeting, somebody's going to figure it out. Right? Somebody's going to figure out how to do this properly. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the issues I think, do you want, well, now you're asking me to critique it, and I will. Um, you had a lot of people on the show that had really nothing to do with each other. And so at times, I, I thought that your, your pitch for the show should have been, if you like the Joe Franklin show, <laughs> you'll love the David Feldman show. Right. Right. And by the way, I think there's a better title that I thought of for you. Yeah. May I pick it? Sure. Radio, Radio Free Feldman. Radio Free Feldman. Free yeah. and Feldman in the same headline. That's uh Yeah, Radio Free Feldman. I thought would would be good. Remind no, everybody I, who Joe Frank remind people who Joe Franklin was. And how do you know who Joe Franklin was? I was, first of all, I was on his show. <laughs> um I was I was on his show. I was in New York working for Joan Rivers and Joan uh-huh. said 
uh, that's for her afternoon show. And Joan said, I want to do the, the Joe Franklin show. Um, it's a crazy show to do, but I can get you on it. Why shouldn't you do it? <laughs> and I went on it. And what he does, what he used to do is he would have like four guests. The four guests would have nothing to do with each other right. in terms of what they, what they knew about each other. And he would ask the other guests about what the other guest was doing when they knew nothing about it. So it would be like, so, Mark, uh, Mark Breslin, what do you think of Cold Fusion? <laughs> right, right. It was ridiculous. The one thing I loved about it, though, was the night, the day I was on, one of the guests was um, Adler. I can't remember his, Bruce Adler, I think is, was his first name. Bruce Adler is considered one of the um, most, uh, he's kind of like a Mandy Patinkin figure. He's a great Yiddish, he knows all the Yiddish songs. Right. And he was the grandson of um, of Luther Adler, who was friends with my mother when my mother was in the Yiddish state. From the Yiddish, so Stella we, Adler's cousin, the, the Adler that's family. That's right. That, that's right. You, you so, don't get... So he was a he was a guest to meet. He was great to meet. We even afterwards we even went for coffee after the show, and uh, you know we told our stories. So that was great. But Joe Franklin himself, he just put they just put on four people. The four people know nothing about each other and nothing about each other's work. And then he asks you a question about the person's work when it's something you would never have any idea about. And that was the yeah. one. Mark Breslin, what do you think of Cold Fusion? Right. Well, yeah. And I said delicious. <laughs> I mean, well, it was ridiculous. It was a ridiculous show to do. But right. at times I felt your show was sort of the same thing. It was somebody who was, you know, uh, a yoga instructor making a comment about uh, the relationship between jazz and comedy. Yeah, but we also had a jazz professor. I, I lean towards... I like the jazz professor. He was brilliant. I like teachers. I, I think you start with a base of teachers. Once you have teachers in the room, you know that it's, it's going to be funny. Uh, as long as well, also, you know that nobody's going to go um um um, they all have something to say. Exactly, and it's going to be yeah. funny because it brings out the clown. I mean, I saw you wanting to make trouble. You're a teacher, and but you're also a class clown. Hey, uh, we have a question from JS. He's one of our listeners who's sitting in on this. Yeah, segment. and I must say, I always trust people who won't give their real names. What is he in the witness protection program or something? <laughs> Okay, J.S. J.S. asks about the order of Canada. He says there's a Mark Breslin, who's also a physical education professor at the University of Glasgow. Do you think the Queen? Right. Do you think the Queen got the two of you mixed up for the Udur of Canada? Um, maybe I, I, I've researched a lot of different Mark Breslins because I was once going to do a one-man show about all the Mark Breslins in the world. Right. Um, and then somebody beat me to it, a British guy. And it was a fantastic show. I saw it at the Aspen Comedy Festival. And his name, he also had like a name that a lot of people can have, but not that many, so he could research them. And he right. went out and he met them all. I think his name, his last name was Benson. Um, so like Dave Benson or something. Right. Um, and uh, so that since he did the show, I, I never bothered doing the show. But I had done some research and contacted different Mark Breslins around. So the guy that um, this person's talking about in Glasgow, I thought was also an artist, a visual artist in uh, in Glasgow. Now, here's something that I don't know. Um, at the end of one of his books... Um, uh, uh, a physical uh, education professor. That's like a gym teacher wait, 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 who wait, read a book. Sense. 
No, 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 no. It makes sense. There's, I got it wrong. He's a boxer. So it would make sense that an ex-boxer might be a physical education teacher, right? Yes. So this is probably that Mark Breslin. Oh. But here's my question. Here's my question. And it's and I don't know how to find this out. At the end of one of his books, um, the guy uh, just, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but the guy who wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, Hunter Thompson. Hunter yeah. S. Hunter Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson lists um, his list of ten great unknown people. And there's a Mark Breslin on the list. Wow. And the question is, is he talking about me? Is he talking about this guy in Las Vegas? Is he talking about, uh, sorry, in uh, Glasgow? Is he talking about the guy uh, in San Francisco, who I met, by the way, um, who's written a ton of books on negotiation? I don't know. I could never find out. JS, JS is accusing you of deflecting, not answering the question. What is the, what was the question again? That, oh. did, did they? Did no, the, he asked. No, 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 because the, it has to be a Canadian. The guy's not a Canadian. Oh, okay, all right. And plus, you get you don't get just get the award. They 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 publish a whole thing on you about what you do and everything, and it was all accurate. So now no, they no, are no, saying the Queen may be. Retired due to the the coronavirus, she will never make a public appearance again. No trooping of the colors, nothing. Does now, that well, does that concern you? Not no. I, I'm I'm not much of a monarchist. Not really. No. Um, it uh, it would bother my wife. My wife's a real monarchist because she spent so much time growing up in Britain and Scotland to be specific and she has a very warm spot for the for the royal family um i have a warm spot for megan markle at some point <laughs> run, actually um but uh, outside of that uh no i i know I, I don't really i'm not a person who cares much about the royal family yeah i do i think we need people like that so let's talk about i, I do i and i've said this uh a lot on this show that that you need people who are above politics, and uh, that's called the Canadian. That's supposed to be the Canadian Senate, by the way, which is not elected. It's chosen, and it's not chosen by party affiliation. That would be like the way the House of Lords used to be. Yeah, that's right. It's exactly what it is. I see. I see. Are you? I always thought I would make a good. I always thought I would make a good person for the Senate. I've traveled all across the country. I'm used to all the, you know, arguments about stuff. I'm not a lawyer, so I bring something different to the to the mix. I, I think I'd make a good senator. I, you would make it a fantastic one. And uh, have you ever thought of? Didn't you date Margaret Trudeau? Didn't, I, I read somewhere. No, I never. No, I never dated Margaret Trudeau. I dated a Margaret Trudeau lookalike, and then cut the press to think that I was actually dating Margaret Trudeau. Uh, it made the papers uh, when we went out on a date. It made the, uh, uh, it made the TV spots, and then it turned the, the evening news, and then it turned out it was a hoax, and then the press wouldn't do anything for me for like two or three years. I was kind of banned from any publicity. It was worth it. It was great, a great hoax. Let me ask you about Canada. The COVID-19 yeah. is hitting the inner sanctum of the West Wing, 11, 11 Secret Service agents 
have uh, are active have active cases. Twenty three employees of the Secret Service have uh, tested positive. Ivanka Trump's uh, personal assistant, Stephen Miller's wife, who's Mike Pence's press secretary. Well, what this proves is that there really is some kind of overlap between COVID and syphilis. <laughs> you you saw it first with Prime Minister Trudeau's wife testing positive at the beginning, at the beginning of yeah. this. And we've seen yeah. Boris Johnson, we've seen... Uh, Prince Charles testing positive because they're out shaking hands and being around people. One of the things we we touched on earlier is that when the leaders get the virus and they survive, that doesn't bode well for the rest of their subjects because they tend to feel they you get this from Boris Johnson right now. Well, I survived it. Why can't you? Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's a certain, uh, uh, you know, yeah, there's a certain feeling of that that they kind of put out there, isn't there? You almost think Trump wants to get it so that he can he can survive it and then show how superhuman he is. Right, right. Are you seeing people without masks? I, you know, I, I'm outside. I'm going for walks. I noticed young people, and I don't blame them. I noticed a lot of young people just walking without masks saying, you know, I'm probably, they're, they're signaling to me. I'm asymptomatic, and you know what? If I give it to you, old man, good riddance, you destroyed the planet, we're better off without you. I mean, if I, I have to say, if I, were, if I were 20, I would probably, I, I would wear a mask, but I would think, F the baby boomers. If they get it, they get it. They weren't thinking about us. Could you see well, yourself being 20 and not wearing a mask? Yes, but it wouldn't be for the reasons that you're describing. It would be because when I'm 20, I feel invincible. I don't even have to look at the statistics. I just don't believe when I'm 20 that I can die. Mm-hmm. I, I believe when I'm 20, I can't even get sick. You know, that's, that's the mindset of a 20-year-old, an average a 20-year-old. So, uh, but what really interests me is that I have seen, I've been outside, and I have seen people, young people, without a mask, performing cunnilingus. Oh. And I think that that's just unbelievable. Yeah. That's, uh, we have, you know, we, we're gonna, <laughs> by the way, in the waiting room is Dr. Harriet Fraud, who is a, a brilliant psychoanalyst, who I'd love you to meet uh, after our break, uh, she is a uh, a brilliant, brilliant, uh, uh, brilliant doctor, and a uh, she hosts a podcast called Capitalism Hits Home. And I, I, she did laugh. I saw her smile when you made that comment. The future of tell her she's clearly a Lacanian. She's laughing. I, I, what is yeah, what is I that? Like that. Ask her. She'll tell you. Okay. You are the the smartest person <laughs> I, I've ever met. It, so you read, we, we're going to wrap it up, but you you read a book a day while you were in college, a novel a day. Okay, maybe not, maybe three a week. But, but how many, I, I mean, are you a speed reader? No. 
no, I do a page. I do a page a minute. That's not considered speed reading. You remember um, uh, Woody Allen's joke about speed reading? I took a spe- I took a speed reading course. I read uh, I read Hamlet. It's about a prince. <laughs> when you said a, I did a page a day, I thought uh, a page a minute. No, did- I did a page. Page a minute. I was going to do a Dennis Hastert joke, but uh, okay, but I'm not going to. So no, I can read. A, I can read about a page a minute if I'm uninterrupted and I'm focused. That's right. not considered speed reading. I took a speed reading course once, actually. Um, but they teach you to read in paragraphs. They don't teach you to read for for the nuance and pleasure and the, the just the sort of uh, physical satisfaction of reading. Right. Um, reading should be like eating. You shouldn't your food right right mark breslin before you go yeah will somebody figure out a way to do these zoom meetings before the clubs open up and we're back in business do you think somebody it, is going to figure this I out somebody told me you got to watch this this new uh technology on the weekend they're doing a show it's going to be an amateur show don't look at the content just look at the way that the tech works and the tech was awful. And uh, I'm, I'm looking at something else at the end of the week that somebody's doing in the States that supposedly captures the feedback of the audience. But I'll believe it when I see it. Right. Will you come to Friday's uh, Zoom party again? Will you sit in for a little while? I, I, I will. But, uh, you know, maybe what year is this? Uh, 2020. Maybe 2022 would be a good year for me to do it again. <laughs> well, that's when the next one ends. It starts this Friday. Okay. And it'll I, end. I don't like to repeat. I don't like to repeat myself is oh. what I'm saying. Well, then don't eat radishes. Mark Breslin is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks. It's the largest comedy chain in North America, perhaps the world. And we will talk to you next week, I hope. Yes, for sure, David. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Stand line. Hey, you're for, welcome. Stand line for one quick second. Okay. You called in your backup becomes now. See if we can get some more brain power in this. We thing. got one here. Roger. Fly it in, go. Go and go. Uh, he's never mind. He's straightening up a little bit. Okay. Okay. Now let's everybody keep cool. We got the limb still attached. The limb spacecraft's good. So if we need. Uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay, let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM electrical power with the batteries or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two. Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have RCS, but we got the command module system, so we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, You Sad Pathetic Hump. Let's go to Los Angeles, where Howie Klein is standing by. He is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC, which raises money for progressive candidates around America and some socialists, and required reading, Down with Tyranny. We have invited some of our listeners to sit in during Howie's segment, and we have quite a few people 
here to hear Howie Klein talk about politics and his background in music. A lot of uh, interested people. Mr. Howie Klein, first up, before we get to the listener questions, talk to me about two special primaries that are taking place in Wisconsin and California, I believe on Tuesday, today, right? Yes, uh, they are today. So um, one of them is in uh, California's 25th district, which is partially in L.A. County, the very northern part of L.A. County, and partially in Ventura County. And that's uh, the 25th district, which Katie Hill had, and she retired from Congress because she had a little scandal. And uh, so they, the DCCC uh, and the Democratic establishment in general, uh, you know, they had they had a candidate who's awful named uh, Christy Smith, just absolutely terrible, nothing to offer, just a mushy conservative Democrat. She's as bad as they come. And uh, this was the seat that Jenk Uger, Jenk Uger was running for this from the Young Turks. Jenk right? was a candidate in that race too, but he he didn't really uh, come close. Uh, she had so much more money than him. Although no, I shouldn't say that he he had some good money too, but but she had the whole. Uh, Democratic machine behind her, and uh, and you know people weren't really paying close attention. They just hear the Democratic Party telling you who to vote for, and and that's what they did. Mm-hmm. And so she won the primary, and uh, and tomorrow uh, it's interesting. On my, I, I predicted that she would win uh, narrowly. It's it, it, it's a Democratic um, a registration advantage district, so there are more Democrats in the district than there are Republicans. So I I, I wrote a post saying why I thought she would win. And then a friend of mine who is a, uh, a top Democratic strategist, a you know, real big-name guy, and, you know, obviously he said I couldn't use his name, uh, but he wrote a guest post for me under the name uh, I don't know, Anonymous Strategist or something like that. And um, he thinks she's going to win. No, he thinks uh, the Republican is going to win. So he wants her to win, uh, but he thinks the Republican will win. In fact, he thinks the Republican already has won. I want her to lose, and I think she's going to win. So it's kind of a kind of a funny situation. But um, so his reason—it's not even reasoning. What he's saying is he's first of all he says the top Democrats in the party in the California party are already telling him that that she's that. The Republican got it. That the, the absent—it's it, not even a matter of absentee ballots. It's a vote by mail situation now, and the Republican. There are so many more Republican uh, ballots coming in than Democrats that they say that uh, that that she's already blown it. Oh, and, wait a second. So this was was this Buck McCann's old seat? Well, he, kind of. Yes, he it was the twenty-fifth district, which was Buck's old seat, but it's just so drastically. Redrawn the district that that the heart of it is still Buck McKean's district, but it's much much different than it used to be. And this was and, this and was like, always a Republican seat, kind of right. It used Buck McKean had it; it was a Republican seat. But once they redrew it, it 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 turned more and more Democratic. It's a Democratic seat now; it's not a Republican seat. If the Republicans win this, it's really really bad news uh, because it means that uh, Trump is not enough. To uh, to motivate the voters because th- this is a district that Hillary won. It's a district that uh, is not interested in Trump. They hate Trump. Uh, but what's happening? It's it, the uh, Latino voters aren't sending in their ballots. Is what's been happening so far. So unless that's changing, unless that changes in the last two days, uh, she's going to uh, she's going to lose. 
So the Democrats are going to lose a seat and will. Well, ve- maybe. I mean, this very top strategist is, say, is saying that I'm saying she's going to win. OK, I, I actually think that she will win this race. We'll see tonight. OK, mail in ballots. That's the only way you're casting votes in California, right? No, it's not. It was going to be the only way. And, I mean, Trump has been screaming about this, and it's kind of true what he's saying. Once the ballots weren't coming in from some of the uh, minority areas, the governor uh, made an exception. He said, well, if you want to vote, uh, if you want to vote, we'll open a, a uh, a poll or two for you. So they are. They're opening some polls up in some of the minority areas, uh, which seems pretty hypocritical of the governor and the Democrats who wanted that. But uh, and Trump has been just, you know, wailing about it. And, and if if, if um, uh, uh, Katie Smith wins, Christy Smith, sorry, if she wins the Democrat, Christy Smith, then Trump will declare that it's, a, you know, it's a fraud and he'll be you know huffing and puffing. OK, Wisconsin held their presidential primaries last month. And because of that, several people have contracted the virus they weren't yeah the last that i saw it was a little over 50 but but that's over a week ago so it's probably more than 50 now you know it started slow they said there were two people then there were 30 people then there were 39 people and then i think the last i saw was 52 people okay so there's a special election in wisconsin Those those were both voters and poll workers there's a special election today in wisconsin how are they voting yeah, that's in the 8th District. It's a rural district. It's a Republican district. It used to not be, but it's turned Republican, and it's it's strongly Republican. The uh, What's being said now is that the Democrats seem to have more of a chance than anyone thought, and, and if, if um, the Democrat wins this race, that it's over for the Republicans. If, if they can't hold on to this district, it's an open seat. It, you know, the, the uh, incumbent retired. It's an open seat, and if they don't, uh, if they don't hold on to it, they'll be running around like chicken without heads. You know, screaming and crying and whining and rending their clothes and not knowing what to do. And should they should they distance themselves from Trump or should they embrace Trump more? Uh, that's that's their what their problem is, and we'll see tonight. How are they voting? How do they vote in Wisconsin now? Oh, uh, good question. I, I believe that they're voting uh, by by um, by mail. I, I mean, I think even if some of the polls are open, it's going to be uh, largely. Uh, I, I, my guess is that that almost all the votes are going to come in by mail. People aren't, you know, they're, they're wise to what happened. They don't want to take that chance. And by the way, the Republicans forced that on Wisconsin, and Wisconsin paid them back by defeating them. They thought that if they had a vote, a vote, uh, if they forced people to vote in person, Democrats wouldn't show up. And what happened instead was the opposite. Republicans didn't show up. Democrats did show up. And uh, it's a very, very important um, Supreme Court seat. They, they elect their Supreme Court there, and the Republicans were sure they would be able to hold it, and they lost it. Okay. Well... Let's go to our listeners. We have some people who have questions for Howie Klein. My question is, what are you cooking? We've decided to call this segment Cooking with Howie. What are you preparing today? So I'll tell you what it is, and then let's see if anyone knows what that is. Okay. Okay. I'm cooking a classic dish called Harira. Harira. 
Right. So no one run to your uh, to your Google. Just someone, uh, you know, raise your hand and, and and tell David that you know what it is if you do. Okay. And, and, and I'll, the... I'll, tell you, I'll tell you one thing about it. I can't tell you where it's from. That's the whole story. But I was in this country, and I had to, I had a friend in the country, and I, I would always stay stay and hang out with his, him and his family. And his mother one time told me that every household in uh, in the country had their own recipe for this thing, and no one had the same recipe. And it, it's probably the single most classic dish in the whole country. Okay. Carrera. All right. Let us go to Jacqueline. I believe she's in Southern California. Hello, Jacqueline. What is your question for Howie Klein? I have to, you have to unmute yourself. Jackie, there you go. Nope. All right. Uh, there you go. Jackie, what's your question for Howie Klein? I want to know what he, what he thinks uh, COVID's going to do to the election, the, the presidential, not so much, but more in, in congressional elections. What's going to happen? Are they going to be able to flip the Senate? And if there were five candidates, if somebody had 10 bucks, 10 or 20 bucks to send five candidates, who would you think should get that money and why? And where can they send that money? Great question. Thank you, Jackie. Okay, thank you, Jackie. So, um, okay, so there's a couple of questions there. So, first of all, what is uh, COVID going to do? So, I don't think Jackie was asking me from the medical perspective. I think she's asking from the political perspective. Right. And what I see is that, uh, and and I'm seeing this from polling and from uh, the the uh, focus groups, that people are so angry with Trump and with the Republicans that there is going to be another big anti-Republican, anti-red, anti-Trump wave. Now, the Democrats aren't offering much. They've got like a bunch, you know, one from top to bottom. They have these horrid candidates uh, in the Senate. But um, they, uh, the, the, the voters are so angry at Republicans that, um, the, that the Democrats are going to sweep. And, and, they'll, and it'll be called the blue wave, but a blue wave implies that they're voting for Democrats. They're not. No one's voting for, De- I mean, you know, Hardcore Democrats are voting for Democrats, but what people are voting for is against Republicans. The, the Democrats aren't offering much. So uh, now, when when Jackie says, um, "Where sh- if, if there's five candidates, where should they? Who should they send the money to?" Uh, is she talking about the Senate, or is she just talking about Congress in general? I bumped her down there. Let me bring her back up. Uh, well, why don't you answer it both ways? The House and Senate. Okay. I mean, it's funny because someone asked me this today, an actual donor, and this is what I said to him and his wife, it, is that if, if you have a, a small amount of money to give to a candidate, it really is much more effective to give it to House candidates. Um, uh the, the candidates, the, uh, the the races in the Senate are so expensive. I, I was just going over the uh, the McConnell race in Kentucky, 
And someone was saying, well, uh, you know, she, uh, Amy McGrath is spending so much money. Is she going to win? And, and no, I mean, she's not going to win. And McConnell's going to spend more money than her. And it's not going to matter. And, and when I say it's a lot of money, the minimum, I mean the minimum that, that sh- this woman is going to spend to lose in, in, uh, in Kentucky is $50 million. $50 million. Wow. Yeah. So if you have like $10 to give, it really does pay to make that uh, more effective by giving it in a house race, which is much, much less expensive than that. There are no $50 million house races. Wow. So, so why, don't we, why don't we start with that? And e- even that is, is hard to start with because there are still primaries going on. So, so you know, people are, uh, you know, so it's a different category of, of races that we're talking about. Like later on today, we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking with Mark Gamba, and Mark Gamba is a, is a, is a mayor of a, of, a, of a town in Oregon. He's a great guy. Milwaukee. See. Yeah, it's, yeah, with an IE, not with an EE. So Milwaukee, Oregon, and he, uh, you know, he's running against just an awful, awful character. Um, and it's a primary, so it's next Tuesday, and um, you know that that's a good place uh, to donate uh, to uh, to Mark Gamba. Another uh, race that I think would be a really good race, and I think a lot of people will agree with this, is, is a guy in Indiana named Jim Harper. And Jim is in an interesting situation. Again, it's a primary, but it's in a blue district. No Republican is going to win there. They're not going to even put up a serious Republican because the district is so blue. So the Democrat who has been representing the district is retiring, and Jim is running. And the people who Jim is running with Jim, you know, against Jim, are all uh, very conservative or, or crooked or both crooked and conservative. They're, and he's a really good progressive. So if he wins the primary, he's going to be the congressman. So we have an opportunity either to, there's probably down to two people now, uh, but we have an opportunity to elect someone who, like Jim, who's a real true progressive, or the person running against him is really a Republican who changed to a Democrat because it's a Democratic district and he wants to he wants to win. He knows he couldn't win as a Republican, and he's awful. He's just absolutely conservative. He would just be the worst possible thing. But he's very well known. His father was uh, his father was some political big shot there. Uh, so it, it's 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 a shame. But Jim Harper uh, would be would make a great candidate. He has a shot of winning. Another guy who looks like he's a winner. In fact, the new polling just came out today uh, in Michigan six is John Hoadley. So John is a um, a state rep right now, and he's running against Fred Upton. And Fred Upton is a confused Republican. He, you know, this is not a primary. This is this is a uh, this is the general election, and and Upton, you know, he's he's his family owns uh, or used to own Whirlpool, so you know he comes from, he comes from money. He never worked a day in his life, and he's fabulously wealthy and doesn't know what it is to work and doesn't know what it is to be a working person, although he tries to pretend that he does. And his, you know, interestingly enough, his family moved all of their factories to Mexico. Uh, and I would think that would be enough to get people angry, but apparently not. Um, so John is taking him on. And he's, you know, he, he tries to make believe, because of the nature of the district, he tries to make believe he's kind of independent, but he votes with Trump on everything. He wishes he didn't have to, but he's afraid not to. Okay. So, again, John Hosley in Michigan. Uh, there's two people in Texas who who are running for Congress who, 
who both could win. It, 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 it's two very interesting races. One one of them is uh, Julie Oliver, and the other is Mike Siegel. We've had both, and of, both of the districts. The We've had both on the show. You've had, you've had them both on the show, right? Yes. Yeah. So both of their districts are very gerrymandered. They both start in Austin and then spread out in every direction to you try to get enough Republican votes because the Austin part of the district, and in both cases, in both her district and his district, the the Travis County, Austin, uh, is the bigger part of the, uh, no, not the bigger part, but the biggest part of the district. The, the most people, the most people of any county live there, but they're, uh, they, they managed to get in so many Republicans that the, the districts sort of have been leaning Republican. Well, they're not so much leaning Republican anymore. They're kind of purple. So it can go either way. I think Mike is going to win. And I think, I think Julie has a really good chance too. So these are two great Texas, uh, Texas progressives. And uh, if I had to pick one more person in the House category who can take it, I'm going to pick Tom Winter. Tom is in Montana. He's a, he's a state legislator. He won a, uh, a Republican district west of Missoula uh, that Trump won. So Trump won the district, and, um, and so did Tom Winter. And Tom is, uh, so he's a state legislator. He's very, very, very progressive, you know, really progressive and real smart. And uh, he studied cooking, and he can uh, says he can outcook me. And can he, he make Herrera. Uh, uh, I don't. Yeah, we, we had Tom on the show. Wait. By the way, uh, Tony, one of our listeners who's attending, just sent me a note, and I I forgot about this. Biden endorsed Upton in two thousand eight. That's correct. Thank, Thank you, Tony. you, Tony. You're absolutely right. What that is that about? Things. What is that about? They're old pals. They're, you know, they, they were like the old, like, kind of, you know, in between Republican, in between Republican and Democrat way back in the day before Trump. Upton used to think of himself as, you know, a, a moderate conservative, just exactly the way Biden thought of himself, a moderate conservative. So, um, you know, Biden forgot that it's, uh, you know, that several decades have passed since then. And he wound up, and while he was vice president, he wound up in, endorsing um Okay, so here's uh, what here's what I need. Well, to... More as a friendly kind of gesture. That's the, I mean, I don't know if you saw it or not today. There was a big thing about how Biden is starting this uh, Republicans for Biden uh, uh, operation. It's which is you know it, which will be massive, uh, and, and and there'll be probably be you know huge number a huge amount of of reach out to Republicans you know pointing to Biden's record. Uh, since the 1970s, that'll make people very Republicans very very comfortable. Okay, uh, voting. Uh, let's go to Pete. I, I don't want to hog Howie Klein. And then Mayor Gamba is coming up in a few minutes. So let's go to Pete, who is listening to us in Southern California. Hello, Pete. Yeah. Hi. I think my audio is better, better today, don't you? Yes, it is. You yes, agree? it is. Yes. Because I took off the headphones and it's not going through them. That's it. So, okay. Anyway. I suspect that uh, Herrera may be Dom, Dom Herrera that is. Uh, Dom Herrera? That would you be an Italian. Dom? You're saying it's an Italian dish. Okay. Well, no, he's a comedian. You're not familiar with Dom Herrera? Of course I'm familiar no. with Dom Herrera. Of course. What is but your. Here's my I still have a serious question. Okay, okay thank you. Uh, uh, Lorraine Lundquist. Uh, how are you familiar with Lorraine Lundquist? Uh, the name is familiar, but I, I, I'm not. No, I'm not. I mean, I see her name uh, on Twitter sometimes. 
He ran for city council as a progressive in the uh, northern Valley area, you know, San Fernando Valley, um, against the Republican um, for the prim- during the primary. And they had a runoff, or there were two elections, and it was for city council. That's, that's what it was for. For, for L.A. city council. For okay. L.A. city so, yeah. so what is your what is your question? Well, I was wondering if he was familiar with her because I work with her, and uh, I helped her with her campaign, and I think she's pretty good. Unfortunately, she didn't win. It, it was the March election we had. I see. Okay, thank you, so, Pete. Uh, two, two people won that, right, Pete? And she wasn't one of the two. I don't know about whether there were two. I mean, it, she ran against the Republican. Well, well, in March, there was a primary, a jungle primary. So, they, you know, they, the two people who get the most votes go on to the general election. No, she was in the general election for uh, city count, L.A. City Council for that district. But she lost, I think. Okay. So, and you worked for her. I just, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you for your question. You know who might know the answer to this? Our Herrera question? No, no, the uh, the Lundquist question. Let's go to Great Britain. I think it, let's ask Jody in Great Britain. Can you tell us about the city council election in Los Angeles and help us out? Jody probably hung up on you. For Jody? That. Jody. Hi, David. Who, who uh, won the city council election that Pete is talking about in Los Angeles? Oh. You know what? I don't even give a shit. I've been laughing so hard. Uh, it it doesn't matter. Oh, okay. Are you laughing because you know what Herrera is? Uh, <laughs> I've okay. just been. I, I, I've 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 actually had a laughing fit, <laughs> uh, and I can't help it. And I apologize. Yes, there's no laughing on this show. We don't laugh. I'm sorry. (laughs) I appreciate that. Thank you, Jody. I'm sorry. No, no. That's by the way, Jody's Canadian. I'm sorry. That's the Canadian accent. I'm sorry. Woohoo! What did you? (laughs) Okay. Do you have a question for Howie, or or should we move on? I have a yes. question. About, uh, hi, Howie. I have a question. You know, the first time I saw the Bare Naked Ladies, who became a very important band for me in my career, was uh, in London. And every Canadian in London came to see them. And I thought, wow, they have a huge following in London. Really? They're yeah. They're a Canadian band, as you know, I'm sure. Okay. I... I I completely know about them. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a great. Oh, that's amazing. Now, are you draining something? Before? We have Mayor Gamba here, uh, but and, and so, hey, Mark. So I, he's. I haven't unmuted him yet. You're draining something. So does this involve some kind of cooked wheat? Does Herrera involve cooked wheat? Well. Sometimes, in a way, it could, but no, it, it, it's a, it, Herrera, is, there's no cooked weed in Herrera, but sometimes, um, 
a form of wheat is is served at the same time as Herrera. But okay. but no, we uh, I wasn't draining anything. I was just uh, I had just I had been soaking for not the Herrera, but for the side dish, I was, which is turnips. I was soaking them uh, in marinating them, and I was just uh, washing the pan out that I, that I was marinating them in. It's very oh, you're, you're making turnips. Hey, hey, Howie, if you don't mind me asking, if if the can I ask you? Go go ahead. Ask the question. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> okay, so I, I'm a big Lou Reed fanatic. I love Lou. I I love Lou. Lou's since wonderful. I, was, I I'm a I, fan I, too. Uh, since I was 12 years old, I loved him. Uh, I mean, uh, so I, I know he's talked about when uh, when you first met him. But have you ever? Um, Did you talk him in? I think Jody just wants another Lou Reed story, right? Well, well, I do. But what what I really want to know is, uh, 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 did he ever uh, uh, go into like a uh, what do you call it? A fucking uh, like a. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right, that's well, okay. Well, gather your thoughts, okay? And uh, but what we will do is we have Mayor Mark Gamba here from Milwaukee, who we don't want to keep waiting. So very quickly to make Jody happy, didn't you buy a painting with Lou Reed in Mexico City? Uh, no. Uh, you know the funny thing is about Lou Reed is that. He, he, Andy Warhol gave him painting, and Lou, who was a little high uh, at the time, gave it to a, a pizza delivery guy because he didn't have any money when the pizza delivery by guy uh, brought the pizza over. And, and uh, presumably that painting, if it still is, is existing, uh, would be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not a million dollars. But the, the, but Lou and I were in Mexico City for a, a concert. He did a concert in Mexico City. And uh, we went to the uh, uh, the museum uh, the next day, and we were looking at the art, and there was there was a incredible Francis Bacon, and I thought I I knew all the Francis Bacon's, I you know go off into he's one of my favorite he's my favorite artist, and, and I go and see his stuff, and this was a different one I I had never seen before, so I was really excited, and Lou loved it, and he had, he said he never had heard of Francis Bacon, and I, I said I'm shocked. I, I can't believe it. And he said, yeah, the stuff is great. I've just never seen his work. So I said, why don't we get him to do your, your album cover? Because he was finishing up on an album. And, uh, yeah, Lou said, that would be amazing. Can you really do it? I said, I think so. And he said, do you know him? I said, no, I don't know him, but he knows you. And I think he would be honored to do, to do a cover for you. He said, and I said, okay, let's get this done. Let's do it. It'd be amazing. And, and, so that was on a Friday, and and um, Francis Bacon died over that weekend. Ooh. So we never got that to never got that done. Remind so that was my. So we didn't buy uh, anything, but that was my uh, Mexico City Lou art story. Okay. When we come back, remind me never to go uh, gallery hopping with you. It sounds fair. What 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 is that? Is that the sound of the the sink? It is. 
I, you, you say we're going uh, going away. To, I, I've got a, this this greasy um, um, bowl that I was marinating the turnips in. It's driving me crazy because it's okay. getting really shiny. We uh, cooking with Howie continues. When we come back, we will meet Mark Gamba again. He's no stranger to my listeners. He's the mayor of Milwaukee, Oregon, and he is running for Oregon's fifth congressional district. And the Democratic primary in Oregon ends May 19th, 2020. I think the voting has already started. And we'll talk to Mayor Mark Gamba when we come back. Thank you, Howie. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Let's go to Milwaukee, Oregon, where Mayor Mark Gamba is standing by. He is running for Oregon's 5th Congressional District. The primary ends on May 19th, 2020. Mark Gamba is endorsed by Howie Klein, which means you should vote for him if you live in the 5th Congressional District. And if you're listening to us in the United States or an American citizen overseas, you can Give money to Mayor Mark Gamba. We'll talk about that in a second. Welcome back, Mayor Mark Gamba. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm sorry I missed the cooking half of the show. Yeah, Howie is cooking Herrera. And uh, we've asked the the people sitting in to guess what Herrera is. I think some of you uh, here know what it is. Would you like to venture a guess? I have no idea. And I've <laughs> eaten food all over the world, and I still don't know what that is. Is it? Ah, well, this might be the time for me just to uh, end the uh, Herrera talk and just say what it is. Uh, and it is the the national dish of Morocco, mm. and it's a um, it's a kind of a, a, you know, for lack of a better word, it's kind of like a a, a soupy stew, uh, which uh, and the main ingredients, aside from all the wonderful Moroccan spices, are uh, chickpeas and lentils. And then lots and lots and lots of vegetables. And if if you're not a vegetarian, they cook it with lamb as well. And then they serve it over couscous, which is a form of re, uh, refined wheat. Well, this is a new segment on our show. And Mayor Mark Gamba is the first guest where Howie Klein introduces candidates he's endorsing. Why don't so you before I introduce Mark? Let me um, let me tell you a little something about um, this race. This is a very very important race. This primary because it's a blue district. Whoever wins the primary is going to be the next congressman. And Mark's opponent is a extremely right of center blue dog Democrat. So a real bad guy. There's, in fact, there was a vote a few weeks ago on a labor issue, and and this guy Kurt Schrader. The guy who Mark is uh, opposing, this guy Schrader, was the only Democrat to cross the aisle and vote with the Republicans against uh, against um, raising the minimum wage. That, that's how bad he is. Hmm. I mean, we're, we're not talking about, you know, someone who disagrees around the edges. This is full-on horrible. And Mark, on the other hand, let me put it like this. If Mark wins, the the squad will no longer be all women. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. 
if, if they'll take me in. They'll take you in uh, because of, of uh, what you stand for and how strong you stand for the things you stand for. So Mark has been trying uh, to implement uh, what he can as a mayor of the progressive agenda. So Mark is, is a, was a strong Bernie guy, and he was you know, trying to do as a mayor what uh, the, the progressive platform of today calls for. And one of those things is, of course, the Green New Deal. So, so I, I, I've been meaning to ask Mark about this. This isn't a set-up question. I'm actually, I'm actually curious about this for Mark to tell us what what he has been able to accomplish um, in in regard to the Green New Deal as the mayor of Milwaukee. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so when we set out, uh, I actually ran for politics in the first place, ran for city council because of climate change. I was a National Geographic photographer for years, and I was seeing uh, the climate change occurring around the world. So that's why I got into office and and set out immediately to um, begin to uh, pass a, a climate action plan, which took some doing because it was a Milwaukee's a relatively conservative uh, blue collar industrial town. Um, but uh, we got there, and what was it? Three years ago, we passed one of the strongest climate action plans in the state of Oregon, uh, and began to implement it. And then this last January, we. Um, made it five years, made our goals five years more aggressive because of the, IP, uh, the IPCC, IPCC report that came out, uh, which had us five minutes late, five years later on all three of our goals than we needed to What be. is the IPCC? I always forget. International uh, Go on. Climate Change Convention. It was international. It's, it's, it's okay. It's, it's okay. It's the, it's the UN. It's the UN committee. Right on on climate, and I always forget what that stands for. I, I know the answer. I just wanted to see if you, I'm kidding. <laughs> just so so our our bill or our our climate action plan wasn't uh, per se a jobs bill at the time uh, because that's the Green New Deal is is newer than our climate action plan. So we were starting to do all the things we've uh, instituted a. Um, uh, policy around trees, where we're increasing our tree canopy uh, from 23% to 40%. We are uh, reducing our uh, the carbon of our energy, uh, electricity energy, to zero by 2030. And same thing with uh, all building energy. So um, if natural gas is used, it's going to have to be renewable natural gas or switching to hydrogen or something like that. And then carbon neutral by 2045, uh, citywide, all sectors. Um, so we built uh, the new library we just built is uh, should be net zero. We'll know in a year um, whether we got there, but it's going to be very close to a net zero building. Uh, and then we're switching all of our fleet over to electric cars. Uh, the largest rooftop solar array in the state of Oregon was installed in Milwaukee as a response to our climate action plan by a private private individual. Um, what is the resistance of, that you get in Oregon to well, this? It's common sense, but somebody's is somebody losing money because you're making these changes? So what's the resistance you get? No, no, and that's that's the thing. It's that's a BS argument all the time. You know, they other than the oil companies, yes, they're gonna lose money, um, and natural gas companies, but 
that's the BS, is that somehow we're going to destroy the economy if, if we do the things we need to do. And the argument of the Green New Deal is exactly the opposite. And I, I would say, coming out of the Great Depression that we are entering into right now with this COVID pandemic, that the most powerful way that this country could come out of this is to pass the Green New Deal and put millions of people back to work and put them to work in, with with good family wage jobs, with benefits, doing all the things we need to do to stop climate change, to switch over our energy production system to renewable sources, build the smart grid, build battery storage and other forms of storage, uh, uh, shift the way we farm to renewable, you know, types of farming. Uh, there's, there's obviously a thousand things we need to do, and people could be put to work doing that and solve that problem. So, Mark, uh, Kurt Schrader, uh, a member of Congress now, is very much opposed to the Green New Deal. He certainly isn't, uh, you know, doesn't see these goals. Does, does, does this come up between you and he, and he that you're doing this and that he opposes it? Have you debated? Oh. Have you the two of you debated? No, he won't debate me. Um, he's he's avoided that. He managed to weasel out of uh, all three debates. Because um, he can't get out of Washington? Because what? He can't oh. get out of Washington? He's so busy in Congress? Well, that was that was the line for the last one, yes. He's so busy with COVID work in Congress. I'm like, Cong- Congress isn't even in session. What are you talking about? And, and, <laughs> exactly. And they let him, they said, anytime, any, we'll do it via Zoom, we'll do it any way you want to do it, we'll do it any time, any day you want to do it, he, he wouldn't do it. And he won't do it because he knows that he's wrong on all this stuff. He knows that he's sold out to the fossil fuel interests, um, and he, what he needs is for the voters not to know that. But yeah, he's got a, he's got a bill, the only bipartisan climate bill in, in, in the, in the House right now, he's a co-sponsor of. And what that bill does is it pays the fossil fuel industry billions of dollars for the next 10 years to develop carbon capture and sequestration technology. And then in 10 years, they're required to start utilizing that technology. Well, in 10 years, we're, we're past where the IPCC says we have to have already done the work, right? That's too late. That's 10 years too late. And we're going to give the fossil fuel industry billions more dollars. The the industry we already give billions of dollars of tax breaks to, we're going to give them more money to develop a technology. That's that's classic Schrader. And and he talks about it like... Who who supports his bill? Does he have co-sponsors? You said it was bipartisan. Yeah, it's, um, I'm forgetting his name. It's, it's one of this, uh, one of the Congress people from a coal state, um, from West Virginia? Yeah, probably. I, I'm, I'm terrible. Uh, and are there other Democrats that support it also? I have not seen any Democrats sign on to it whatsoever. Right. Well, hopefully you'll beat them and that, we'll never hear from about that again. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> We're talking with Mayor Mark Gamba of Milwaukee, Oregon. He's running for Oregon's 5th Congressional District. And if you have a question for him, raise your hand and we will get to you. You can also find out more about Mark Gamba, and if you're an American citizen, give him money by going to markgamba.com. That's markgamba.com. Bernie and the primaries, if you don't mind my asking, 
you you supported Bernie, and the primaries are still going on, if I'm not m- mistaken. Bernie endorsed Joe Biden. Biden's supposed to present a shadow government. We're supposed to see an alternative to how he would govern during this COVID-19 crisis. Have we seen any leadership on Biden's part? Are we is he indicating in any fashion what he would do? When, not when, that I've seen. Not that I've seen. I, you know, that's why right now I'm encouraging anybody who's listening to me to still vote for Bernie in the Oregon primary because that sets us up to having more progressive people at the convention should the Democrats end up actually holding a convention, uh, which helps us set the platform. And then, obviously, we've got to turn around, assuming unless a miracle happens and we get another option, um, we're going to end up turning around and having to vote for Biden because we can't possibly have another four years of Trump. But, no, I'm not seeing anything out of Biden. Now, granted, I am probably the worst person to ask on the planet. I am between keeping the city, keeping the wheels on a city during a pandemic and running a congressional campaign during a pandemic from my bedroom. Um, I'm I'm overly busy, so I have not been. Well, you're accomplishing more than Joe Biden, because if you've seen the virtual (laughs) town halls that he's been holding, they've been complete disasters, which suggests that he's surrounding himself not with the best, but with the most ambitious. People who see him as a resume builder, they seem to be incompetent, and we're not really seeing... Anything coming out of the Biden camp because he's discovered that if he doesn't say anything, he does very well in the polls. He's actually maintained a pretty good lead uh, right now. He's been very successful in the polling against Trump. Anyone is, uh, is, is oh, I can say anyone, but I think that oh, that lead is about people not liking Trump. Uh, people don't know anything about Biden. They don't know what he's for, if he's for anything. They don't know about his record. They just don't know about him. And, uh, you know, Trump is going to do his best to try to make sure that they find out about him. And Trump has a lot of money to spend to do that. I don't think it's going to matter. I think that this election will just be a referendum on Trump, and that'll be the end of that. And, and then, um, and then he become then Biden gets elected, and what happens? We 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 get. Well, let's put it like this. It, apropos of what you were just saying a few minutes ago, Biden is doing stuff today. He had he held a big um, a big soiree with fifty thousand dollar and up donors. So it's not like he's doing nothing. Running the city of Milwaukee, Oregon. First of all, how is the city doing and what have you lifted some of the social distancing? No. So what we're doing, uh, because the governor has a, an extensive group of people keeping back on the science. Let me point out that Oregon has kept the curve flatter, I think, than any other state or, or one of the one of the best. And that was because the group of mayors, the, the metro mayors, uh, pushed hard on the governor to close down sooner than she was really wanting to. So we we flattened our curve hard. Now, what she's saying is we will start to open back up when we have testing and tracing capability. And this is the point that I keep making to people who aren't really paying attention. I said, listen, right now, today, 
as of today, we do not have the testing and tracing capability that South Korea had months ago. We learned about this on the exact same day that South Korea did. We knew everything they did when they did. And yet they were able to ramp up their testing and their tracing months faster. I mean, I don't know how many months because we still haven't done it, but months faster. And that's all on the federal government. The the Congress, the president spent weeks and weeks propping up Wall Street and adjusting their stock portfolios to make sure that they're they're going to be fine when things go, when the economy goes to hell before they did anything to deal with this pandemic. Well, Donald Trump will say, because I'm curious as to how you're going to, not you, but how the Democrats are going to take him on in November. He's going to first lie and say there's plenty of tests and we've done a fantastic (laughs) job. But there are people, I guess, who know he's lying, who believe it's not up to Washington to get the tests. It's up to the individual states and the cities. It's federalism. It's people who believe in the Tenth Amendment. Can an argument be made that you should be on your own, that you shouldn't rely on the federal? No, because we do not have the same power that the federal government has. The federal government can actually require a manufacturer to manufacture a certain thing. They can require it. The state governments, the the city governments cannot do that. We can ask nicely. We can throw a lot of money at it, but we cannot require it. The federal government can require it. And they still, to this day, have not required, as, and as far as I've seen, any manufacturers to begin to manufacture the things we need. And right now, the thing we need the most and we have the least of is the testing capability. The testing capability. And, and, and Mark is right about the, uh, the ability of the federal government to get things done uh, where states and localities can't. Uh, and it's... Um, you know, it's why the United States is doing so much worse than any other country. I mean, we are the worst. Everything, every, nothing is nothing is going right. It's all going wrong, and it's all because of of Trump's inability to take this thing seriously. They they are not. I mean, maybe he's starting now that there are people in the White House who are coming down with COVID, but they haven't taken this seriously until now. No. So you know. We have five percent of the world. We have five percent that's going to take the kind of effort that FDR put into getting us out of the depression. Until they realize that we're nowhere. I mean, you know, a little bit here, two steps forward, three steps backward. That's all we're doing. We're just wasting time, everybody's time, and everybody's effort, and it's a catastrophe. One point three million cases worldwide, and uh, America has thirty three percent. No, no, one point oh. No, 1.3 million cases in the U.S. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. Right. And we, but we have uh, 33% of the world sick. And, uh, I mean, so how do you spin that if you're a Republican? How do you defend the indefensible? Or do they you lie. go, or do, do you no, just, they just, they just keep lying. So here's the, here's the problem is that there's a significant, uh, clearly a significant portion of the population that doesn't really either care to know the truth or are so invested in the decision they made three years ago that they will eat up with a spoon every lie that man tells. And he can change the lie from day to day, and they believe the new one just as much as they believe the old one. 
the next day. It's, it's a little unfathomable, but... You're dealing with life and death issues. You're the mayor of a city. That's right. I had a cop. One of my cops got this. She's seems to be getting better, uh, but, you know, she's a frontline worker. She had to be out there doing her job, just like our sewer people and our water people and all, all the utilities had to keep working. Everybody else worked from home, but, you know, people are putting their lives, grocery store clerks are putting their lives at risk right now. Farm workers are putting their lives at work, and Donald Trump suggested that maybe farm workers should be paid less. Paid less and... Paid less. Yeah. Then they already are, which are the worst, lowest paid workers in America, pretty much. And how are your hospitals? Are they overcrowded right now? Do you have enough ventilators? Do you have enough PPE? Like I said, Oregon flattened the curve hard. We did a great job. Right. Uh, we have had very few deaths. I'm trying to remember. I think we're 100 and some odd. Uh, I, I would have to look. Uh, but we we have done really well. And, no, our hospitals have capacity. Um, if we if we had tech, testing and tracing right now, we could begin to slowly, carefully, intelligently open our economy back up. And the governor has plans. She's issued several steps and several plans and what you need to do between each one of those steps. Um, and it's all good. It's based on science. We just need the testing. That is, that's what's holding us up right now. We don't have the testing and it doesn't look like we're going to be getting the testing. We're, we're just being told instead of giving us the testing, we're being told we have the testing. <laughs> and this thing is going to get pretty bad. Uh, what, what, how bad can it be by November? I mean, what do you see? And if you, how bad it can be by November is that we can be in an economic situation that we, we have only mirrored in this country during the great depression. That's how bad it can be. Uh, maybe worse because we might have more people dying. What, what could happen, we're starting to see a lot of red states open up. We could end up with this pandemic blowing up hard um, and spreading, obviously, outside of their borders because that's the way pandemics work. Um, and we could end up, I mean, we already have more deaths than any other country in the world. We will, we could end up with 10 times that many and be in the Great Depression simultaneously. That's how bad it could be in November. And frankly, you know, if you look at history, the only time incumbents lose is when the economy goes to hell. Right. It's it hasn't gone to hell ever this bad before. So. Well, the argument is we turned it, we turned it off. We can turn it back on, and those jobs will be waiting for us. That's what they seem to be saying. Now, there's a lot of small businesses that won't make it back. I mean, so there's so many small businesses that just are barely on the edge all the time. We That's why we took, uh, we don't have a lot of cushion in our budgets. In Milwaukee, we keep a very tight budget, but we took a fund that we could access and we did a grant program to um, several, I think it was 47 small businesses in town, got some grant money to try and, you know, keep it together, try and stay in business. But I guarantee you, by the end of this thing, we will have lost hundreds of thousands of job, businesses in this country and, and therefore the jobs. Right. And there's been a second tranche for small businesses. So they've given about $600 billion out in small business loans that are forgivable. Yeah. Did you track where those went? I, I 
would assume. A lot of them, a lot of them did not go to small businesses. And here's another thing. I was told the other day by uh, a supporter of mine who has a big construction company. They do a lot of work in affordable housing. That's how he and I got to know each other. Um, he was trying to keep his guys working safely, like socially distanced. That was one of the construction was one of the things that the governor allowed to keep going. So he was socially distancing his crews, which made construction very inefficient, right? So he's losing money. His, his clients are losing money. But he was still trying to do it to keep his guys employed. He got one of those PPP loans. So he was like, great, I'll be able to keep everybody employed. Then Mnuchin changed the rules after he got the loan, and he was told that um, if they had any other source of funding that they could have accessed, right? He's a big construction firm. He probably could have gotten a loan. So if they had any other form of uh, funding they could access, they could go to jail. So now he's sitting there with this is this decision. Do I chance going to jail or do I lay off a hundred guys? Those are the two choices I have right now. Well, this is, this is, this is how good the, the fix coming out of DC is. Well, let me bring Howie back into this. The Joe Biden campaigns notwithstanding, because that campaign right now is the, the, the just, completely incompetent but biden ran the stimulus program for obama it was close to a trillion dollars that was doled out some of it was in tax cuts but they were looking for shovel-ready projects to jumpstart the economy and it was joe biden's responsibility as vice president to make sure there was no corruption except for solyndra he did a pretty good job making sure that there wasn't graft and pork. Is that a fair statement? You know, I was still shooting back then and not as uh, steeped in politics as I am now. And I don't really remember looking deeply into that. So I'm, I'm probably well, not. Then the, the, Howie, you want to address that? I mean, no, because we we only know what we know. We don't know what we don't know. And, uh, you know, I don't want to make this just about Biden, but politicians are really good at hiding uh, these kinds of things. Right. But before you go, Mayor Mark Gamba, as bad as Biden is, I'm not saying whether or not I'm going to vote for him. There is a level of competence that oh, yeah. he, he is going to bring to Washington, or, or at least that he will, he will hire the right people. He's he, he's senile and can't do much himself. But Ron Klain, people who are competent, is, like, is what he's going to do. Like uh, Ron Klain, who ran the Ebola. We don't know what what he what he has been able to accomplish himself, other than hiring the right people, right. and that's the opposite of Trump. Everyone that Trump hires is horrible. Everyone he doesn't hire anyone good, and Biden will have you know uh, uh, all the you know regular Democratic hacks who are uh, you know the meritocracy, which is at least is better than you know you know he's not going to hire it. Well, he may be he'll hire some relatives also, but at least it, it, it's going to be the, the normal meritocracy of the bureaucracy, uh, whereas Trump, you know, tried something different, just hiring cronies and buddies and, uh, you know, people who bought positions and relatives and, oh, just, just the worst ever. And Biden won't be that bad. I mean, I keep saying, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, there's no chance I'm going to vote for Biden, but I acknowledge that he is 
much less horrible than Trump. I mean, but when you're looking at an F and you're looking at another F, does it really matter which F is worse than the other F? So I, I, yeah, I, to a lot of people it does. It, it, it does, unfortunately, in this, in this situation, because think about the Supreme Court. Think about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Right? Can we really stand to, to lose her in the next four years and have another one of these? Um, well, I, I yeah. Well, be before you go, here. before you go, Mayor, you run a city. Yeah. Things change. Like, like it's like a tuning fork. There's a new mayor, a new governor, a new president, and you hit that tuning fork and suddenly it vibrates throughout the entire system and things change. In terms of leadership, how quickly can a new president change the government? Because I think of Obama, and I have many problems with Obama. It wouldn't be this bad if I'm talking about the economy and COVID-19. Under Obama's leadership, things would have been different. Right. What, what, what are we lacking in terms of leadership? How do you come in and change a government that's already operating? Well, the, we have a complete vacuum of leadership. We have worse than a vacuum of leadership. We have somebody who's anti-leader. They're, they are doing the, the precise wrong thing. If, if no one was president right now, we would be in better shape. Right. So, so just having somebody who, as how he says, is going to hire the right people, going to hire good people, going to hire competent people, going to, uh, you know, put judges in place that are at least centrist. Um, no, it, 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 it could be a giant difference. And that's what I was talking about with the Green New Deal. That, that would really completely reset, right? So think about how, how do you bring an economy back, an economy that is literally Great Recession bad. You don't keep bring it back by giving the billionaires and the millionaires big tax breaks because they'll do stock buybacks, they'll invest it offshore, they'll do all the things that they do with money. If you put it in the hands of working-class people, they're going to spend it in the economy. Mm-hmm. Then your economy comes back. So if all of a sudden you put millions of people who are out of work, not paying taxes, not making any money, and, by the way, having to be on food stamps, having to have rental assistance, all those things – if all of a sudden those people are back to work, your economy in months, literally in months, goes back to normal. It's called. So, a- yeah. And what, and what um, Mark just described is what progressives who are running for Congress are going to try to do, like Mark. Biden is not a, is against the Green New Deal. Biden is a corporate shill who will be doing, you know, not as bad as Trump, but the same kind of thing. And it's going to take people, it's going to take electing people to Congress like Mark to, to, to get what he just described, to get the kind of movement that he just described. It's not going to happen on its own, and it's not going to happen by electing Joe Biden. I'm sure Joe, Joe Biden is going to be elected. I feel pretty certain we're going to have a Democratic um, Senate, and I think that the House will expand its Democratic majority. But, the, you know, the Demo- the, we're electing a conservative Democrat to the presidency. We're electing a, conservative, a bunch of conservative senators who are not for the Green New Deal, for example, or for Medicare for All. And we've got to elect more real progressives like Mark Gamba, or we're going to be up Schitt's Creek. Mark Gamba. TV show. Right. Uh, Mark, 
hang on, let me mute, mute the kitchen there for a second. Mark Gamba is the mayor of Milwaukee, Oregon, and he is running for Oregon's 5th Congressional District. The Democratic primary ends on May 19th, 2020. So the voting starts when? It started uh, about, well, ballots dropped, what, 10 days ago? People have been filling out their ballots for for almost a week. And it's all mail-in? It's all mail-in. We have been 100% mail-in uh, for 20 years, and we have had zero problems with it. So, the, the, you know, the only the only problem that a Republican would have with it is we have a higher voter turnout than normal states. So in high vote turnouts, you get more Democrats because that means there's more actual people voting. Great. Go to markgamba.com. If you're an American citizen, you can donate money. He's endorsed by Howie Klein. So, you know, you know what to do. Thank you, Mayor Mark Gamba. And thank you, Howie Klein. Stay on the line, everybody. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. From New York, from beautiful Bayville, on the glorious Gold Coast of Long Island's North Shore, let's welcome our old friend, Jackie the Joke Man Martling. For endless jokes, say, Alexa, play Jackie Martling. Follow Jackie on Twitter at Jackie Martling. Jokes every day at 4.20 p.m. International Marijuana Time. You want personalized videos? Go to cameo.com forward slash Jackie Martling. And as a birthday gift, a graduation gift, whatever, Jackie will record a personalized video for someone you love. Go to cameo.com forward slash Jackie Martling. Instant fun called Jackie's Dirty Joke Line. Use your finger, 516-922-WINE. And, hey, you want some jokes to brighten up your next Zoom conference? Big fun. Email Jackie, jokeland at AOL.com. Hello, Jackie. Mommy, mommy, daddy's sucking on my cock. <laughs> Jesus. Well, yeah. I'm certainly not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> we have nice people, Jackie, here today. Hey, did you hear about the guy who lost his left leg, his left arm, and his left ear in a car accident? No. He's all right. <laughs> <laughs> How are hot dogs like pussy? Oh, come on, Jackie. How? If you ever stop to think about what goes into them, you'd never eat another one. <laughs> okay. So a guy says to the bartender, my wife apologized to me for the first time ever today. She said she's sorry she ever met me. <laughs> guys come back from the bathroom with wet spots in the front. <laughs> I've always wanted to know why. Because their pricks can't go. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> what do you get when you cross a hooker with a piranha? What? 
Your last blow job. <laughs> so a door-to-door -door a door-to-door -door vacuum salesman goes to the first house in his new territory. He knocks. A lady opens the door. Before she can do anything, before she can say anything, he runs inside and dumps horse shit on her carpet. <laughs> he says, lady, if this vacuum cleaner don't do wonders cleaning up that horse shit, I'll eat every chunk of it. She says, you want tomato sauce on it, Smiley? We just moved in and there's no electricity yet. <laughs> <laughs> A guy comes running out of a burning whorehouse, and he says to the fireman, Hey, if you see a redhead in a blue nightie, fuck her, it's paid for. <laughs> <laughs> How can you tell when your parents are getting deaf? How? <laughs> you catch them fucking on top of the cat. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> okay. So it's a kid from Bedford-Stuyvesant. Yeah. <laughs> Be nice. A kid from Bedford-Stuyvesant. It's his first day on campus at Harvard, and he's lost. He goes up to another student and says, Yo, man! Ah, uh, yeah? Where's the library at? The other student says, My friend, here at Harvard, we don't end a sentence with a preposition. He's all right, then where's the library at, motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> the husband walks in and the wife says, Honey, I got good news and bad news. He says, Listen, I had a really rough day. Give me the good news first. She says, The airbag in the new car works. <laughs> That's a great joke. That's clean. Why'd they bury the Indian on the side of a hill? Oh, Jackie, why? He was dead. <laughs> <laughs> so three nuns. Three nuns are talking to the priest. And the first nun says, Father, I saw a man's penis. <laughs> he says, wash your eyes with holy water. Mm. Second nun says, Father... I kissed a man's penis. He says, wash your hands with holy water. The third nun says, Father, I'm going to go gargle with the holy water before you sit in it. <laughs> why did God give women vaginas? Uh, why? So we talk to him. <laughs> Jesus, you can't, you can't do that, Jackie. These are good people. What's the difference between an elephant and a New York City cab driver? <laughs> what? The elephant has the trunk in the front and the asshole in the back. <laughs> so every night. Every night for 20 years, Irving Schwartz gets down on his knees and says, Lord, it's me. It's me, Irving Schwartz, Lord. I'm a good Jewish boy. 
one time, couldn't you let me win the lottery? One time, Lord, I'm good to my parents. I'm good to my children. I go to temple. Lord, please, one time, let me win the lottery. Every night, 20 years. Lord, it's me, Evan Schwartz. Please, Lord, sometime, let me win the lottery. Finally, one night after 20 years, the heavens open up, and a voice says, Irv, if you want to win the lottery, you got to buy a fucking ticket. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, did you hear about the new Catholic sperm bank? No. Kingdom come. <laughs> you know, a guy says to the bartender, guy says to the bartender, you know, my wife shouted at me all morning for not opening the car door for her. But come on, man, I, I was too busy swimming to the surface. <laughs> <laughs> So Father Brown. Father Brown. Father Brown walks into the supply store and says, I want to buy a milking machine. Tells us, Father Brown, you only got one cow. Why would you buy a milking machine? Well, I'm going to tell you why. Yesterday, I went into the barn to milk the cow. And I sat down to milk her, and that cow kicked me. So I got some ewe nails, and I banged them into the floorboard by each of her hoofs and tied the hoofs to them so she couldn't kick me again. Then when I sat down to milk her, she started slapping me in the face with her tail. Slapping in the So I took some twine, I tied it to the end of her tail, threw it up over the rafter beam, and then tied it to the side of the skull to keep it out of the way. Just as I was tying it, I looked down, and I see my fly was open. Now, just when I reached down to pull up my zipper, my wife walked in. <laughs> now, if you can convince that woman I was going to milk that cow, you can sell me a tractor. <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> How do you make Martha Stewart scream twice? Ow. You fuck her in the ass and wipe your cock on the drapes. <laughs> no, 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 no. So a guy, a guy comes out and there's his neighbor, Stosh, on the front lawn with a penguin. Stosh. Stosh on the front lawn with a penguin. He says, Stosh, Jesus Christ, what are you doing, Stosh? Stosh, you got to take that penguin to the zoo. Stosh says, you know, I guess you're right. Next day, the guy comes out, and there's Stosh with the penguin. He says, Stosh, Jesus Christ, I thought you were going to take that penguin to the zoo. And Stosh says, I, I did. And-, and tomorrow, we're going to the ball game. <laughs> <laughs> a guy brings a girl home, and they're in his bedroom. They get in bed, and he says, you want to make love like in the movies? She says, I'd really like that. So they get all undressed, and he climbs in, and he shoots his cum all over her face and her neck. She says, "Uh, we must go to different movies. (laughs) 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 A very young Italian girl, Maria, a young Italian girl and her new husband, 
uh, spending their honeymoon night in her bedroom at her parents' house because they haven't got much money. And he takes off his shirt. He's got a really hairy chest. She runs downstairs and says, Mama, I'm no good sleeper with other men. I cannot sleep with that man. It's a chest. It's a chest all a hairy, Mama. It's his chest all a hairy. She says, you're so silly, Maria. That's a perfectly <laughs> natural for a man to have a hairy chest. Now you go up there and you honor your husband. You honor your husband. Well, she goes back upstairs. He's taking off his pants and his legs are really hairy. She runs down and says, Mama, I'm not going to sleep with that man. His legs, his legs are hairy. His all hairy, his legs. Mama, no, I can't do it. Don't you be so stupid, Maria. That's a normal too. A hairy legs. That's a manly. You know, you get your ass back up there and you want your new husband. <laughs> she goes back upstairs to her husband and he never told her that he lost all the toes of one foot in an accident. And he takes off his socks and she looks down, she screams and she runs down and says, Mama, Mama, I know I sleep with that man. He's only got a foot and a half. She says, a foot and a half, <laughs> you move out the way, Maria. I'm going to sleep with <laughs> <laughs> What's the difference between a microwave oven and anal sex? Oh, come on, Jackie. Their kids are listening. A microwave won't brown your meat. <laughs> They're going to shut us down. He had that favorite. 30 times walk along with his father and he sees a butterfly. He grabs the butterfly, throws it down on the sidewalk, and stomps it. His father says, son? My God, son, that was unnecessary. Unnecessary violence. You're not going to have any butter for an entire year. And then Johnny sees a honeybee. He grabs a honeybee, throws it on the sidewalk, and he stomps the honeybee. His father says, again, son, unnecessary. That was unnecessary violence. You may not have any honey for an entire year. So that night, Johnny's sitting at dinner with his parents when a cockroach goes running across the table and his mother whacks it. And Johnny says, well, Pop, are you going to tell her or am I? <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. What's the difference between iron and steel? What's the difference? Puerto Rican men don't iron. <laughs> Come on. Come on, Jackie. <laughs> How many closet homosexuals does it take to change a life? No, all right. Come on, Jackie. Be nice. Be... How many closet homosexuals How does many? it take to change How a life? How many? Two. One to change the bulb and one to hold the penis. Ladder. I meant I meant I meant ladder. Ladder. I meant ladder. All right, for endless jokes, say Alexa, play Jackie Martling. Follow Jackie on Twitter at Jackie Martling. Jokes every day at 420 International Marijuana Time. Personalized videos, of course you want them. Go to cameo.com forward slash Jackie Martling. Instant fun. Call Jackie's Dirty Joke Line. Use your finger, 516-922-WINE. And you know what? You just... Got brightened up. A lot of people are sitting in on this segment via Zoom. And if you want to brighten up your next Zoom conference, why not invite Jackie to tell some jokes? Big fun. Email Jackie, jokeland at AOL.com. Did I say com or com? Com. Thank you, Jackie. So, Ivanka 
But Trump decides she wants a Kentucky thoroughbred. So she goes to election in Kentucky, and the guy is selling the horses, come on, let's go for a ride. They're just pulling out of the barn when Ivanka's horse, his tail goes up and... <laughs> she turns to the guy and says, I'm really embarrassed. He says, don't be, lady. I thought it was the horse. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I says to his girlfriend, I want a picture of your pussy oh, so I can on. stare at it and stay faithful. She says, yeah, well, I want a picture of your cock so I can have it enlarged. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you, Jackie. We'll talk to you next week, I hope. Why don't Jewish girls swallow? Why? They want to be the spitting images of their mothers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one more corker. One Schwartz, more. Mozzarella, and Stokowski. Schwartz, Mozzarella, and Stokowski are all sentenced to 20 years in solitary confinement, and they're each allowed one request. So Schwartz asks for a stack of books, Mozzarella asks for his wife, and Stokowski asks for 200 cartons of cigarettes. <laughs> At the end of the 20 years, they open up Schwartz's cell, and he says, I love it. The books were fantastic. I studied so hard. I'm so bright. Now I could be a lawyer. It was fantastic. And they open up Mozzarella's cell, and he comes out with his wife, and they got five new kids. He says, it's the greatest thing of my life. It was the greatest 20 years. And my wife and I had never been so close. I got a beautiful new family. I'm I love it. They open up Stokowski's door, and he's slapping in his pockets going, Anybody got a match? <laughs> I love you, Jackie. I'll talk to you next week, Thank man. you. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, Jackie. Stay on All the right. line. Stay on the line. All right. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, You Sad Pathetic Hump.